Check, check. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten.
on biodefense released its first report, A National Blueprint for Biodefense, in 2015. And since then, we've taken up specific issues that we wanted to delve into more deeply. Senator Daschle, Secretary Shalala, and the Honorable Ken Weinstein and I have taken up topics that were particularly important and interesting to each of us. Senator Daschle, uh, today's meeting's co-chair with me, uh, led a meeting on agricultural defense. Ken Weinstein chaired a meeting on biological attribution. Secretary Shalala, who, by the way, regrets that she could not be here with us Today, chaired a meeting on state, local, tribal, and territorial health care and public health ability to respond to biological events. And now, today, I'm chairing today's meeting on the cost of resilience, the impact of large-scale biological events on business, finance, and the economy. Holding these meetings has allowed us to put more meat on the bones of the blueprint we put out three years ago. And frankly, given the multifaceted nature of the biological threat, we could probably hold hundreds of meetings and produce as many or more recommendations stu and still have barely scratched the surface. It's particularly fitting that we are holding this meeting at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and I want to thank the Chamber for its help with today's meeting. I also want to take this opportunity to thank our fiscal sponsor, Hudson Institute, as well as Open Philanthropy and our other donors. Uh, their support makes this meeting and other panel activities possible and we greatly appreciate that. As the CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, BIO, I understand biodefense from several angles. On the one hand, BIO and its members work tirelessly to produce and push innovation in the biological arena. The achievements of our companies amaze me every day. Just last month, BIO held its annual convention and I had the honor of introducing the first recipient of gene th therapy here in the United States. You've heard of the, the bubble boy syndrome. This young lady at four years old was given the uh, first ever gene therapy um, that enabled her to escape that bubble and to live uh, into her, well into her 30s um, in very healthy style. Stories like hers uh, and yours, frankly, because everyone in this room has benefited directly from biotechnology are all the motivation and the justification I need to do everything I can to advance biotechnology and to save lives. But I also realize that not everything is sweetness and light in this arena. My colleagues and I understand the risk associated with dual-use technology. And while I believe we need to manage that risk, I also believe we need to do so without stifling the innovation that we need to counter biological threats where we find them. I'm also very aware of the impact of infectious disease on the workforce and our organizational operations. Large-scale biological events would impact the conduct of business, finance, and national, regional, and global economies. I recall the impact of foot and mouth disease in the United Kingdom. The spread of that disease there cost their nation about 10 to 15 billion dollars from 1999 to 2003 and bovine spongiform encephalitis, or mad, mad cow disease, cost the UK economy about $15 billion as well. And I want to be clear, those were not just the immediate costs. Uh, the indirect effects of the animal disease hit the British economy hard and were calculated as a function of GDP. So I look forward to hearing from our speakers today about these very real impacts to business and the economy. Um, before we ask Senator Johnson to speak, and uh, I'm told that the senators will be here, 
Um, I'd like to ask my colleagues on the panel to make some opening remarks, and let me start with Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, who's today's co-meeting, co-chair of this meeting. Tom. Well, Jim, thank you very much uh, for your opening remarks and, uh, and for your leadership on, on this particular hearing. I join Jim in welcoming each of you uh, to join in this important discussion today and thank the chamber as well. And I, I want to uh, shout out, uh, give a shout out to our staff. They've done a phenomenal job, as they always do, uh, and they deserve a great deal of credit for the success of each of these sessions. And today is certainly no, uh, no exception. I'm, I'm pleased as well that uh, Dr. Henrik Burke of Bavarian Nordic is here. Industry shoulders much of the responsibility for helping the nation and the world respond to biological events, and we're grateful uh, to Bavarian Nordic uh, for their contributions with regard to medical countermeasures and uh, their leadership on biodefense especially. When I chaired the panel's special focus meeting on agro-defense last year in Kansas, I was struck by the enormous impact that the disease could have on the ability of business to continue to operate if that disease spread unabated and uncontrolled. This is very obvious, especially in agriculture. Naturally occurring or weaponized diseases could decimate entire farms, herds, plants, and industries. Like Jim, I recall some really sobering events. For example, the highly pathogenic strain of avian influenza created an outbreak here in the United States that cost the U.S. economy over $3.3 billion. $3.3 billion for an outbreak that lasted for around six or seven months. So given the enormity of these dire consequences, I hope that some of our speakers will share their views on the biological threat and how our nation should address it as we look to the future, or in some cases, without the United States government's involvement. This should be a productive day, a good day, an opportunity for exchange of ideas and thoughts, concerns, and plans. So I appreciate, once again, your participation. Look forward to this important meeting. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Senator. And let me ask Senator Joe Lieberman, who's the former chairman of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, and he's the co-chair of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense, and ask you to say a few words, Joe. Uh, thanks, Jim, uh, very much. Thanks to you and Tom for uh, taking the leadership on uh, this meeting. Um, this has been a great uh, experience, and you know, when you, when you leave elective office or executive office, as the case with uh, Governor Ridge and, and Ken Weinstein, uh, well, my wife once said to me that she concluded that uh, public service was actually a blood disease for which there was not a cure. And uh, she was referring to me, I believe. Um, <clears throat> not, not, with a, not always with pride, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, when I, when Bob Cadlick, uh, now in the administration, uh, came to me with this idea and said he was thinking about asking Tom Ridge to be the co-chair, that the, that the country really needed, he, he was, it was a kind of the old Paul Revere metaphor, not the British coming, but uh, biological terrorists are coming, uh, infectious disease pandemics are coming, and there's not really a focused effort in the public or private sectors in America to 
improve our uh, prevention, uh, let alone our response to such events. Um, and so I took it as a, a, a really uh, extraordinary privilege to be in, say yes, I'd like to be involved in this. It was a natural continuation of what I did uh, in the Senate on the Homeland Security Committee. And uh, it's been a great experience. A small uh, panel, small commission, six members. So got some great ex officio members over here, so they sort of allow us to miscount and seem smaller than we really are. They've added enormously to our work. But I, I personally have learned a lot. And uh, uh, Bob Cadillac's original vision that we're not uh, prepared as a country is absolutely um, right. We uh, issued a report, we recommended that the federal government do what any, we're here at the chamber, beautiful chamber, thanks for having us, um, that uh, what any business would do, you have to have a plan first and then put somebody in charge. The federal government of the United States has neither. So Congress actually picked up that idea, mandated a, a biodefense strategy. Uh, it was supposed to be done last fall, the administration, Tom Bossert, he was in the White House handling this, really had a plan drafted, but he left and it sort of hasn't, Nothing's happened since then, and we're getting restless, so I hope that comes first. We also recommended, unusually, but it seemed to be uh, what was logical, that the Vice President of the United States coordinate the uh, biodefenses of our, our country because of all that was involved. I mean, bottom line, uh, you know, we've got a, a system of detectors out across America, BioWatch, uh, to, in the case, uh, to give us early warning in the case of a terrorist biological attack, bottom line, they're not working. They need to either be re replaced or, or closed down. Um, the, this is the 100th anniversary of the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. At least 50 million people died in that epidemic. If I must say so, say so personally, my own grandmother, my father's mother, died as a young woman. He, he was less than three. He has no memories of her. Of course, I never knew her, and, and millions and millions of families around the globe were affected by that. Uh, there's one credible independent estimate that says that if there was another 1918-like flu epidemic, and there, there will be flu epidemics, um, again, for which we don't really have vaccines, that 33 million people would die in the first six months before we'd have a chance to develop, have a chance to develop a vaccine. So. The, the, and the economic consequences are enormous. My colleagues have stated them. Uh, uh, lost income, eco economic dislocation, lack of confidence to come out into the public. Just think about the ways in which we'd be effective, affected. And um, th that's why we're here today, to focus on another aspect of this, which is the cost of, of resilience, the impact of large-scale biological events on business, finance, and the economy. Uh, we have a wonderful group of uh, expert witnesses before us across a wide range of experiences. I hope that beyond estimating the cost, we will also discuss, particularly with the private sector um, leaders who are going to testify or speak with us today, how we can find ways to build public-private partnerships that are aimed at um, First, prevention, particularly with the pharmaceutical industry, private industry, pharmacies around America, and um, uh, the government to, to develop a universal flu vaccine, ideally. 
and then how we can work to um, uh, improve our response capacities, particularly in our private and public health systems, should uh, one of those events occur. But um, uh, we, we ha I, I have learned a lot in um, the work on this commission uh, with my colleagues. Incidentally, I'll say one thing, because the chamber's been really um, constructive on immigration questions. Um, one of the things I've learned in this commission is the connection, which I didn't appreciate, between the animal world and the human world when it comes to infectious disease outbreaks. And really, basically, they come to us via birds, mosquitoes, worst of all, bats, and uh, they're not affected by borders. <laughs> you can build that wall as high as we want to build it. Those birds, those bats, those, uh, those mosquitoes are going to come across and uh, people are going to get sick. So uh, let's educate each other. Let's go forward uh, together in the spirit of uh, cooperation, total nonpartisanship that has characterized our work as a um, as a panel, and uh, I think we can save some lives and save a lot of money as well. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Senator, and Governor Ridge, given your work here at the chamber, I'm sure there are quite a few here who are anxious to hear what you have to say, so. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, first of all, welcome and thank you for attending this morning, this afternoon. I think we've got uh, an interesting group of panelists to help us continue to dig a little deeper and uh, build more context around the multiple recommendations we've made to Congress. When Senator Lieberman initially contacted me to join him as co-chair, I uh, was intrigued, one, by the mission of the biodefense panel, uh, because an individual to whom he referred in his remarks, Bob Cadlick, had actually talked to me about preparedness for a biological threat back in 2001 and 2002 when I was in the White House and before I became Secretary of Homeland Security. So number one, the lesson is somebody like a single person like Bob Cadillac, who's been relentless and energetic in getting those who make public policy to focus on this issue, have been very successful. And along the way, we got Ellen and we got Asha and we've got this great group of board members and colleagues over to our right. And we're here 15 years later and Senator said, we agreed we didn't want to do, we didn't want to participate in a study that ended up on a shelf gathering dust rather than support. And so as part of the conditions that all members of the panel laid out early on is we'll do the study, but we have to make specific short and long-term recommendations to the policymakers. What I found most intriguing about the recommendations was that a lot of it was process-driven, and normally people's eyes glaze over when you're talking about process. But by the way, those of us who served in government understand uh, that you need a strategy. We have none in biodefense. You need a, a unified budget. We don't have one in biodefense. Uh, you need somebody to have specific oversight over all of that. We don't have that. We don't have a group or a single individual setting priorities, and the list goes on and on. So I said, count me in, and we're here today, and we got to thank our staff and our team for the sustained effort to convince our policymakers. In the first panel, we've got a couple very important ones with uh, Senator Johnson and Senator Casey. The second thought I would share with you is that the recommendations that we make to the policymakers has little 
has very little to do with more money. Oh, yes, there are some additional requests for a few additional dollars, but in the context of the overall budget, uh, we're not asking uh, for uh, substantial increases in dollars. We're actually trying to focus more strategically and operationally the dollars that are being spent. Uh, and it has nothing to do with my political philosophy, but because you have more programs and because you have more and more appointees, there's over 50 people who have jurisdiction over some area of biodefense in Washington. But if you've got 50 people in charge, you have nobody in charge. And so the recommendations we've made, I think very appropriately, you can call them bipartisan, right, political, but everybody that sits on this panel has been part of that process, either in the executive branch or the legislative branch. And until and unless and until we bring some of these fundamental changes to how we deal as a country with these critical issues, uh, we will continue to be ill-prepared. Disease is now globalized. Uh, contagion can be in another part of the world. You can get a couple of people hopping on a transatlantic, trans-Pacific flight, and all of a sudden, before you know it, even before some of the symptoms appear, uh, you could have the contagion being spread around, sometimes willingly, sometimes unwillingly, whether it's a nation state, a terrorist group. And by the way, I happen to think Mother Nature may be presently the biggest threat. And so when you think of my experience as Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, we need to identify, detect, prevent, and respond and recover. Those five elements around risk management writ large, we apply to the biodefense space. And I think the panel's recommendations uh, if adopted over time, will make us not only safer, but healthier. And one of the reasons we're at the chamber today is simply because the potential economic impact on the strongest economy of the world with a major pandemic is quite significant. So we want to thank our host, the chamber. I noticed in that note, one of the panelists is Ann Bouchain, a friend and now colleague of mine who will talk a little bit about the impact on critical infrastructure since the private sector owns about 85 or 90% of it. I'm also quite interested in the testimony of Dr. Marciani and uh, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Comer going to talk about the potential impact on mass gatherings. Look, we're getting ready. We already got baseball. We're getting ready for college football and professional football. We put a lot of people together on a daily, if not weekly, basis in crowded quarters, and uh, the impact of a contagion on a mass uh, gathering could be huge. Look. My colleague referred to the Spanish flu, 19 after, 1918, 50 to 100 million people infected. The carrier were other people, other soldiers, probably in World War II. By the way, 700,000 Americans died, and it, who spread it was spread by people to people. So it's a serious issue. We've got a couple of great, several great panelists today, and uh, all of us continue our desire to try to move public policy. And I'm very proud to be associated with this group. Um, because there's no Republican or Democrat or independent way to deal with the risk. The risk is real. There are solutions that we could reduce the risk. We'll never eliminate it. And it's just up to us to work, be as relentless as Bob Cadlick was over 15 years ago. Now that we've raised the issue, we've made very specific recommendations. And I think this uh, panelist today will help us drive those recommendations, not only the consciousness of the public, but also drive them hopefully to the consciousness of those who serve us on the Hill and in the White House so that uh, some of the recommendations we made in good faith, apolitical or bipartisan as they are, not controversial, will see the light of day in the next couple of years. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Governor. Uh, last but assuredly not least, I'd like to ask former Homeland Security Advisor Ken Weinstein to say a few words. Ken? 
Thanks, Jim, and good morning, everybody. Um, I'll admit to also, I think like the others on this panel, uh, being a, a follower of Bob Cadlick, he, um, he and I worked together in the Homeland Security Council back at the end of the Bush administration. He, uh, he supposedly, I guess, organizationally worked for me, but the reality was I worked for him. He, uh, I sort of learned biodefense at his knee, and he, he's, the first, he's the one that sort of opened my eyes to the severity of this threat and the need for action. And he's been banging that drum ever since and doing so very effectively. And I think uh, this panel and the very fruitful meetings that we've had and the reports we put out, I think, are all attributable to his persistence on this issue. And uh, thank goodness we have him banging that drum. So look, I, the, the reality is, um, as we talk about resilience uh, just in the title of today's session, um, we need resilience and we need preparedness. But you can't just flip a switch and have that. Um, in fact, it's, uh, it takes a lot of work and a lot of focus. And we're just not seeing sufficient amounts of either, either work in the federal government level uh, or the focus uh, on this issue, certainly not the work and the focus that it merits. And the threat is real. You've heard from the other panelists, obviously, 100-year anniversary of the Spanish flu. That was, uh, that was a shocker. It killed 50 to 100 million people. But then we've had flu outbreaks ever since, reminders of the scale of the threat that we face. Fortunately, those reminders have been much milder than the Spanish flu of 100 years ago. But there's nothing that says it can't uh, grow to those dimensions in future rounds of flu epidemics. But then, as uh, uh, Senator Lieberman, I believe, said, or Senator Daschle, you know, there are also weaponized pathogens that we have to be very focused on. You have terrorist groups now who have a capability that they didn't have years ago. The internet has completely changed the game. Uh, with the internet, you've got terrorist groups who, by the way, the Director of National Intelligence every year reminds us that terrorist groups are trying to, to get uh, the capability to inflict damage with um, biological weapons. And you've got the Director of National Intelligence reminding us of that. Um, you've got um, them being able to go online. They can then uh, order up lab equipment online. They can find uh, basically tutorials on how to create biological weapons online. They can actually order the various elements of that process over the dark web. So that they not only are we facing terrorist groups who have the wherewithal and the desire to kill hundreds, thousands of Americans, but they now have the wherewithal to do it. And then we also have state actors. And we can't forget that North Korea is out there, China and others. And we know they have these capabilities. And so we always have to prepare for the worst case scenario from one of our state adversaries. Um, and as we pointed out, as other, my colleagues at Beard pointed out, this isn't just a threat to health, it's a threat to the economy. Uh, the, the sums that have to be expended and have been expended on what are relatively, uh, comparatively speaking, uh, mild pandemics have been staggering and something more severe could be uh, absolutely debilitating to our economy. So what we need, and we've said this every way we can in writing and in our meetings, and we've heard it from all the expert uh, witnesses who've come before us, and, and I bet we'll hear the same thing today, is we need a whole of government response to this threat, and we need a whole of economy, frankly, a whole of society response to the threat. And in terms of the whole of government effort, as uh, Governor Ridge just said, um, that requires leadership, coordination, centralization of decision making, it requires all the elements of an effective government program. And we just don't have that right now. And look, in terms of any value I bring to this, uh, this dais today, I, 
it's not my scientific expertise. I can maybe on a good day diagnose whether my kid has a common cold or the flu, but beyond that, I'm out of my depth. But it's, it's how government works best, and I got to see that in the position that I held in government, what it requires to meet the threats that we've met in the last couple of decades, the terrorist threat, the cyber threat, and the ways in which we've met those threats and ways in which we haven't, and the lessons that those, those situations provide for this situation. And those lessons are very, very clear, and it requires a lot more action than we're seeing right now by the government. And I'm hoping that today will help to be a, you know, help to prompt further action. Um, let me just wind up by saying uh, thanks to all of you. Um, as we said, this is a threat to the economy and society, and I think this is a good representation of your recognition of that threat uh, on behalf of American business and American industry. And I also want to um, add to what we heard from other panelists to thank our staff. And it's always uh, routine to thank staff, but let me just tell you, this staff has been, like Bob Cadlick, been keeping this issue at the front of the consciousness of the American people and us. And I think we owe them a real debt for doing that. So thank you. Thank you, Ken, and perfect timing, Senator Gacy. Uh, we're about to turn to our first panel. We have two uh, senators about to uh, share their thoughts with us. We have two senators on the panel, and so former Congressman Ridge and I are feeling a little defensive, as the lower house members always have felt around the upper house, upper chamber, but that's, as we used uh, to say a, in the yeah, house. We're up here asking yeah. the questions. We're feeling really good about that. But uh, your, your defensiveness is entirely appropriate. Well, Tom, Tom, Tom will remember that we used to say that when our colleagues would from the House would get elected to the Senate that it raised the average IQ of both chambers, but uh, that was just a joke. Senator Johnson, um, thank you for being here. Um, uh, from the great state of Wisconsin, he's the chair of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. He's shown great interest in biodefense and did us the honor of holding a hearing on the topics when we released our blueprint for biodefense in 2015. Senator Johnson, thank you. The floor is yours. Well, Distinguished man, uh, members of the panel, uh, thanks for inviting me, uh, but primarily thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, I, I can't tell you from my perspective how important this effort is. Um, I, f I really feel like I fit in here. I'm, I'm not the most uplifting character. I mean, I'll, I'll just warn you, but I don't think this is going to be a very uplifting uh, seminar here today or whatever you're calling this thing, uh, because you're dealing with something that's incredibly complex, uh, incredibly dangerous, um, and it's not being addressed. And let's face it, we are not addressing this properly. Uh, I come from the private sector. Uh, one thing I've noticed as I've come to Washington, D.C., there, there's not much of a problem-solving skill set here. Uh, people play politics. You know, in the private sector, the way you accomplish something is you tenaciously pursue areas of agreement. In politics, unfortunately, politicians exploit divisions. And they, they know how to get elected, there's no doubt about that. They understand how to, how to you know, do that marketing in themselves, but they don't know how to sell ideas. They don't know how to market uh, problems and solutions, and they, they literally don't know how to go through that problem-solving process, which is gathering of information, defining goals, do root cause analysis, and based on all that hard work, which you've done. And again, that's why I commend this panel. You've done that hard work. You establish achievable goals, then you start designing solutions. Now, I think the senators and the members of Congress that are here would agree with me that oftentimes what happens in Congress is you just, you know, staff writes a bill, you sign your name on it, and all of a sudden you're, you're pushing it hard, even though it's not really directed toward an achievable goal, and it's completely from divorced from reality. 
So one of the questions I ask of audiences, and I've asked this literally of tens of thousands of Americans, primarily Wisconsinites, so just very easily, show of hands, how many people think the federal government is efficient and effective? Now, generally, yeah, well, I've, I've asked, and I'm not embellishing, tens of thousands, maybe a couple hundred. Normally, I get pretty loud laughter and guffaws because people realize the government is not efficient, it's not effective, it's pretty broken, it's dysfunctional, it's because it's doing so many things it never was intended to do. You know, we, again, we, this, this should be 50 sovereign states federated into a republic, uh, and the federal government ought to prioritize what it needs to do, national defense, homeland security, securing our borders. The fact that we've got a $4 trillion entity distracts us, okay? So it's very difficult for government to con concentrate on this when you see all the distractions, for example, in the media. You know, rather than having these threats, and there are a bunch of them, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some of the real problems, but rather than having these top of the story, just turn on cable news, what are we talking about today? We're talking about Stormy Daniels, we're talking about, you know, Michael Cohen, we're talking about uh, the Mueller investigation, we're talking about Russian interference in our election, which is serious, it's unacceptable, but it's not as the narrative is the greatest threat to our democracy. The greatest threats to our democracy is what I'm going to start ticking off right now. How about the fact we're $21 trillion in debt? How about the fact over the next 30 years, at least another $100 trillion of deficit will be added to that debt? How about military readiness in very uncertain times? We've been hollowing out our military. We're not even close to the readiness that we need to be at to address the, the geopolitical threats from Russia, from China, from Iran, from North Korea, from Islamist terror, cyber attacks. Cybersecurity. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about election interference. You know, cyber attacks into, into, for example, our election files, our voter registration files. But I'm far more concerned about the fact that Russia actually shut down the electrical grids in eastern Ukraine twice. That we have evidence that they have access to our control systems. Um, any kind of attack, a real attack on our electrical grid or our financial institution, that is an existential threat to this nation. One of the things when I took over chairman of, of uh, your old committee there, uh, Senator Lieberman, I became aware of the threat of EMP, electromagnetic pulse, and geo, uh, geomagnetic disturbances. I'd heard of it in the past, but again, like most Americans, wow, that's so far out there, it could never happen. No, it's a real threat. And we have been trying to raise a profile of that. It's very similar to this bio threat. And truthfully, I'll, I'll go over it later, we've gone not very, we have not gotten very far. What about the malign use of drones? Uh, we tried to get inserted into the NDA this year a very, very basic authorization for law enforcement, DHS, to counter drones. One of the things I did in a hearing a couple months ago is there's, there's a video uh, posted by ISIS on the internet. I think it's been, since been taken down. It shows, it look, this looks like a video from the Defense Department. It's a, it's a video from a drone, it's an ISIS drone, hovering over an Iraqi target, lowers itself on the target, bombs away, incredibly direct hit. Now, because of a host of reasons within Senate staff and jurisdictional issues, we weren't able to get a very simple authorization that just was identical to what has already been authorized for the Defense Department and Department of Energy 
to just begin the process of giving law enforcement authorization to potentially counter that threat. Couldn't do it. We're trying to get it in, our, in, the, in, in the conference report. But again, to me, it was a no-brainer. We should have got that in, in, inserted into national defense authorization, haven't been able to do it. And then finally, the bio threats, the pan pandemic diseases you're talking about, chemical or biological weapons of mass destruction. When I had you testify before our committee back in October of 2015, my takeaway first and foremost is we need leadership. We need somebody in charge, and we don't have it. We still don't have it. Um, you know, Senator Lieberman, I think you were in the Situation Room with Vice President Biden, and, make, make, and so are you, Governor Ridge, and made the case, and he was very sympathetic, but he was also very right from the standpoint, you know, I'm, I'm only gonna be here for about another year, and I don't know what the next office of the Vice President's gonna wanna do. So, basically punted on that, and, and truthfully, nothing has happened as a result. Uh, I thought another incredibly good recommendation of this panel was the fact that you were requesting a congressional biodefense working group. Um, great idea. That's what we need to do. It needs to be bicameral. We, we, need to, we need to figure out a way to provide that type of leadership, put somebody in charge. We didn't get it. Just to convey the dysfunction, we, we did get, in the Budget Act passed in February 2018, way too late, uh, we did get two special select committees, one on the budget process, which is good. I mean, that's completely broken. We got another one on multi-employer pension plans, but nothing on biodefense working group. Again, what are the main threats? I, I would think biodefense working group would be the more important one, completely ignored. And then, if you want, really want to understand dysfunction, the omnibus. Um, was introduced on March 21st, passed on March 22nd. If you want to see how completely broken our budget process is. So, again, why am I not optimistic? Um, go back to these, you know, $21 trillion in debt. We've known about this for decades. Lindsey Graham says this isn't a fast-moving train, it's a slow-moving bus, and we're not doing nothing to get out of the way. Um, from, from my standpoint, you take a look at drones, for example. Uh, I mentioned the, the military threat posed by ISIS, but now you have crop dusting drones. They, they can be directed to a point using GPS. They could deliver a bio threat very effectively. We've had a couple going to, for example, stadiums, and we have no way of countering it. So I commend you for what you've done, for all your work, but the truth is, you testified before our committee in October 2015. Great hearing, laying, laying the problems out. We, we passed, through my committee, in July of 2016, the Biodefense Strategy Act 2016. That language is largely included in December 2016's National Defense Authorization Act 2017. But it calls for a report, it calls for a strategy. We have no report, we have no strategy. So the bottom line from you know, what, what I'm trying to convey here is as important as leadership and putting somebody in charge is, the first priority is the public awareness. And Governor Ridge, when I was listening to your opening, you, you, you said drive consciousness. That's the first thing. We have to make the public aware of how serious not only this threat, but all these threats are. But, but we'll focus on the bio threat. And so that is the, again, why I'm so appreciative of what you are doing, your dedication to your effort, to this effort, is so incredibly important because we have to have the public awareness to create the public pressure to put 
pressure on the political system, the executive branch, Congress, to structurally reform our budget and our appropriation process to do all the things you've laid out. You've given us the game plan. You've basically written the legislation for us. We just need to be aware of it, and we have to have put pressure on us to implement all this. So again, I'm happy to work with you. I want to continue to work with you. But the first point, part really is the, the public consciousness, the public awareness, the public pressure, so we can finally put somebody in charge and, and create a process that will actually work. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator. So Senator Casey of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, my senator, is the ranking member of subcommittees of the Senate Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition and Forestry, Finance and Health, Education, Labor and Pensions. He's also co-chair of the Senate WMD Caucus. He too has been very supportive of our panel's efforts and met with us personally to talk about our concerns. Senator Casey, thank you for being with us and the floor is yours. Thank you, Senator Johnson. <laughs> uh, Jim Greenwood, thank you for uh, your introduction and for the work that you've done. Uh, everything you said about the House and the Senate is true. I'll stay with that. I'll just pander to the House members while I'm here, especially because I have my governor here who I have to always remind myself. Two, two voters right now. <laughs> still, he'll always be governor even though he served honorably as secretary, but we're grateful for all the work that's been done by um, both senators, every member of this panel, and how critical the work is that you've um, already done. Senator Johnson's um, observations about the many frustrations that we all feel about the process, and uh, grateful for his um, focus on those challenges. I have some I've prepared remarks that I'll try to get through as quickly as possible. I want to try to be responsive to the the focus on large-scale biological events and the impact on business, finance, and the economy. We all have either asked the question or it's asked of us, uh, what keeps you up at night? I think the panel and those who are here who have worked on this longer than I have know the answer to that. Part of the answer, of course, is to what keeps you up at night is a large-scale pandemic, whether caused by a strain of uh, pandemic influenza. Uh, second, of course, uh, and not in any rank order, would be an engineered bioweapon. Third, an infectious disease that nobody has seen before. We know that we are generally better prepared um, than we were before, but I still think we lag behind in our preparedness for a biological threat. As always, resources are limited, and there are competing priorities. Senator Johnson outlined some of those. Um, but to be most effective and to be most efficient, it's in the best interest of both the public and private sectors to work together. And I think, of course, that applies to both parties, both houses. One of my goals in reauthorizing the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act, as we refer to as PAPA, um, the 2013 legislation, when we were working on the reauthorization, we wanted to make sure that the federal government is able to develop effective relationships with the private sector to advance biodefense. I was proud to work with on the Health Committee, Chairman Alexander, Ranking Member Murray, and of course, Senator Richard Burr, uh, with whom I've worked for years on both the 2013 bill and the 2018 bill. I want to thank Richard for his years and years of laboring in this vineyard, so to speak, 
Uh, few members of Congress, if any, have done more, and I'm grateful to be working with them. One of the priorities, of course, in that uh, reauthorization was to advance innovation and preparedness and response, which is why we refer to the bill as a pandemic and all hazards preparedness and advancing innovation act. So now we have a new acronym and, of course, a new way to pronounce the acronym. Believe it or not, it's Popeye. I'll try not to say that too often. Only in Washington, right, John? Could we, uh, Ron, we could say that, say that uh, with a straight face. Okay, we'll try not to use it too much. But in reauthorizing, um, in, I should say in addition to reauthorizing a number of critical programs for public health emergency preparedness and response, this legislation contains new initiatives to improve our biodefense capabilities, including those that strengthen public-private partnerships to improve our disease detection, uh, our hospitals, and our medical countermeasure uh, enterprise. Just a couple of examples. If you ask the question, why aren't we prepared for a pandemic, if someone were to ask that? Uh, the first example would be looking at the swine flu outbreak of 2009. Our disease-detecting networks were indeed caught off guard. The, the viral strain, which with the potential to cause a pandemic, was circulating for months, months before we realized it, and we were able to begin ramping up the production of vaccine. So while we were drafting uh, Popeye, we thought about how to detect a biological event, realizing that when a pandemic begins, it will begin at the doors of our hospitals and healthcare centers, many of which are private entities. These private entities will have to choose to share information about the symptoms their healthcare providers are seeing and the diagnoses they are making, uh, of course, sharing that with state and federal partners. In many cases, they hold the information that the federal government needs to protect the nation. So we build on the work of the 21st Century Cures Act uh, and uh, this legislation created a process for HHS to work together with private stakeholders like hospitals and healthcare entities to determine goals for these disease detection systems and define standards for data collection and sharing that will allow us, uh, will allow the systems to function. Here's another example, another gap in preparedness, the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014. Like an increasing number of sectors and households in the era of one-touch ordering and next-day delivery, this nation's hospital system operates on a just-in-time economy basis. Many hospitals function at or near capacity at all times. They purchase the medical supplies they need using just-in-time supply chains. This compromises their ability to handle a surge of patients that would come during uh, an out a pandemic. The original assumption during the Ebola outbreak and thus the direction given, in, given out in the early days was that every hospital, every hospital, should be able to treat an Ebola patient. This led to a run on the private sector stocks of personal protective equipment, uh, gloves and other medical supplies. This direction was later revised to reflect the fact that not all hospitals and not our, all health facilities have or need to have the same capabilities. Indeed, hospitals and healthcare facilities 
could be sorted into tiers, whereby all, all of them, must be prepared to identify and isolate potential patients, uh, and a few could serve as highly specialized Ebola treatment centers to provide care to these patients. This is exactly what we need to build on going forward. So the, the new legislation authorizes the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, we know as ASPR, uh, to develop these regional systems, regional systems, to direct uh, indirect partnership with private sector partners and provides funding for demonstration projects to test the capacity of the systems. These regional systems will help ensure that communities and their healthcare infrastructure are prepared for a range of public health threats. This Blue Ribbon Study Panel's leadership was more than just beneficial. It was essential as to how the federal government should create such a system. And I, I know we're going to be talking in the question and answer period about how to highlight some of the work going on, especially in states like Pennsylvania. Thirdly, the original uh, so-called PAPA legislation created arguably one of the most successful series of public-private partnerships through its creation of BARDA, the Biomedical uh, Advanced Research and Development Agency. HHS and BARDA partner with large and small companies like, for example, uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania's own AuraSure Technologies, which developed a handheld point-of-care Ebola diagnostic that was sent to West Africa in 2014 and to the Democratic Republic of Congo this past spring. By all accounts, it still takes too long to produce a vaccine or therapeutic. We need the process to take months instead of years. So the new legislation, in that new legislation, we tried to address this in a couple ways. First, we author, authorizing over five years funding for Project BioShield in a way that allows appropriators to give funding in advance. This commitment signals that these partnerships are important to the federal government and gives industry the incentive to dedicate their time and their resources to developing the products we need for biodefense. Second, we explicitly gave BARDA the authority to address uh, priority, naturally occurring, or man-made threats like uh, pandemic influenza or other emerging infectious diseases. Uh, we also permitted investments in medical response and treatment capabilities in manufacturing infrastructure to begin to reduce the time it takes to produce large quantities of vaccines or therapeutics. In closing, I'd like to say that both uh, our government and our private sector bring something to the table, obviously, a lot to the table. They need to be equal partners and both shoulder responsibility for biodefense. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Senator. Um, you referenced the I in Popeye standing for innovation. I run bio and the I in bio stands for innovation. And a number of our companies are very good at making, uh, devising medical countermeasures. Um, but it's a risky business. First off, it's just very difficult to do scientifically. Um, but unlike most of the other products that our companies make, only the government's going to be the, the, uh, the purchaser of those. And so they need certain assurances that, we, that they know what the government wants and that the government will, in fact, 
acquire it and pay for it when, it, when it's developed. So I wonder if, if, if either or both of you could expand a little bit on what um, changes you think need to be, to be made in federal programs to increase the incentive for innovation in the private sector. First of all, I think, and this is happening right now, is FDA reform. Um, you know, we passed right to try, which is, gives a little more freedom, a little more hope to terminally ill patients, but it, it hopefully will also prompt the FDA to increase or decrease the time of approval on drugs. Uh, you know, nobody wants more thalidomide babies, but at the same time, uh, you can't have the FDB, FDA be that risk averse. Um, I think the federal government, particularly in these situations where you have to stockpile drugs, we're not talking billions of dollars here. You know, we're talking millions. And it's something, you know, the drugs are going to have to be kept and turned over and, you know, because they will, they will expire, that type of thing. But th this ought to be, again, with proper attention when people realize the priority of it, uh, we have to focus on this. And the government, this, who else can do it? You know, literally, who else can do, you know, that kind of inventorying, make that kind of investment? There is no private sector incentive for doing it. So the government has to lead. And, you know, we also have to be a little careful in terms of our, our litigious society as well. I mean, we were coming very close to not having any uh, companies that would produce vaccines because of all the lawsuits. So we need to provide some kind of liability protection, which is what we're doing with the right to try. We have to focus it um, properly, but pri provide some liability protection, pr provide the funding for the private sector to actually stockpile the, the needed drugs. The only thing I'd add is, um, one major challenge we had is just in terms of one of the um, the basic programs that was created years ago, the Hospital Preparedness Program, what we're trying to do is to make sure not only have uh, new and continuing authorization, but also funding. And we know that, that that program, for example, hasn't been funded nearly at the level it should be. It's been cut dramatically over time. I would argue that that's <coughs> critically important, that we not only extend uh, programs that are working that will foster innovation, but also that we have the funding. We had a, a, a real challenge in Pennsylvania uh, because of lack of funding for that, what I think is a very effective hospital preparedness program. So we're trying to deal with that as we, as we move forward. Thank you. Questions from other members of the panel? Senator Dashwood. Well, let me first just thank both of you for your leadership in this area. We have a lot of supporters, but we have few champions. And both of you, on a bipartisan basis, have been champions. And for that, uh, I think we can all say we're very, very grateful. Uh, Chairman Johnson, one of our recommendations uh, was that we needed a century-worthy environmental detection system. And that detection system has largely been left to the Department of Homeland Security, as you well know. You requested the GAO to look at our detection system and the BioWatch program uh, in 2015, and they came back with a report that basically said it's not working. Uh, we, don't, we really don't know uh, much about just how capable they could be, but they are, are, are not uh, effective, and they uh, they really haven't come up with any real requirements, uh, that, that is the DHS, has not come up with the requirements for BioWatch in a way that effectively allows us the confidence 
uh, about uh, an environmental detection system. Because you've spent the kind of time and effort on BioWatch, give us your thoughts on where we go from here. How can we make something like BioWatch more effective? You know, first of all, we have to have realistic expectations. Um, you know, we're Americans. We watch movies, and you know, the, the the hero comes in and you know has a the, the machine of the gods to solve every type of problem. So, you know, conceptually, it'd be really nice to think that you can you know, set up detectors and they can detect every type of threat, and it would actually work. So, I I, I would first say that this is an incredibly difficult problem. Uh, slightly off subject, but you know, one of the things I found out is that there's no machinery that can beat the nose of a dog when it comes to, you know, bomb detection, when, you know, for, security, for airport security or drug detection. So we have to be very realistic in terms of what is the challenge faced in detecting these things. Then I think we need, through intelligence gathering combined with, you know, somebody in charge, understand what are the specific threats. Because, again, I don't think you're going to be able to have one detector detect all these things. You're going to have to try and be more focused based on combination of intelligence gathering and the, and the particular threat that you're, you're trying to uh, determine and get the technology for it. But again, I, I think it's incredibly difficult, and I, I would first say a first line of defense would be uh, the intelligence gathering to prevent the attack to begin with, and then secondly, make sure that where we do know, for example, anthrax. Uh, you're at the forefront of that in terms of the, the letters sent to, to the Hart Senate building. Make sure that we have the, the antibiotics that can actually cure it, you know, that they haven't expired, that they're stored somewhere that can be very efficiently allocated. So, again, it makes, it would be nice if we can detect these things as sort of, the, like say, the machine of the gods here, but I think it's incredibly difficult, and I think it's one of the reasons that it hasn't worked so far. Thank you. I, we want to be respectful of your time, and we know you have busy schedules. We really appreciate your, your coming uh, across town to, to be with us this morning. So I'll limit myself to one question to each of you. But Bob, you spoke so powerfully and eloquently just now about the importance of coordination uh, between the public and the private sectors and, and among governmental levels. One of the areas we're going to be spending some time in the next few months working on is the degree to which we aren't working in a, in a coordinated way with, with, uh, with local governments and with tribes and with territories, and that we've got to come up with a more coordinated and, 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 and calibrated way of addressing that. That's especially true for hospitals and the need for stratification among hospitals as we respond to crises. Could you talk a little bit more about the importance of that coordination and what, uh, as you've examined all this through the Popeye legislation especially, how coordination plays? Yeah, first and foremost, I think it's essential, and we're seeing it in these, um, some of the examples I've pointed to, you could point to others as well. Governor Ridge knows, I was looking at, brought a, a map, this is kind of a map of our state, and in the, the, um, the regions of our state and, and the kind of the healthcare uh, infrastructure that's available. Lately, what's happened is that uh, Pennsylvania's tried to do a kind of hub and spoke um, system, so we have now Within those regions, we've got eight uh, hubs, and the governor knows the map pretty well, but to, to make sure that wherever there's, um, wherever there's detection, wherever there's a, a realization of a, a problem, you may not have the treatment capacity in every, every region, but here it indicates where uh, someone from, Governor Ridge is from Erie up here, 
if something happened there and you wanted to get them, they'd be able to get to Pittsburgh uh, within, you know, within a range of about two hours. This, I think, is um, where we have to get to in terms of having the uh, having the, both the capacity as well as the uh, the response uh, within a state that is broad geographically and has uh, healthcare assets everywhere, but but uh, has has them. Uh, Disperse. So I think if we can, we can replicate that. Uh, what what some call stratification, others would call regional. Uh, I think that's going to be critical to making sure that we have the uh, the capacity in one region uh, and the the system in place where everyone knows where the assets are. Everyone knows how to get an individual or community to the help that they need. We're hoping that this new bill can get us to that in every state, not just a few that are uh, that are trying. Well, thank you both. Jim? Other questions from the panel? Joe? Uh, thanks, Jim. Uh, thanks to both of you. I mean, I, I, I embrace uh, my leader's comments that you're not just active in this field, you're champions, and this is a field that needs champions. So I appreciate it a lot. I appreciate that you're here this morning. I think in fairness, I, I should thank Senator McConnell for keeping the Senate in session in <laughs> August, so that uh, you were here to be able to come. Um, uh, Chairman Johnson, uh, I, I appreciate that Senator Dash asked you the questions about um, BioWatch and your answers to them. This is really an urgent problem and you're on top of it, so I thank you for that. I wanted to go to something a little bit different since that was covered, which is I know that you introduced legislation on something you talked about in your remarks that would uh, allow uh, federal authorities to intercept drones that might pose a threat, uh, particularly to mass gatherings. Um, do you, have you thought about how this uh, bill of yours might help law enforcement to prevent biological attacks at, at these kinds of events, such as the Super Bowl or a big concert or whatever? I mean, the, the concern there is, again, we have these drones that the technology is unbelievable now. Right. Uh, we were over in China, visited, I think it's DJI, you know, the, the main uh, provider of these, and it is unbelievable. You know, the control, the GPS directed, uh, I, I think it's 10 gallons is the maximum payload now. I could be wrong on that, but or, or 10 pounds. But that's, that's a lot of chemicals. Right. And so the threat from a standpoint of biologics is now you have a delivery system and you know we've seen these you know, displays in the Olympics where you have these massive uh, drone uh, extravaganzas. Basically, I mean, th think about yeah. that. You know, massing those around an airport or with uh, any kind of biological chemical agent in, in terms of a large gathering of individuals. So, what's frustrating to me is a couple. Uh, Years ago, in the NDAA, Department of Defense and Department of Energy were, were given the authority to start analyzing how we can counter the drone attack. Okay, I mean, I just would have assumed. I think most people assume that law enforcement has a capability. If there's a drone, for example, threatening a stadium, somebody can take take it out of the sky. Nobody has that authority. The sticking point in terms of passing it was a waiver of liability under uh, Title 18, you know, criminal criminal law. Uh, we couldn't get the jurisdictional disputes solved. Uh, some committees didn't want to provide the complete waiver as had been given to Department of Defense and Department of Energy. So again, that's, that just shows that d dysfunction. To me, it's just obvious. If you're going to give grant waiver to, 
two departments and we need a whole government approach and we're going to give that authority to, for example, Secret Service and Department of Justice and, and uh, you know, CBP, they ought to have the exact same type of law, but we're not there yet. Um, so, no, this, this is an incredibly, incredibly dangerous threat. It's growing. It's becoming more and more sophisticated. And again, the, the reason I'm not an optimist, to me, this is just so, this is such a no-brainer. Should have been included in the NDA, not a problem, just move forward. And we haven't done it. I, I, I don't, uh, I, I know you won't give up, but don't give up. Incidentally, hearing the, the two of you, um, uh, there's just, what you're saying is so um, commonsensical and not, uh, and so much in, our, in the interest of our national security and health that, um, I know this is a broken record, but if there's anything there ought to be nonpartisan support for in uh, Congress, it's the legislation the two of you are working with. I hope you'll work with each other to uh, uh, build that uh, kind of backing. Uh, uh, Senator Casey, thanks so much. I'm really, uh, I really appreciate your involvement in this. Um, I wanted to ask you, I know that uh, Jim Greenwood asked you about the uh, basic um, um, re reality of the, the fact that it's hard for the pharmaceutical companies to invest the money and effort into finding, for instance, the universal flu vaccine because the government ultimately is the only customer. Uh, and I, I really appreciate that you added innovation to the pandemic and all hazards preparedness legislation. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk in a little more detail about how that legislation would would incentivize uh, uh, the pharmaceutical industry to get involved in this area, but also if you have any thoughts about how uh, Project BioShield uh, can be improved to incentivize the same kind of behavior in the private sector. Thank you, Senator. Part of this is <clears throat> what we do with the so-called Special Reserve Fund. Um, part of the challenge there has been, and this is often a disconnect, the, the difference between authorization and appropriation. Um, and just let me get some numbers here. In 2013, this um, Special Reserve Fund at BARDA um, has a, a funding level of 2.8 billion for uh, or had, I should say, 2.8 billion for the 2014 to 2018 period. What we're trying to do with the new bill is to get that number up, still, in this case, still a five-year number, an authorization number of three and a half billion. But there will be challenges to, to try to get advanced appropriations, which used to be a little bit easier of a lift. I think that helps on the, um, the innovation side when you consider, you know, private, um, uh, the private sector. And um, Chairman Johnson outlined many of the challenges to getting um, things done these days, but I think one way to do that is, uh, one way to get, get um, foster that innovation is to make sure that we can have some advanced funding so there can be a reliance and a predictability or even a certainty that that funding will be there at a certain level for at least five years. I agree, thank you. Uh, I want to say to both of you that, um, you know, when Tom Ridge and I started on this, we said we don't want this to just be another report that uh, gets put on a shelf. We want to be active in following up and on what, what we conclude, and uh, we do. And so I want to really invite the two of you to let us know at any point where we as an independent, nonpartisan group um, 
can express an, an opinion in support of something you're trying to do. And uh, either to the members of, of the committee where it is, or the uh, people on the floor, or the leadership, or the administration. Because honestly, um, we, we're a, we, we, you get this. <laughs> and uh, you're, you're, you're in the arena. <laughs> Uh, and we have an obligation to try to help you succeed, so thank you. If I can just suggest, as we did you know, a couple of years ago with yeah. Vice President Biden, we should try and do the same thing. Set it up with Secretary Nielsen, Vice President Pence, and let's raise this. Again, you bring an awful lot of credibility, which is why I'm so supportive of your efforts here. So let's, let's establish that meeting. I'm happy to attend, you know, uh, Senator Casey as well. But we, we need to raise this profile. We have to get in front of that audience. Uh, again, they're... There's so many other distractions. Right. You know, there's so many other things we're dealing with, uh, and that's why this thing gets put off to the side. But uh, let's let's raise the profile. That's what you're doing here, and I'm happy to help set up any meetings and facilitate as long as you're you know, well, willing that, to participate. Well, that would be great. I mean, tell you that you won't be surprised to hear that that meeting uh, with Vice President Biden was set up by Senator Carper, your predecessor, obviously from Delaware, a long time. So I actually think you you would have more success. <laughs> Uh, then I just need you to attend. Okay? Oh, I, I need you to attend. Oh, so we'll be as, there. as long as we set, so we'll set it up. Yeah, okay? that, that would be great, Ron. Thank you. Th me, thanks, let, Jim. Let me just add. I, I do want to reiterate the thanks we have for the work that's been done by this panel, um, and I do think you've been able to make it a uh, a living effort, not not just a report that uh, is completed and then put on a shelf. And I'd add to what Chairman Johnson said, this, these issues have to have a sense of urgency underneath them. Sometimes that urgency cannot be conveyed between and among members of Congress, just because of all the, uh, all the impediments to, to, to um, uh, articulating that urgency and, and carrying it forward. Sometimes it's folks that have standing and credibility and experience, and in this case, subject matter expertise, that can bring that sense of urgency both to leadership and to members. So um, I have no doubt that, that um, your engagement, either at a meeting like uh, Senator Johnson described or otherwise, can bring that focus and that sense of urgency. So we'd, be, uh, we'd all benefit from that. Great. Thank you. Agreed. Governor Ridge for question. Thank you, Jim. Uh, for the benefit of those who were kind enough to join us today, uh, when we put out the National Blueprint for Biodefense, in order to create a sense of urgency with Congress, uh, we created a scenario where the, an aerosol can was used in Washington, D.C. with a virus that had been mutated. It killed 9,000 people, and it's a real live, it's a scenario. It's, it's, uh, it's, really a what if built on real capabilities. And because Congress, and I say this as a former member and a proud member of the House of Representatives, democracy in Congress, Congress particularly is reactive rather than preemptive, which I think in the 21st century, some point in time, we're gonna have to change that mindset. Somebody's gonna have to have to take the leadership to say in anticipation of this, we do such and such. But as a result of that, incident, uh, there's a joint inquiry into the administration and the Congressional's actions before it occurred. And the scenario goes like this. 
The terrorists were successful because the government, including Congress, failed. They took advantage of our failure to achieve early environmental detection of the agent. By the way, we've been dealing with BioShield since I was secretary. It's 15 years old. GAO says it's a lousy system. It doesn't do a damn thing, and they're still using it. Does that require congressional action or somebody to put pressure on DHS? Failure to quickly recognize its occurrence in livestock. We still know that there's a separation between human and, and uh, agricultural and livestock diseases. Uh, we made recommendations to do it. Fat failure to rapidly diagnose the disease caused in such patients. The list goes on and on. So I guess the point I'm asking is, from your perspective, you gentlemen have served your constituents in this country extremely well. And this is somewhat self-serving, but I remember as a minority member in the Congress of the United States, when three tornadoes bounced around my district, FEMA was the second disaster, and as a minority member, I was able to work with a Democrat chairman on multiple committees because we did the research, we laid out a blueprint, and we changed FEMA. We've done the research. It's not like you have to have a ton of congressional hearings. It's not as if it is a political document that we've created in front of Congress. We've got people on both sides of the aisle. We've got academic community, we've got the healthcare community, we've got everybody that says, this is a good deal. And by the way, if you're a Republican and you're not worried about, you don't want to spend more money and a $4 trillion, okay, we don't ask for more money. So somebody has to explain to me, and it's not you, but somebody has to explain to me, when this group does the work, when we make recommendations to the Congress of the United States that doesn't require them to spend very little new money, but we want to redirect the leadership, we want to bring substantive reforms, we want to set priorities, we want a unified budget, we want to do it. Do we have a problem with jurisdiction? I mean, is it, is it committees of jurisdiction? People, are people more interested in protecting their turf on the Hill than they are about a broad, comprehensive reform that's apolitical in nature? The research has been done. I guess just from your perspective, what's the biggest impediment to us accelerating this process? And I, I'm sorry, but I just, it's, just, it's just amazing to me. The threat is real. Everybody who's associated with this threat knows it's real. Yeah. No, I, I think you're speaking for a lot of Americans when you say that, Governor. Um, first thing is, I think with regard to this new bill, we're, we've got it through our committee. We can get it through the Senate soon. Um, I don't know the exact date of that. I was hoping it was by the end of this month, but the month we're in. Uh, but I think that can get done. I think the House can. So we can, we can get this done this fall, I think, get it signed into law. But the larger question is, and I know it doesn't just come down to this one bill, but the larger question is um, probably symptomatic. Or the, the, the symptoms are, are right in front of us. You have a place, at least in the Senate, where um, there isn't the kind of collaboration there used to be. Frankly, people are gone on Thursday through the weekend. That's a, a reality. Um, and frankly, elections and campaigns are making a lot of things worse, in my judgment. Um, that's obviously systemic, but um, I, I think it has all the, the inability to be preemptive where we can um, is um, hobbled by by how we operate, how we yeah. how we live, how we run campaigns. Yeah, I mean, that's my gut. Just yeah. the, the the reality of it. But every once in a while, <clears throat> you can get 
uh, and I think there have been instances even this year where you can get both sides to, uh, to, to work together, but also to have an appropriate sense of urgency. Um, but, I, but I think, obviously, Ron feels some of the same frustration that I do. Yeah, thank you, Tyler. I think my entire Jeremy. opening statement was trying to lay out the dysfunction yep. and, and why this doesn't work very well. Uh, by the way, I, I meant to mention your scenario, which I think was excellent. Uh, another skill we don't have in Congress is, is a marketing ability, and that's exactly how you have to gain, gain the public's attention is have them take a look at this. You know, when, when we were addressing EMP, for example, we had Ted Koppel come in. Uh, and with his Lights Out book, which if people would read that, they would want us to do something about EMP. So again, it's, it's about raising the consciousness. And I'll tell you what has worked. For example, on the drones, we've overcome all the jurisdictional problems in the Senate because I would go to fellow senators and say, I don't think you want to be the person that when a drone attack hits and, people, and the public say, well, why haven't you done something? Well, it's, it's because that person right there is claiming jurisdiction and wouldn't give the liability or the waiver on Title 18. So putting a little fear of the Lord into people, I think, is somewhat helpful. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we are very reactive. The good news about being reactive, I mean, we've talked about Ebola. Uh, you know, the world did not respond rapidly, but we learned some lessons. The, yeah. the avian flu that came, came about, you know, we weren't prepared for that. The, the, the labs are too far away. The decision-making was too diffuse. You know, we weren't destroying the flocks as quickly as we should have, but we learned from that. You know, we, we saw that breakdown between USDA and, and DHS. So we're all human beings. You know, we all procrastinate. We're not as proactive as we need to be. But I'll go back to my main point, and again, my, the main appreciation I have for this panel is you are highlighting this. You're, you're not giving up on it. Uh, please don't give up on it. I mean, EMP, again, started in 2001, and we still don't have the strategy. And as much as I appreciate, because I passed similar legislation to Bob's, you know, legislation that calls on Congress or the administration to do a strategy, and then they don't do it. Yeah. So I don't know how to light the fire under people other than, again, I think it is you don't want to be the Congress, the chairman, the senator, the, the, the House member that held up the reforms we needed to be able to address this threat that we all know about. So again, I, I think it's it, it's the yeah. motivation of fear. But well, it's, listen, it's, I, it's I, again, again, if it's laying out that scenario, the public, and you don't want to gratuitously frighten people, but we got to grab their attention, and that's well, what you're trying to do. I appreciate that I'm not trying to put my friends and colleagues on the spot. You're candid of your answer, and we will take you up on uh, trying to arrange that meeting with the Vice President, and hopefully, uh, Senator Casey, you can be there as well, because it is bipartisan rate political nature, but we somehow we got to move this process along. We thank you for your being champions of reform. Thank you both. Ken, question? Sure, thank you. And thank you for your remarks. They were very illuminating. I'd like to follow up on Governor Ridge's question about um, sort of how can, how can we shake things up and get us out of the status quo, which just is unacceptable right now. And, um, you know, one thing we've talked a lot about in our reports and our sessions and the thing that I'm, I'm most concerned about is the fragmented effort in the executive branch. You know, we've got sort of siloed responsibilities with a variety of different agencies and departments, all of whom have an important role to play in this effort. Just by nature of the sort of the, the broad scope of the threat, it covers many different areas of jurisdiction within the executive branch, but there's sort of, there's zero accountability and zero, well, not zero, but insufficient coordination among those entities. 
Then you can go look over at Congress in terms of the oversight function, and obviously Congress plays a very important oversight function over the executive branch's effectiveness in this area. And a number of us here have been involved in sort of talking about how to, to streamline the oversight function for DHS, which has some hundred different committees of uh, jurisdiction that have oversight over it. Um, and that same issue obviously applies to oversight for this particular issue. And look, I'm an old executive branch guy. I mean, you know, congressional oversight was not something I woke up every morning and said, boy, I'd like to have some oversight today. But it was sort of like, you know, like medicine. Didn't like it going down, but it made me better in the long run. And so I guess this is a, a long way of teeing up the question. Do you have thoughts about sort of how Congress can try to get more effective oversight to push on the executive branch? And this is not a question about this particular administration or the last administration or the one before that that I was a part of, but just the need to have congressional focus and push to get the executive branch to do what so far it has not been able to do on its own. So I, I hate to keep whining, but, but I, have the, I have the real world example here. You know, we, we passed through my committee, and, and by the way, because of Chairman Lieberman's uh, excellent example, the Ho Homeland Security Government Affairs Committee is a very nonpartisan committee. We get a lot of stuff done. Under Obama, Republican chairman, we, we passed and got signed a law, 50 pieces of legislation. Well, this year we really focused on authorizing DHS. It's, it's, you know, since the original bill, it's never been authorized. And, and authorizations are helpful because you can keep updating it. So with a very diverse group of people, but focused on that problem, we were able to pass a DHS authorization through our committee. You know, the things of our jurisdiction. A lot of the DHS under the House committee, they have full jurisdiction or they got a memorandum of understanding. It's so diffuse. It is over 100 committees have different levels of jurisdiction. But we just focused on the areas of agreement. Uh, we didn't have any corrosive amendments. And part of that was literally to set up a commission. It's about as, as good as we could do a commission to look at the all the committees that have jurisdiction over DHS to try and solidify that so we could streamline that. We can't get a time agreement to pass the DHS authorization, which passed only Rand Paul voted against it. I'm not sure why, but otherwise it was completely nonpartisan. We can't get that on the floor because if we bring it up, you know what's going to be, you know, now it's going to be wall funding or it's going to be, you know, elim you know eliminate ICE. Again, all the immigration, we need to fix the dreamers on that. Rather than focus on one problem, it just becomes divisive. And that's why I said in, my, you know, in politics, people exploit division as opposed to concentrate on areas of agreement. So the way we get it done is we tenaciously have to pursue the areas of agreement. And I would first focus on shared goals and purposes. You know, doesn't every American want a safe and a secure and a prosperous America? We share that goal, concentrate on that. that. That's how we've been able to move a piece of legislation through our committee and just in some way, shape, or form discipline those that bring in the corrosive, bring in the, the divisiveness and distract us from these shared purposes. Because this is so obvious, we have to address this. But anyway, I'm just giving you the, the real world example in terms of how it all breaks down. I hope that <clears throat> this year um, we're, we are reaching a point where we may have more appropriation bills done than, than a good while. Um, that's one way to to have a more orderly appropriations process, but also to create space for more oversight. Um, but I do think it gets back to the basic um, problem we just have been outlining here, which is um, the way the the way the place operates, and it goes back a long ways. 
And uh, at some point in time when, at least in the Senate, when you, you didn't have a, you weren't getting appropriation bills done uh, uh, on a regular basis, and you didn't have as much of an open amendment process or none, sometimes none at all, people look, senators tend to look for other ways to get their point across <laughs> instead of the traditional way, which was, I bet Senator Daschle remembers not too long ago, and Senator Lieberman would remember, where you could, you could walk on the Senate floor and start drafting an amendment. You could have it considered, in, if not in real time, soon, soon after you, you drafted it. That's virtually impossible today in a place that's supposed to be a deliber deliberative body. And I'm not saying it's just about one party and, and one uh, more recent. Th this has been the corrosive undermining of the, of the, uh, the institution that's happened over years. Um, but this year we actually might be able to make more progress, at least on the consideration of a series of appropriation bills in ways that hasn't happened in a while. Thank you, Senator. We just have a couple of minutes, but is any of the questions from any of the ex officio members? Ms. Levinson. Thank you. Yes, um, Senator Johnson and Senator Casey, I, I want to thank you for your remarks, uh, and especially the fact that they were so realistic and uh, well-informed in, in terms of the challenges that this panel is trying to address. Um, and I hope that the time is right to look at the solutions and, and uh, focus on those that will incentivize innovation. I want to reiterate two comments that you've made that I thought were particularly important. One was the point, um, Senator Johnson, that you made about FDA and that we don't want an FDA that is overly risk averse. Um, it does not have the capability to exactly incentivize innovation, um, but it can prevent hindering that innovation. And with respect to BioWatch, I would go so far as to say that it is negligent to ignore the advances in science and technology that have taken place since the first iteration of BioWatch was put in place, and that we have not moved significantly forward on correcting those. So to the extent that either of you have the opportunity to address those particular challenges, we would certainly encourage that you do so. You need not respond unless you like. Uh, Dr. Alexander has a question, I think. I, I, would, I would just suggest if you have that information on advanced technologies, contact our committee. Uh, <clears throat> Senator Johnson, if I may uh, ask you a question about your uh, comment that there is a need for public awareness. And... Um, Back, I think, in June uh, this year, there was a report about a woman in Wisconsin who tried to provide instruction for building WMDs, specifically ricin, and she was arrested. Uh, my question to you is, uh, is there anything that in Wisconsin, let's say locally, being done to deal with the internet or Facebook uh, to make sure that this kind of instruction is not communicated? You know, unfortunately, ISIS is putting out the playbook on all kinds, you know, whether it's bomb making, whether it's, you know, how to take down an airplane, use of drones, that type of thing. You know, the Internet's a wonderful invention. It uh, is opening up the world and creating all kinds of opportunities, but it's also creating all kinds of dangers. It, it, it is a real issue. 
Um, again, that's why I keep going back to effective intelligence gathering. We, we need to try and cut these, you know, this off at the source. But we live in a brave new world, and there's there's an awful lot of threats, and we need to focus on those. And that's what we're, again, when we when we deal with all this other nonsense, we're not focusing on the main problem. Last question for the senators from Dr. Post. Gentlemen, thank you. Um, two comments in relation to the issues which have come up. Uh, the first in relation to drones, notwithstanding the uh, Title 18 issues. At risk of stating the obvious, the problem is by definition forbiddable, but there are two challenges. Uh, to jam a drone is feasible now, uh, but we have to have a drone which can land. We cannot destroy it because if it is carrying a biological payload, certainly anthrax, anthrax spores can survive an ordnance explosion. So the technology has to be such that the interception of any drone has actually got to bring it to the ground without the release of its payload. The second issue is to reinforce what uh, Rachel Levinson just said, that sort of the GAO report on uh, BioWatch was essentially written by the Defense Science Board back in 2002, and we've persisted with this nonsensical program now for 16 years trying to do wider area sampling, which is, was deemed to be unfeasible. It may have been a salve to, to the public that something was being done, but the billions which have now gone into this is a travesty. But my point is to reinforce what Rachel said, that there is now technology that permits literally every serious pathogen to be detected at point of care and point of need with handheld devices if the appropriate uh, will was there to put it in place. And just one additional comment, and that is the fact that although we tend to talk about viruses, the whole issue now of extending the antibiotic resistance problem is such that with so-called cholestine-resistant organisms now beginning to circulate in the globe, whether in the hands of terrorists or Mother Nature, we've got to also extend our capabilities to these sorts of organisms. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you, Senator Johnson. Senator Casey, thank you for being generous with your time this morning. Thank you for all the work you're doing on this subject, and thank you for your service to our nation. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thanks for your doing. The panel. Thank you. Look forward to working with you. Thanks. And uh, for the audience, um, we're going to take a 15-minute break, which will avail all of us opportunity to go to the back of the room and get some lunch. And please be seated uh, promptly at 11.45.
I almost had it. I never it. had it when I was there, so I had to come to the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> I was recently in Vietnam. All right, ladies and gentlemen, may we have your attention. Thank you. We uh, are very pleased to have with us uh, today uh, Mr. Peter Dashak, who's the president of Eco Health Alliance, and he's going to uh, uh, share his thoughts with us on the topic of preventing disaster, return on investment in pandemic prevention. Uh, Dr. Bat Dashak, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me here, and thank you to the distinguished panel for this invitation, for the brilliant work that you do, and for pursuing this issue doggedly over the years. It is, I agree, one of the major threats, existential threats, not just to our nation, but to the planet. Um, and, and our species. So I think what you're doing is needs to be done, and history will look back and, and uh, I think admire your leadership and look at the changes that are actually happening and will continue to happen. So I've, I've prepared some um, images to go with my talk. If you try and skim through those as I go through. Um, and I think the ex officio members also have um, a couple of these to look at. I want to start by saying um, Governor Ridge's comment this morning was absolutely correct. Mother Nature um, is the biggest threat. Um, we, we, um, we worry about bioterrorism, we worry about um, the, the uh, terrorist attacks. But our group has been able to, over the last few years, calculate um, in a very difficult and, and complex scientific study the number of, the likely number of viruses. Um, in mammals around the world. As we know, we heard this morning that mammals and, and water birds carry viruses that threaten our, um, our health. Emerging infectious diseases tend to be viruses, tend to originate in those species. We've been able to calculate that there are around uh, 1.7 million unknown viruses of the types that can infect people in these species around the world. Um, of those, based on what's happened historically, we expect that something between 500,000 to 800,000 of those viruses would likely be able to infect people. Um, now, they're out there somewhere on the planet. Sorry, we're, we're taking notes. What was that last number, please? Um, 500 to 800,000 of the 1.7 million are likely to be able to infect people. Um, only uh, this week we heard about a new Ebola virus carried by bats in West Africa, in Sierra Leone. We don't know if it can infect people. We don't know if anyone's been previously infected. Hopefully not. Um, these things are out there. They're a, they're a clear and present danger. Um, our group has been working to trace back the origins of these pandemic threats. Um, so we all remember SARS virus. We all remember the, the uh, global um, breakdown that that virus caused in both travel and trade, a huge economic impact in Southeast Asia. I remember a case, a person landing in New York, infected, who then went, went on to fly to another airport. I remember flying through Singapore in an empty airport. Quite incredible. Now, these things have a significant danger. After the SARS outbreak, we all assumed that that was the end and there's no need for any further concern. Our group has been able to show that in bats, where SARS originated, I think, Senator Liebman, you mentioned that bats, or maybe it was Senator Daschle this morning, are one of the biggest threats. 
Um, in China, there is a cave where we, we found every single genetic element of SARS virus in the bats that live in this cave. There are many different coronaviruses similar to SARS circulating there. We've now found evidence. We've shown in the lab that these viruses can infect human cells, that they can cause a disease similar to SARS in laboratory animals. And we've now found evidence of people being exposed to these viruses in the rural population around this cave. So SARS is still out there on the planet. And if we create the types of conditions we're creating with um, the way we, we, um, we move around the planet and the way we uh, encroach into habitat, we're likely to see many more of these viruses emerging. Um, so I want to uh, just go through these, um, these images, and, uh, if you can look at them, um, and talk about this threat and how we can try and deal with this in a, in a new and innovative way, as you've been talking about, and, and what sort of return we would see um, on, on an investment and how much that investment would cost. So first I want to point out that these diseases we talk about, emerging diseases, are rising over time. So yes, there will be more in the future. Um, we can show by tracking the trends. Our group has studied every single emerging disease that we've, we know for the past 50, 60 years that has emerged in people. And we've tracked them over time to show that the frequency is actually increasing. We're seeing more and more of them each year. We can predict with good confidence that about, there'll be around five new emerging diseases infecting people every year in the future. And around three of those will originate in animals, most in wildlife. So this connection between animal and human health is critically important. And the threat will continue to rise because we're continuing to do the things that drive emerging diseases, that, that are linked to their emergence. Things like global travel and trade, things like building roads into remote areas and exploiting the forests, um, putting mines in there, doing the things we do um, as a species for our, for our own uh, benefit. It's really a cost of, of those activities, and we should look at these diseases, I believe, as a cost of doing business on the planet. And like any business that has a risk attached to it, we should get ready for that risk and spend a little bit of money on it to prevent the major impacts from that risk in the future. If we look at it that way, it's absolutely logical that we need a, a preemptive approach, as you mentioned this morning. So our group has plotted the origin on the next page of every emerging disease over the past 60 years. And what you'll see is, I'm, I'm originally from England, you'll see that England's covered in red dots. Um, it's fairly unfortunate. I moved to New York um, 20 years ago. New York's also covered in red dots. We've had a lot of diseases, like West Nile virus, for instance, um, originate in our country, our nation, and in the richer countries around the world. But this map is biased because we also spend more money looking for them in those places. So we had to correct for that bias and analyze where the likely next diseases are going to originate. And the second map on that page shows you a different pattern. And what it shows you is the red areas are what we call emerging disease hotspots. They're the places around the world where new diseases are most likely to originate, um, where humans are, are interacting with animals in the way that leads to disease emergence, and where there's a huge biodiversity of wildlife and therefore of the viruses they carry. So what this allows us to do is to say, just like we try and deal with terrorism, 
we try and find out where the terrorists are. We try and find out what they're doing, which group is most likely to attack next, and we get ready for that. I believe if we approach pandemic emerging diseases in the same way, we should focus on these hotspots and find out what sort of activities are going on there that, that lead to emerging diseases and lead to them spreading into and affecting us. Doctor, can I interrupt you? <clears throat> For those who don't have the diagram, it's really important. Could you just name the hotspots? I mean, the ones that you're most worried about? Um, the, the, the ones I'm most worried about are um, areas in, th these are all tropical. They tend to be tropical areas because there's high biodiversity um, and, and lots of people. They, they tend to be developing countries. So although Europe and North America, we remain hotspots for things like foodborne infections, we have a capacity to deal with them. The countries that I'm most worried about are, are countries in the tropics with very rapidly um, growing human populations that are butting up against wildlife, creating this sort of environment for, for diseases to emerge. West Africa, Central Africa, South Asia, India and Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, and Southeast Asia. And, and it won't go unnoticed to you uh, on, on the panel that many of these emerging disease hotspots are also terrorist and security hotspots. Um, and that means even less opportunity for us to find out about a disease early enough to deal with it. So that's where we should be focusing our concern if we want to protect our nation from diseases that will come into our country. We should be out there dealing with them. Um, I, I want to turn on the next page to the economic impact of emerging diseases. So um, I was very impressed with the panel's knowledge already of um, the science behind this and the economics behind this. And the, the figures that you quoted this morning were um, absolutely correct. Um, diseases cost a lot of money. Now, we, we're all concerned about people who get ill, uh, sick, and die of diseases like Ebola. It's, it's horrific. And families are affected, and it goes on for generations, as you said, Senator Liebman, from the 1918 flu. But the economic impact is often disproportionate to the health impact. If we take SARS, for instance, um, the, the brown bubble on this chart, SARS cost, we're unclear exactly how much it cost, but something between 10 and perhaps as high as $50 billion in a single outbreak. And what sort of keeps me awake at night, but also excites me as an opportunity, is that when you trace back the origin of SARS, it originated in the wildlife markets of Guangzhou in China, southern China. If you'd known about this risk ahead of time and were testing the animals in the market and could find these viruses, you may find the first people who got sick. It, it was a single incident. You could have saved $50 billion, perhaps, in a very simple approach. It would have cost some money, but what an incredible savings. So this is an opportunity as well as a threat. Um, what you'll see already in the, in the past couple of decades um, is that the economic impact is also growing. In fact, we expect the economic impact to be growing at a more rapid rate than the actual number of diseases that emerge because we're becoming so reliant on a globalized um, trade uh, and globalized travel and globalized industry. And that's not going to go away no matter what politics we have in individual countries. The world itself is increasing its globalized connectivity, diseases exploit that by spreading rapidly. 
Now, what we've done in the next image is try to tease apart some of these diseases and, and to look at, um, for instance, H1N1, which originated in Mexico and was popularly called swine flu, um, had an impact on travel. Uh, on what are the industries that these diseases impact? So at the, the bottom of page three, um, it, it affected the swine industry. Even though we're unclear how involved um, pork production was in the origin of this virus, individual companies had a significant impact on their uh, profit or their uh, stock price because of the public perception of this disease. So even without the evidence that it originated in a specific farm, an industry can be affected dramatically um, by that uh, impact. So the sorts of industries we, we see economic imp impacts to are um, agriculture, um, tourism, uh, because people just don't travel to places that are affected by, um, by these diseases. Um, travel in particular, business travel, um, and, and that is really the big one, and, and that affects industry and, and, and has more knock-on effects on industry. So turning to page four, we, we tease apart the SARS outbreak, and just in China alone, we, um, we saw um, a, an unexpected drop in GDP of about 1.05% during the outbreak. Um, that's a more than $5 billion impact in China alone. Largely, um, sorry, it's an $8.5 billion impact, largely affecting travel and trade, um, as and disproportionate to the healthcare costs. The number of people infected was actually fairly low, much less than a typical influenza outbreak. The number that died was even lower, but the economic impact was the real thing that was striking about it. So I want to move to page five and just think about what can be done. Um, so talking to the airline industry, um, individual companies have, have had a repeated impact from, from pandemics. And, and uh, um, we, we all noticed that during the swine flu outbreak, H1N1 outbreak, uh, airline companies' stocks dropped even though they weren't responsible for the disease, there's no sort of um, liability there, but they're involved or they're suspected or the public perceive that and don't want to travel. So what we've started to do, and working with Homeland Security actually, right now we have a project to, um, in, to, to try and track flights and the risk of flights coming out of these emerging disease hotspots and then trying to predict where people tr switch planes and where they then travel onto as to what the risk of a disease coming into the US is. So I've, I've shown an example from um, a piece of software that we've developed called Flight Risk Tracker, which has a, another unfortunate acronym, FLIRT. Um, it, it's, uh, it fits as in flirting with disaster, right? Correct, thank you, thank you for making it sound more uh, impressive. Um, so we're now working on other, another one um, called IBIS, which is Inbound Risk Tracker. What is the risk coming into the US? And can we get ready for that risk? Can port authorities get ready when there's an outbreak of Ebola? And can we work out which airports are likely to be infected? That is a, a way to save money. Um, not every airport needs to uh, mount a full-scale uh, pandemic prevention strategy during an outbreak. 
But um, if we can target the ones that do and get that information to the port authorities quickly through Homeland Security, then there's a way to actually save money in the response side of it. Now, if you, if you um, go back to that bubble chart on page three, um, all of these economic impacts pale into insignificance compared to the potential impact of future pandemics. So if we look at a severe influence on page five, a severe influenza pandemic, the whole of that bubble chart has been taken over by the impact, uh, maybe as high as $7.3 trillion, which is absolutely incredible. Now, that, that's unlikely to happen. Um, you know, these, these are uh, the, the one in a thousand year events, the one in a hundred year events. But we don't want to be there when that one in a thousand year event does happen. Um, and certainly the mortality will be horrific from a, an influenza pandemic. The economic impact will be incredible and will take generations to recover from. Um, so let's think about what our normal uh, operation plan is for this extrinsic risks to our, um, to our health and safety. On page five, I've taken the emergency Ebola appropriation and dissected out which agency received um, a portion of the 5.4 billion that was appropriated. Um, now, this was a very good thing at the time. We had a raging outbreak in West Africa that clearly was way beyond what we normally see with Ebola. Normally, Ebola virus outbreaks caused less than 400 people to die. This one was already in the thousands um, and, and quite serious. And there was a breakdown of security and clearly we had to do something to help prevent its spread and ultimately to help prevent Ebola patients arriving in the US and the potential spread in the US, which we did actually see in the end. Um, so the, it was a really... Um, good thing to see that happen, but it's a very costly thing to do. 5.4 billion is a lot of money to spend on an outbreak in another country um, to try and prevent that spreading, to try and do something about it. Is that really the best way we should, we should spend our dollars um, to, um, to prevent these things? Now, we have to respond, but is there a way to move towards prevention? Now, at the time, um, there was a lot of talk about pandemic prevention, setting up a fund to get ready for future outbreaks. The real problem with these outbreaks, yes, they're getting more frequent and we'll see more and more of them every year, but the big ones are once every three years or so, once every five years. So that's long enough for, for public interest to wane, for political interest to disappear, and for dollars to disappear. And that's the real problem. And I want to... Um, bring back the war metaphor for these um, issues, but in, in a different way. You know, we, we talk about um, the need to fight off a pandemic or to deal with it, but let's look at what uh, the US Army does between battles. It doesn't disband, send all the troops home and stop spending money. We have a reserve force that's ready, trained. They're often placed in areas which we know are security hotspots, ready to operate, or they're close to those areas so they can be rapidly deployed if something happens. Are we doing anything like that for pandemics? I don't think so. Um, the World Health Organization proposed a pandemic fund which would be used in, uh, which would be ready to use 
quickly in these, in, in these emergencies. Um, but the, the amount of money in that fund at the time was $100 million, which is just woefully inadequate. In fact, we calculated, uh, using some simple, simple economic um, calculations, which we've now published, the references there on at the top of page six, um, that $5.4 would be enough if you invested it and used some of it to build a, a mobile force of medical uh, doctors, nurses, um, people trained to deal with something like Ebola, ready to act quickly. 5.4 billion is just enough to cover that, uh, given the number of outbreaks we, we're likely to expect. So we're underestimating the amount of funds that would be required to really deal with this on a global scale. And we are woefully ill-prepared for the next pandemic, globally, not just here in the US. Um, economists, um, and I'm not an economist, but I, I, I will pretend to be one right now. Um, economists talk about um, optimizing the system. And one of the things that economic models do really well is find ways to shift slightly uh, how much we invest and how we invest it to optimize our response. So at the bottom of page six, there's a, um, an optimization model. And what we see here across the horizontal axis are the economic damages uh, uh, over time, so time across the horizontal axis. On the um, vertical axis are the, is the cost of the outbreaks. So because we know that emerging diseases are increasing in frequency year by year, the costs increase in frequency, the damages they cause economically. If we're going to um, invest anything to prevent them, that's going to cost us some money right now. Um, so that shifts the balance. We actually spend money up front. And, and there's a sort of time that's, that's necessary to act before the costs rise so much that we cannot prevent the outbreaks. We've calculated that time on the next page, page seven at the top. The optimal stopping time um, to deal with pandemics at a, as, as on a global scale, in other words, the time where we need to come together um, both Republicans and Democrats, um, veterinarians and medics, as you've talked about, the One Health approach, and also different nations, because this is, a, this is an issue that starts in one country, then moves to another. So the time needed to come together as a, as a really a species to deal with this is right now. It's between 15 and 34 years from the day we did this calculation, which was back in 2014. So it's our generation that needs to deal with this problem and we need to do it in a, in a new way that prevents rather than reacts. Otherwise, we're just going to be constantly paying for the last outbreak. In fact, we all saw, and, and you know, uh, it felt quite cynical, really, that, that some of the Ebola appropriation was then required to deal with Zika virus because we, by the time we got ready to deal with Ebola, we now had another problem, a new virus called Zika. Um, and then... If we, you know, as we don't, if we don't get ready for these, we'll constantly be paying for the last outbreak with money from the one before. That is not the way to do business, and a business would not operate like that. Um, so what, what can we do? And I want to um, now talk about approaches that, that are more preventative, preemptive. Um, we, I've, I've shown a, a curve on page seven, a, a typical epidemic curve, where the cases, the human cases begin, it rises to a peak, and then the 
um, pan pandemic subsides. Now, what we're trying to do is to say, if we can move quicker to identify these outbreaks, as we're now beginning to do with Ebola, maybe even before they emerge, before the first case in humans, while these diseases are still in their wildlife reservoir, perhaps, um, we will save a substantial amount of money from the economic damages of these outbreaks. We will also save lives. And that bell-shaped curve will drop to a, a much less significant impact. If we can get it earlier enough, we can just have a handful of people infected and deal with it before it even spreads. Um, then we will be doing something that will save a huge amount of money. So I want to talk about a couple of programs that are actually doing this already, um, funded by US taxpayers. Um, so on page eight, there are programs currently being worked on, and some of you know about them, that are focused on those emerging disease hotspot countries. So this is somewhat radical, using US tax dollars to deal with diseases that are originating in other countries to protect our nation and our people from those diseases. It's logical to me. Um, I'm sure some people would think that's um, not a good use of taxpayer money. But actually, if we can prevent them emerging, we can then prevent them affecting us. So maybe it is a good use. Um, a couple of programs, the USAID, which is responsible for doing international development work around the world and building uh, goodwill with our, um, uh, our colleagues in different countries and governments, has a program called the Emerging Pandemic Threats Program, which is now in its ninth year. Um, and this has a series of strategies in the countries that I've highlighted in red, in those hotspots. It was actually designed around the emerging disease hotspots. Um, scientists in those countries work with US scientists. Um, we provide the skills and the techniques that then we work with local scientists. We train them up. We help build labs. Uh, we show them how to look for these diseases in wildlife, in people, in livestock, and prevent them emerging. Um, one of the successes of the USA EPT program is this this week's discovery of a new Ebola virus in Sierra Leone, in bats, before we know that it gets into people. That's a success. Um, we also discovered a virus in China in bats related to SARS. It's a different type of virus. It's a coronavirus related to SARS, which we call SADS. It, it's not a SAD virus. It's a SADS virus. Swine acute diarrheal syndrome coronavirus. This virus originated in the same place as SARS, in the same bat species, but didn't get into people. It got into pigs in pig farms. And before we even discovered it, it had already killed over 20,000 pigs in southern China. This didn't get into the news. It didn't really make it onto CNN or, um, or Fox. But it was a very significant incident in, in southern China. If that virus had spread into the global um, pork production facilities, it would have been absolutely devastating. Um, what we did about it was, the first thing I did was talk to my colleague, Dr. Karash, who then talked to Department of Homeland Security and told them about it. So having these collaborative programs gives us an early warning system for our nation and our industries to protect ourselves. Um, we also then looked at where did it originate? Can we prevent further outbreaks? 
and there hasn't been further spread. I'm going to be dying to ask you some questions, so um, if, if we could get to the questions, right I think that would be. Um, so, but, but that was a good point. Thank you. Please, Tomorrow, um, uh, Governor Ridge and I are going to be doing a satellite tour. We'll be talking to radio stations and television stations around the country. And when I've told people about what we're doing with this panel, and I cite the the, the, the 100th year um, anniversary of the uh, 1918 outbreak, the usual response I get is, "Well, yeah, but that could never happen again because look what we have, what we've learned about you know." contagion and what we've learned about infection, what we've learned and how we've built our, our, our hospital system up. Um, what's your opinion on, I mean, I, I, think, I think I know what your answer is based on this, but, but mm. give us some, some, something to work with tomorrow when we're yeah. asked that question by reporters. It's a very interesting point. The, the 1918 flu, the exact scenario will not happen in the same way. It'll be very different. Um, but I would say it's more likely to happen now. We are, we are much more connected now, right now, than we were in 1918. There are many, many more of us, uh, and we fly a lot more than we used to. I mean, my grandparents never flew. Uh, my parents started flying when they were, you know, in the 50s. Um, my daughter started flying when she was three months old. The change in generational um, impact is going to be huge. We, we fly a lot more. Our industries depend on that globalized travel and trade network. So um, any breakdown in, in travel will impact the availability of goods, including vaccines. Um, we, we're massively unprepared, as you stated this morning, um, for an influenza uh, pandemic, even though it's the virus we know most about and it's the virus that we have so much focus on in producing vaccines. During the H1N1 swine flu um, outbreak, the virus moved from Mexico City to New Zealand within three weeks, probably quicker, we just only found out. Um, that's how quickly they get around. There were cases in New Zealand three weeks later. And vaccine production um, had only just reached enough to cover um, uh, you know, 10,000 people or so months after that event. It, we, we, we just react too slowly to these things. Um, that there will be a, a huge impact, I believe. Thank you. Other questions? Senator Daschle. Dr. Daschle, I, I want to compliment you on the extraordinary report. And uh, I think these, these uh, graphs have just been a very, very helpful in understanding uh, the challenge we face. I, I get asked the question from time to time that goes something like this. We've addressed SARS, we've addressed Ebola, we've addressed Zika, and for the most part, we've been able to contain it all reasonably well. Some could argue we could have done a lot better. I think most people would argue that. But the fact is, it hasn't generated the kind of pandemic experience that, that we have threatened. Number one, are we crying wolf too often mm. as, we, as we try to forewarn people about the circumstances? And are we not rewarding uh, lethargy and, and sort of overconfidence by the fact that we've addressed some of these challenges in the last 20 years somewhat uh, successfully? How would you address the skeptics who say, uh, why do we need prevention? We're doing reasonably well. And aren't you crying wolf? Well, it's very interesting. It's a really difficult problem. It's the, the, it's the classic public health dilemma in a nutshell, isn't it? That, that we're trying to do something ahead of a threat to deal with it. And it's really hard. And, and what political advantage do you gain from spending money 
where the sum total, the goal of which is for nothing to happen. It's really hard. So we need to, to think around that, about what the motivations are for people to, to do this. I, wouldn't, I would say when we've not cried wolf three times with, with SARS, Ebola, and, uh, and influenza. I'd say we've dodged three bullets, and we were lucky to dodge them. Um, you know, we, we don't know what the next disease will be that will have a pandemic impact, but there are... Uh, there's, a, there's a sort of new phrase for that disease, disease X. Uh, World Health Organization brings together a panel once a year. I sit on that panel to identify the top um, pathogens, diseases, which we think are the uh, biggest threat to our health and for which there are no vaccines or therapeutics available. Uh, and then they use that to try and get uh, venture capital to support the development of drugs. Uh, and... That panel added the, the phrase disease X to our top 10 list because it's the unknown ones that are going to threaten us. Now, how you convince um, a voter that this is a good way to spend US money, that's a hard thing to do. But look at Ebola and look at how close we were with um, some of those outbreaks. We had people with SARS land in, in New York. We had um, an Ebola patient who went into a hospital and was sent back home. So there's a potential for these things to take off. And I think we need to highlight that and how close we, we were and how lucky we were to avoid it. I have so Not many easy. more questions, but let me just ask one other question, and that has to do with this uh, description we often apply to the challenge is creating an effective public-private partnership. There's yeah. a, obviously a role for government. There's an important role for the private sector. And you obviously, in your role deal with both. Uh, I don't think we do that nearly as effectively as we need to. If we really wanted a good, uh, effective, successful public-private partnership, there are a number of steps that need to be taken, uh, and I have my own list, but I would be interested if, 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 you, if you could just share what you think the one or two things that we could do more effectively to ensure that that public-private partnership is really working. Yeah, it's a really good point. I, I think that what, what we need to do is to talk to the industries, and some of them are here today, and that's really good to see. The industries that are, the sectors that are most likely to be affected, and bring in the biggest companies and the CEOs and the, the um, chief risk officers, the chief medical officers, and, and listen to them. Um, co some companies are very um, forward thinking on this. So the, the um, travel industry, airline companies, um, uh, uh, cruise uh, companies that often get these foodborne infections. Um, agriculture, big agricultural companies, um, the insurance industry, which is represented in biotech, that's supposed to design the vaccines and drugs to, to beat them. Um, I, I, I would see um, a, a roundtable that brings together government and those specific sectors to say, what are you doing right now, and what can we nudge and enhance a little bit, just, just nudge forwards a little bit, some of the um, clever ideas that are coming out of industry because they're trying to protect their bottom line and they're going to be very creative in doing that. So I would use that creativity and have uh, government just support some of these initiatives and try and bolster them a little bit, whether it's insurance, whether it's tracking flight risk, not just for one company, but doing it for the whole sector, whether it's, um, it's trying to generate interest in the country where these diseases originate and the industries that are on the ground there. Um, I think it's definitely a doable um, thing. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Governor Rich. 
You obviously put a great deal of time and effort in your presentation, nice. for which we're very, very grateful. Don't be surprised if you get some follow-up questions. We don't have enough time with you today. I'm intrigued by the work that you do along with some of your colleagues you mention on an annual basis to identify uh, those uh, viruses for that period of time that year that may have the, the greatest potential impact on uh, human health. Could you tell me a little bit about who's involved and what that process is? And once you, as a group of experts, have identified uh, from your, based on your judgment and experience, with whom do you share that information? And more importantly, does anybody ever do anything about it? Yeah, I, it's actually a great program. So the, the, this originated in the World Health Organization. It's called the Pandemic Prioritization for the R&D Blueprint. So the R&D Blueprint is World Health Organization's effort to get um, vaccines and drugs developed for, for diseases that are rare, but could become a big issue in the future, for which it's perceived there's no market and there's no current therapeutic. Um, what happens is we, we all go to Geneva, we sit in the room for two days and we brainstorm and argue and vote on, and it's a, gr a group of scientists who work on this issue, working with World Health Organization, which pathogens are the, are the biggest risk? this year, and it changes year to year, which is good. That list is published instantly at the end of the meeting. In fact, w during the meeting, there are often uh, phone calls from um, venture capital companies, um, drug companies, and the media to get the list as quickly as possible. So it's out there on the web. Um, I don't know if World Health pushes forwards um, specifically to certain companies, but what they then do is they take each disease and they set up a subcommittee to bring together um, what sort of vaccine we need, the best advice on what sort of vaccine or drug we need for that specific disease, and where we are in the process. Um, there's a new collaboration now with a group called the Coalition for Epidemic, I'm gonna get this wrong, um, Preparedness in, uh, Initiative, I think, CEPI, C-E-P-I. Um, that's been set up to actually fund um, some of the production of those drugs, the, the R&D to develop those drugs. CEPI work with that list and then fund um, uh, in a competitive basis proposals to, to design vaccines and drugs. So it's, it's a new system that's been around for um, three or four years. It seems to be working. Obviously, it's not as funded, it's not funded as well as they'd like, but I think it's an exemplar of what we should be doing. One final gonna... question on that real quick. Ignoring the dollar amount that might be involved, I thought it was an interesting uh, connection between your endorsement of preemptive action in the hot spots. Hmm. And I think you mentioned West Africa, South Africa, Southeast Asia as human population gets closer and closer. What heretofore had been the human, with the animal population. What kind of preemptive actions are most appropriate once you've identified mm. the hot spots and the convergence of the human and animal population? Yeah, that's a really is good it, question. Is it detection? Rich. Is it, what is it? Yeah, it's not easy. So what we do is, first of all, we find where these viruses are. We then, we, if they're new viruses, we don't know yet whether that's likely to infect us or not. It's hard to, to predict that. But what we do is we create a triage list of the ones which we think are most likely to infect us. We then look at the local community. So in China, for instance, with this SARS virus that we found in bats, 
we went to the local community. Who is going near this cave? What are they doing in this cave? Um, and are they getting infected? So we take samples from people and test them um, to see if they're getting infected. And then we work with the local population to educate them and to say, don't hunt bats. Here's an alternative, you know, build a small poultry farm or, or, or work with some other wildlife species. Um, don't go in this cave. The, the government put a sign up to keep people out. So we try and work with private sector, communities, and the government to bring policy efforts um, and, and behavioral change to deal with that. It's not easy, it's hard work, but it, it, it has the potential to work. I'm gonna to have to apologize to the rest of the panelists. I know we could do Q&A with you for hours, um, but <clears throat> I'm gonna to try to keep us on schedule. So thank you so thank very, you very much, much for your time this morning and for the work you're doing for, the, for humanity. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. And now um, we're gonna bring our next panel forward and I'd like to uh, bring forward Dr. Malik Diara, who's the public health manager for medicine and occupational health at ExxonMobil. Dr. Dean Jamison, Professor Emeritus for Global Health at the University of Washington, Principal Investigator, Disease Control Priorities Network, and former research economist and manager at the World Bank. And David Stoltzfus, LAN Pipeline Delivery Lead for TPD Breeding at Monsanto. Thank you, gentlemen, for being with us today. And uh, Dr. Diara, we will start with you, sir. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm really honored being here and uh, representing our company, ExxonMobil. I would say that I'm like a living example of uh, how the company is committed to address health and safety for our workers our dependents, and also working with the communities. Uh, within the company, I'm responsible for prevention of infectious diseases in our workplaces, and our company is global. We have about 70,000 workers spread across the world, and uh, Senator Lieberman was mentioning this morning that uh, the pathogens don't know borders. And for us, we say that the pathogens don't know fences because they come in and out of the communities and they can land into our operation sites. So we are really looking at how to prevent, the event, uh, to prevent these issues for our workplaces. And uh, the approach we are taking is really pretty straight. Uh, the first part is how we have a centralized system. And the health issues like Ebola, because we have operation sites in Nigeria, we were operating in Liberia, and our headquarters are in Dallas, where we have one of the cases we landed there. So the, the first part is how to have a centralized system coordinated and the health issues are really seen as one of the elements to tackle, like if we have a terrorist threat, if we have any uh, explosion in a given location, and it's called the emergency support group. So health issues are integrated into our operations and seen as a scenario. 
Last year, for example, we got a corporate drill looking at the pandemic flu, and in case of we would have the progression of the disease from, the, from one country to a region, what should we do and how to tackle it? <clears throat> Sorry. In 2006, uh, we prepared a, a plan for the whole company, and it's called the Business Continuity Plan. And this is the framework we are using to prevent, prepare, detect, and, and respond. And uh, since 2006, the science has evolved. Uh, the techniques have also been, uh, um, I would say, uh, uh, more elaborated. And we gain a lot of experience with Ebola, with Zika, with MERS coronavirus. I was in Korea when uh, MERS landed in Korea, and the economic impact is really amazing. In the hotels, I think the hotels were normally full during that time. It was like less than half full or one third full for the different locations. And for us, we faced some situations with, um, I would say, such events impacting us directly and uh, a colleague uh, or a panel member or participant just mentioned how the cruise ships are, are impacted by gastros. You don't die normally about a gastro, but if you have 40% or 50% of the crew and the passengers affected, it's a big issue. And these issues can happen in our camps. We can have some camps or construction camps of 15,000 people, or a platform where you have an outbreak that is starting. And with the system we have established, we have been able to stop the outbreaks to progress, norovirus, and even chicken pox. Uh, so within a number of days, we can stop the outbreaks, have the isolation done, and we develop a very simple guide in addition to the business continuity plan to be able to respond to these events. And subsequently, we shared that, uh, these materials and guidance document with the oil and gas industry. So it's made available to the whole industry to uh, detect, prevent, prepare, and respond to outbreaks. Uh, this is really our, I would say, it's our CEO is saying it's a core part of our culture. And, and the way we are successful is combining the health issues with the safety issues so our people are protected in terms of health, in terms of safety, the cost implications are being controlled, the productivity is being maintained, and we are also able to keep a good reputation for the company. Because even with just an outbreak of norovirus, if we close a platform that can be responsible for a high percentage of the energy supply for a given location or country, and saying we have closed or reduced the energy uh, supply because of a norovirus, it's really not good for the company. So it's an integrated part of what we do. And since 2010, we did not have any significant outbreak impacting our locations. And I will take also a 
tuberculosis, where you have, uh, it's within a year, you can have one person that can infect 15 others just by close contacts. And in our camps, our platforms, we can have these issues occurring. So I would say that in the past five years, we got globally about 100 cases of active TB that have been detected. But the very good success related to that is none of these cases was able to infect another person. So early detection and response. And there were some questions from, uh, uh, from the panel um, about how to work with the private sector. And I really think that sometimes, maybe some people would say I'm, I'm joking, but I would say that in, a, in that manner, it's like, for me, it's like dating, because in general, people don't know each other. And uh, from the private sector to the public sector, from the nonprofit organization, I think it's a part of how we better know each other, see what can be done together and go for a long run or short run, but at least better knowing each other. And when I look at what the government is doing, uh, my predecessor here at the table mentioned the global health security agenda. I have to congratulate the government and, and the members that are here in terms of how the funding for global health security agenda was maintained. And it's really helping looking at what can be done here and what can be done uh, internationally. So that's a framework of intervention. But the second, maybe I'll mention two other elements and stop there. The second element is related to how uh, the World Health Organization, US government uh, institutions are assessing the needs in the different countries. It's called the Joint External Evaluation and you have that done in like countries around the world in a, in a collaborative manner to see what is missing in a given country to prevent, prepare, detect, and respond. So for me, it's like we have the intervention, we have an assessment of the needs, now it's how to bring the partners together to know what is needed in what location through that framework identification of the needs and bringing the partners together to tackle the needs locally from a global perspective for local solutions. And the last point is related to World Health Organization that just issued a, a manual in terms of how to uh, um, manage uh, epidemics. And one of the lessons learned that we are applying to is how to look at these issues because every year or every three years or two years there will be a new disease emerging. It's very good to look at how to tackle this uh, biological threat of large impact into one umbrella and set up a mechanism that can respond to any of them with some fine tuning and WHO just issued a, a manual related to that with 14 different diseases to consider to have an appropriate response. So we are learning from these different partners and see how to tailor what is done externally to apply internally. 
Thank you, Dr. Diara and Dr. Jamison. Well, good afternoon, and thank you very much for the opportunity of joining you and the opportunity of joining you this morning, which is a, a very interesting session. Um, let me begin um, with an account of how I personally got interested in this question. About six years ago, uh, the Lancet Journal, the English Medical Journal Lancet, uh, created a commission to take a broad review of global health and to take that review from basically an economics perspective. Um, Larry Summers, our former Treasury Secretary, and I co-chaired that Lancet commission. Uh, we worked hard for a year, 18 months. We came up with a report that I think has had a little influence and um, certainly reshaped my thinking about global health and enjoyed working with, with Summers. But very shortly after we published the report, Summers gave me a call and he said, Dean, I think you know, we really missed a major point in that report. We, yes, certainly talked about pandemic influenza, uh, but we didn't talk about it nearly seriously enough. I want to take another look. So we spent a couple of years uh, looking at the background epidemiology, trying in a very much more limited way to, I think, do some of the things that, that you're involved with, and to um, get a sense both of the magnitude, the health and mortality magnitude of the threats that the world faced and their economic um, consequences. Um, and we ended up thinking about the pandemic threat generally into a very simplified way, um, four categories, kind of moderately severe versus very severe, and um, influenza pandemics, and everything else, the Ebola's, the Marburg's, the Zika's, uh, the SARS. Uh, we lumped those in together. And we um, reached several um, broad conclusions about uh, what we felt anyway was the relative significance of those. Um, first, on the evidence that we saw, the threat of a really major non-flu pandemic, by really major I mean something of the order of the 1918 uh, pandemic, that, that flu was the almost certain source. There's, um, as Dr. Dasek said, there's always pathogen X that we don't know about, but uh, among the things we have any idea about, that the severe one was going to be flu. Then there were moderate flus and moderate Ebola-type um, epidemics that we've, I think, see and will continue to see every five to 10 years, these um, you know, five new ones a year, Every few years, one of those five will turn out to be very serious. Um, our conclusions about the economic consequences of the less severe epidemics and the degree of preparation, um, I think in a way, reflects your um, question, uh, Senator Dashiell, about are we overreacting? I, I don't think we are <laughs> overreacting by any means uh, in terms of our actual response, but maybe we're overreacting a little bit in terms of the stated um, threats. Uh, of those um, diseases, that the, the responses, I think, um, can certainly be amplified. On the other hand, uh, the magnitude of threat 
from the relatively low risk, and by relatively low risk, I mean uh, one every 100 to 200 year risk, which I, I would um, picture as roughly the frequency of, that we might expect, we, we certainly don't know, but that we might expect from a major 1918 uh, type event, that almost all of the expected mortality loss and almost and a very large fraction, but not, not as large a fraction, of the expected economic loss lies in uh, the severe influenza threat. Um, the nature of that threat, we felt, was a, a little bit different than for the moderate ones. I think we've heard several times today, and I, I certainly see it in the evidence as I read it, that the economic consequences, the national income consequences, the disruption of economy consequences of an Ebola, of a Zika, uh, far exceed the mortality consequences. And so um, the, in, yeah, certainly the mortality side is important, but dealing with those conditions uh, is probably mostly an economically motivated um, preventive um, uh, response in, in my view. Um, in contrast, um, the, what, what appears likely to happen is the economic consequences uh, through severe disruption of the economy. People just don't get out of their house. They don't move. Things grind to a stop. And once they've grown to a stop, they can't grind further to a stop. So at some point, you kind of maximize the economic loss, but the potential for human loss and for political disruption continues to rise. And so our conclusions were that around the most severe threat, the, the, the severe influenza threat, there certainly were the very major economic consequences, but relatively more important were the mortality consequences uh, uh, of an of a almost unbelievable nature and the probable political uh, disruptions. So that's, that's where we ended up feeling the threat is positioned. Um, we spent much less time on the questions that are in front of you about what the responses might be. But one, um, but our focus of response, therefore, was preparation for these severe events. So one thing that seems clear is that in terms of the investment in the universal flu vaccine, that's just not happening at anything like the level it should happen. Um, if new drugs, new vaccines cost a billion dollars or two billion dollars or three or whatever, the, the rate of investment is not adequate there. And that's in one way or another going to be a public sector investment or strong public sector incentives for the competence of the private sector to respond. But there are other elements of preparation that probably are um, in many cases rather more expensive than um, what we've been talking about. The stockpiling of drugs and the turning over of those stockpiles as was uh, discussed this morning, but on a fairly large level, maybe even to some extent at a household level. Um, the um, probable value of having militaries around the world prepare nationally and prepare military medical systems are pretty collaborative across the world, and to have those military medical systems invest time and energy and capacity to respond. Um, 
the hospital surge capacity that I, I believe uh, Senator Johnson mentioned this morning, um, that's costly to create. That's very costly to create. I think it, it's not necessarily worth it for low-risk events, but I think if we don't do it, we should consciously not do it rather than just let it slide. And finally, the manufacturing capacity uh, for vaccines uh, and drugs. Um, having a surge capacity, probably widely dispersed around the world, uh, is um, likely to be an important part of the response. And I don't think that that's been thoroughly analyzed, but the world has capacity for only a fraction, maybe five or 10%, of the annual production of flu vaccines of what might be required. There are other uses for flu vaccines, I mean, just much more routine use. Um, so there are those dimensions that I think uh, an overall assessment of the threat would pay attention to a very substantial measure to that right tail event on influenza and then begin to look at what some of the more, probably more costly potential preparation activities are today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Stoll. Good afternoon, and thank you, panel members. Thanks for the invitation for Monsanto to participate here today on behalf of agriculture, and thanks for the, the biotechnology innovation organization that facilitated this as well. Again, I'm David Stoltzfus. I lead uh, Monsanto's plant breeding operations in Latin America which includes Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, and Mexico, where we do a lot of our innovative work for developing new hybrids and varieties of soy, cotton, and corn, not only for U.S. farmers, but around the world. With me today is also Miguel Pereira Vera, who's our Puerto Rico Community Affairs Manager. and He's along for a specific example that I'll be providing here shortly. But we at Monsanto are a modern agriculture company that we're focused around developing new solutions for farmers to produce food, fuel, and fiber and using less resources. And we use traditional tools such as plant breeding. We also innovate in the biotechnology and precision agriculture and data arenas. With the growing environments that farmers face around the world, new solutions are always needed. And by working with others, we're able to turn thoughts into action and actually get products to the field that are going to impact farmers, impact farmers' lives, and allow us to have a sustainable food system. But through programs and partnerships, we work with farmers, researchers, government institutions, universities as well to come up and create those ideas. We do this because choices and tools lead to better harvests for farmers, and that helps all of us. Now, to develop products, as I mentioned, we operate at sites around the globe. Many of are several of those that I mentioned and that I work with. And many of these are located in areas that are subject to high risks, everything from hurricanes and volcanoes, droughts, um, but also insect and disease pests. Those are part of nature's uh, tribulations that we all must face, that farmers face, and that we as an agriculture provider face. And so they have the impact, the potential to impact our business and our employees in the communities of which we live and work. 
we prepare for such risks, similar to what was described earlier, by a lot of uh, practice and uh, response and recovery efforts in trying to minimize that cost of any impact on our business and for our employees. And that necessitates close collaboration with civil authorities and response efforts, federal agencies and those that are involved in emergency response, agriculture agencies, as well as well all the government institutions that we work in compliance with, the regulatory bodies. And I'd like to provide an example of how this collaboration between public and private entities such as Monsanto has worked in the past. And I'm gonna use the example of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico just less than 10 months ago. That storm caused tremendous damage to Puerto Rico and our operations there, as well as many others in that area. With nearly 400 employees in rural southern Puerto Rico uh, that, that uh, work and live there, we were not only concerned for our business continuity of keeping plants growing in the fields and in the greenhouses, but also our employees and their lives and their families' lives. And so in the days after the hurricane with electrical, water, and transportation infrastructure heavily damaged, we helped our people, but also sought out local authorities to identify community needs that we could address. And this included bringing in cargo planes full of food, medicine, hygiene kits in the days immediately afterwards, working with FEMA and the National Guard for that distribution. Identifying partners such as pharmaceutical companies who could also ship in prescription and over-the-counter medication based upon information that we received from the local health authorities about what was needed in the community that could be, impact their lives in those coming days and months. We also hooked up generators and uh, provided fuel so that the local water distribution could provide potable water to the community impacting over 12,000 lives. And in the months afterwards, we continued to work with our nonprofit um, philanthropic group and other nonprofit agencies to provide food and hygiene kits to those in the community. Now I give this as an example, because we're not talking about hurricanes today, but we are talking about disaster recovery and response and also preparedness. And this partnerships between businesses and the public entities that allow for those successful um, responses to occur are important. In this case, in rural Puerto Rico, Monsanto had assets and logistics available. The government entities had information and priorities that they could provide that allowed us to contribute towards those. And these partnerships aren't just for major environmental impacts, such as what I described, but also applicable to any large-scale disruptive um, issues that impact our business and impact agriculture. Combining information and coordination with the ability to act and the assets to do so, I think is what we're after today. So these continued partnerships that we look for include the government's leadership role in coordinating the various civil and private entities in preparedness and response efforts, and most importantly, coordinating communication across participants by being that credible source of truth. In today's age with distributed and instant communication, a credible source of information to act upon is critical. I think you'll find willing participants with corporations and other entities, and we look for the federal government to provide that leadership and coordination as has been brought up today. In closing, Monsanto's commitment to our farmer customers naturally leads us 
to that corporate responsibility for our customers, farmers, our employees, and the communities that we live and work, and for food consumers around the world. And we take this on um, as we continue to work for agriculture's biggest challenges. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you just touched upon it, um, but a question that's been occurring to me is, so these pathogens can go viral, and as you just in indicated, so can information go viral, and that's good information and bad information. And I want to direct this to Dr. Jamison, but uh, either of the others can respond if you choose. Um, so I can imagine in a full-blown, really bad outbreak, um, the public panicking. What do I do? Should I stay in? Should I go out? Should I race to the drugstore? Should I not? Um, and I can imagine tons of misinformation that could, in fact, be dangerous. Um, so, so who becomes the trusted dominant? I mean, presumably the government um, becomes the, needs to be the trusted dominant voice <clears throat> that um, people will pay attention to. Who was thinking about that and making sure that that would be the, the, the that that would be the case? I don't know the answer to to that question, sir. That's scary. <laughs> I can give you an example from kind of recent history: H1N1 uh, virus and the uh, issues surrounding that. We, as a corporation, in trying to prepare for that, turn to and look to the CDC as that source of truth. And even with all the other recommendations out there, tried to enact our own preparedness for our employees and our sites to continue business operations based upon what the CDC provided at that time. Now, is that correct? I don't know, but there was an information source that we would look for towards. I, have, I would like to add that uh, beyond the uh, government, health authorities, key persons are leaders of the community and working with them can help have in place the appropriate measures. And we can see for Ebola in Guinea, where people coming to help the communities were really attacked and not supported. So having the channel of working with the government health authorities, local leaders can help address the, the situation. Questions from the panel? Senator Dash. Dr. Diara, I, I, was, I was intrigued by your metaphor about the public-private partnership being a little bit like a good, good or a, a bad date, and it was incumbent upon both sides to ensure that, it, that the dating experience is a good one. I, my own sense is that there are responsibilities on either side to ensure that that dating experience is a good one, and I'm familiar with some of the things that I think government needs to do, multi-year funding, and as our previous panelists have noted, uh, being a good convener and making sure the dialogue is there. But if you could elaborate, and I would open this up to all three of our panelists, if we were really going to create an effective public-private partnership, what is the, what are the, the most important responsibilities on the private sector side to make that date a, a successful one? Thank you. I will start and then pass it on to the uh, panelists. Uh, I would see the private sector as a multiplicity of entities, and uh, within that you have different capabilities. Because we can see within the private sector 
those that are responsible for delivery of services and, and, and supplies related to a medical situation. You can have those that can help on the uh, logistic aspects. And you have other companies that can be impacted by a given uh, threat. So it's to see how to categorize these different groups and see what interest and, 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 and what's in for them within such issues and work with the, the, the government entities to have the appropriate response in place. For us, what was done, uh, I would take the example of Nigeria, where we have about three, 5,000 uh, employees and during Ebola. It's uh, one to have that global, global framework where you have the global uh, entities coming in the solution is to be established locally with the local government and the local entities that can have different types of, of roles. So I would say that knowing the framework, knowing what to do, and, and com having a partnership that can take into account what would be the objectives of each entity, what are their capabilities, and how to pull them together to have a, a, a good success. Thank you. Anybody else? Well, just a quick comment about the household sector, which I think is part of the private sector, and clearly a lot of the preparation, including the possibility of, of stockpiling of drugs that might be very hard to get um, or very um, dangerous to get in an um, epidemic environment. Um, but household behaviors and lack of uh, avoiding overreactions, but appropriate reactions. So there's a, an interplay between, I think, the governmental leadership of, of households and the preparations of households before the events happen. Senator Dashell, I think that's a good question around that partnership. And shared goals is the driving force behind any type of combined effort in collaborative organization. And when I think of agriculture and the, um, the mission that we have as a corporation of Monsanto of providing better solutions for farmers to, chat, to take care of the immense amount of challenges that they face every year in different growing environments with pathogens and pests, some of them could be in that biodefense area, but it's a, that shared goal of the government to provide those kind of robust solutions for farmers. And so I think that's a good area to start in. And I think that was mentioned of understanding the assets and the capabilities, but more importantly, the incentives and those shared goals. Well, I thank each of you for your very, very helpful comments today. Thank you. Governor Ridge. Oh, yes. Uh, gentlemen, uh, Dr. Deshock talked about uh, 500,000 to 700,000 viruses that have potential human application or impact. And I just need the benefit of your insight and experience with the following question. Knowing that nation states will genetically alter and in the process of altering the viruses or maybe the terrorists will buy it or get it, then Mother Nature does a pretty good job as we've seen mutating the viruses. But let us say that either 
Exxon finds something, you're global in one of these uh, remote regions of the world, or CDC undercover something, and you don't have a clue how to deal with it. You've never seen it before. Goodbye. I'm not thinking about, I guess I'm thinking about the unthinkable, but it's not that out of reach. How confident are you that either the government or in collaboration with the private sector that we can pull together quickly and effectively enough research capability to identify what we need to create an antidote? We talk about surge capability. Oftentimes, I think surge capability do have the productive capability to throw out a vaccine. Okay, I'm interested in a research, I'm interested in a surge capability to develop the antidote, which obviously you need to do before you put it in production. Where are we on that as a country? And your perspectives would be very interesting to me, very helpful. Dr. Diara, want to take a shot at that? Thank you. Uh, the if we are in that situation, I would say that we are behind. If something is happening and we don't have the ability to, to control, and uh, when I look at the situation with all the viruses that are in place and uh, how complex it is to produce a vaccine, I think Senator Lieberman mentioned that even if we see the flu, like the, the pandemic flu is coming, we will have several months for something that is well studied and, and multiple vaccines. We have at least six months to have enough supply to cover a little part of a small portion of the population. So I would say that the best approach uh, we would we engage in, and, and that's why I'm here, is to see how to better prepare, prevent, identify the, 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 the threats and work with the different partners that are in these, uh, I would say, companies or initiatives to learn about that, share what we know, and contribute when we, where we can in the context of our national content, because a big part of what the company is doing beyond uh, having its operations is to see how to develop the national systems from education, health, and other aspects. So as you do business, it's important to do it in an environment where you have a certain structure and can have the issues controlled as they come up like a health issue because the, the, the most, I would say, I would say it was like a nightmare for our, our lead country manager in a given country. He was saying, if we have somebody sick with one of these diseases, where are we going to have that person treated? And as a company, we will not treat that person in our premises. We have to work with the health system, know where to make the diagnosis, do the treatment, and have the persons or the contacts in isolation in a proper manner. So working with partners is our, our uh, I would say, initiative. Dr. Jameson, any thoughts? I think um, two of the points that Dr. Dosek raised um, lead into that. One is around the Human Biorum Project, this uh, search that's not yet really begun but could begin uh, for those uh, one or two um, million viruses that we don't know out there and to characterize them. 
a lot of the scientific efforts seem to me around strengthening capacity is exercising the muscles and uh, exercising the muscles around finding and characterizing and beginning to understand responses to those viruses. And here I would differ with Dr. Dasik. He was talking about a billion dollar effort as expensive. I think that that would be a minimal, um, minimally expensive way of acquiring both the knowledge of the viruses and a lot of capacity in the scientific community. The second is around CEPI, this uh, um, coalition, this international coalition, mostly financed, I guess, by Norway and uh, Britain, uh, to develop vaccines against, uh, I think, 10 of the uh, pathogens we know today. Again, we will have, in five or 10 years, more vaccines than we have today as a result of that actually very modest investment. But as important as the vaccines, I think we'll have exercised the muscles. We'll have uh, acquired more capacity to more quickly uh, develop the vaccines uh, next time around. Thank you, Senator Lieberman. Uh Thanks, uh, uh, Chairman Greenwood. Uh, Dr. Diar, I, I want to, um, I think you give us a, an important opportunity to approach this problem from the view of business. I mean, this is the title of the hearing today, a meeting is the cost of resilience, the impact of large scale biologic events on business. So um, your title is public health manager of ExxonMobil's Global Medicine and Occupational Health Department with responsibilities related to the development of infectious disease prevention and control programs in company workplaces. So to a certain extent, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to either get into the heads of the leaders of this great uh, corporation um, or reflect on what they told you when they hired you, but I'm, it's, a very, it's an important decision they made to bring you on to do this. So what, what were they thinking? What, what, did they, what did they say, apart from the description of your job, what, what motivated them to um, put you into this position? have to say that uh, we faced in the company, I came on board 10 years ago, nine years ago, Yes. but the company has been in place for, for decades and decades, and we faced some situations where it was very serious, and uh, as the company is looking at how to protect the health and safety Excuse of- Excuse me a second, just give me an example of one of those situations. I would say we closed the platform uh, because of a norovirus episode, and it was not in a in a developing con country. It was in a developed country. Right. When you close a platform, you have an impact on the people, on the health, on the co on the productivity, and uh, the reputation of the company. Right. And uh, we were also going to more and more uh, countries around the world where we have to protect our workers from malaria, TB, and uh, other, other aspects. So within the company, when we have a case like that, or some people affected by such diseases, it's, it goes up from the country level, headquarters, and it's being discussed in terms of how to prevent that. We have a reporting that is being done 
every two, twice a year, we review all these numbers. We have a committee of executives that are like the executive vice presidents of the four major companies, production, development company, exploration, downstream chemical, and we meet with the safety, health, and environmental organization to review what are the cases, how to improve the measures, and uh, how to communicate because it's so large. We have a number of companies, so it's important that each leader from a given company provides a guidance in terms of how to address the situation. So it's really incorporated into our uh, management systems with a centralized uh, entity that I'm like the technical advisor for the whole corporation working with these executives to disseminate the, 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 the measures. And, and the fact that I'm here, it's also helping understand what is being done by the government or the organizations. That's how I went to Texas A&M or I would uh, relate with the CDC, USAID, and I'm allowed to do that. It's an engagement investment of the company. We are a team of five persons. And we work also with a safety group to, uh, um, I would say, package the information based on what is being done externally to address the needs internally. And when we look at that, I was just saying, our lead country manager in a given country saying, hey, if somebody is sick, how are we going to have that person treated? We, with all the money of the world, I would say we are number 10 in terms of company. If right. we were a country, we would be maybe... 40, like in terms of rank, depending on the years, but with all that, we cannot treat a person sick with uh, Ebola or, or another disease within, within the, our, um, our operations. We have to work with others. So it's how to link with the entities that can know where is the risk, how to diagnose, and how to treat while we put the measures to prevent raise awareness and invest where it's possible and appropriate. And we say fit for purpose measures. So depending on the level of risk, you invest in how much you can uh, prevent the, the measures. So there so is a definite commitment. That's a, I appreciate your answer. It's very helpful to me. And it, it really makes a, a big point that this is, as you, as you just uh, illustrated, a very big global company. And yet, um, it, even with all its resources, there are certain things it, it can't do. Yes. For instance, ExxonMobil cannot uh, create a universal flu vaccine, right? I mean, it, so uh, you can try to treat when something happens. You can try to encourage your employees to the extent possible to uh, uh, behave in a way that prevents uh, uh, infectious disease or, uh, or the spread of, but ultimately, I mean, at least in this sense, it does, it, a public-private partnership is a necessity. And I think that's what your testimony points, that even this enormous, great company, which is, uh, uh, I would guess, unique in having somebody with your background and experience in the position you're in, still, um, it can't, it can't solve this problem itself. Yeah. And, and it's Maybe just... Maybe Monsanto can. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's just to say that no one can do it all. 
Yeah. And that's exactly. where it's important to work together, put the resources together, have one goal in terms of a given issue, and put the resources together to address it in a right. proper way. Thank you. Of course, I agree. Since no one could answer my first question, I'm going to try another one. Um, and that is <clears throat> to do with insurance coverage. Can you, anyone speak to the adequacy of the market for insurance and to the extent that companies can insure themselves against uh, the financial consequences of an outbreak? Well, very briefly, <clears throat> there are a couple of companies, uh, advisory companies to the insurance and reinsurance industries, uh, Metabiota in my city of San Francisco and a company named ARL that are very much in the business of trying to um, project risk and how exposed those companies are uh, to uh, major um, biological events That's in the case of question. Metabiota. So, um, and there have um, been some, I think, from an I'm an economist. From an economist's point of view, these biologically oriented companies have been doing a very uh, thoughtful job. A lot of the information that I needed for work I was doing with Summers came not from the academic literature, but from these uh, basically advisory companies to the insurance industry. I think there's a pretty strong view, um, and the World Bank has been developing um, mechanisms for insurance against uh, pandemics, a pretty strong view that the cost of that insurance um, in terms of the fraction of expected return is, is very high because even a big company like Munich Ray or Swiss Ray um, have to uh, deal with a great deal of risk and they have to be paid to deal with that risk. So my own take is that there's a public sector insurance requirement de facto that uh, because of this potential size of risk. Rich has another question. If I might take advantage of the uh the corporate view from Monsanto and uh, ExxonMobil as global iconic companies. We talk a lot about public-private partnership vis-a-vis -vis you and your and U.S. counterparts and U.S. government site. Uh, what kind of relationship uh, do you have, and I presume it varies, but uh, your global in nature, uh, how forthcoming are the countries with whom you deal in uh, alerting you to uh, uh, public health problems with which you might not be familiar, uh, blight on agricultural products with which you might not be familiar. What, what kind of structure do you have to ensure that the kind of information and situational awareness that you need in order to affect either the safety of your employees or the safety of your products? Uh, is, there, is there a template that you use that has proven more successful or do you still have to rely on the goodwill of the, the host country? Uh, thank you for such question. It's really a critical piece because as we look at global issues, it's really important to see how to have the local solutions. And the local solutions, as a global company, wherever we have a certain number of employees, we have a, a, a local medical director who is also engaged with the local public health authorities. So when there is something happening, they are informed, they are part of some coordination committees because the, coordin the coordination is very important. And uh, as, as issues, I would take like, I'll come back, I'll come back to, to Ebola, is that what we did is in the countries where we were, there was a risk, 
because our occupational health uh, uh, medical person related to the public health authorities and contributed to uh, the review of the needs that are in, in that location. But the best example I can see also is the joint external evaluations done by uh, CDC, USAID, WHO, where you have with the country an assessment of how the country is prepared. So you can see what are the elements to be addressed and how to work with the local authorities and the global community to address uh, these, these needs. So it's a part of how we relate to the institutions in country, a part of our national content uh, uh, perspective and, and the health protection, the protection of the health of our workers in general and community contributions. Thank you. <coughs> Questions from the ex officio panel? Dr. Crash? Yeah, just one. Um, and maybe it's a thought and you can just kind of reflect on it. So or maybe two things you could reflect on. One is it, it's clear that the private sector is doing a lot of effort in risk reduction strategies um, because it benefits you operationally and reputationally, of course, too, but even operationally. So I think maybe there's something for government to learn from that because as we were talking earlier, we seem to be more reactive and responsive rather than proactive in reducing risk. Um, and similarly with some of the, we throw around the insurance, pandemic insurance, uh, kind of thinking, whereas once again in the private sector, your insurance rates, your premiums are based on reduce, showing good practices and reducing risk versus something like the World Bank or WHO. Uh, you get $100 million when your country reaches a certain threshold of number of people dying, so it's almost incentive to let more people die and then you win the lottery and you get $100 million. Um, so they're not incentivizing reducing risk. So. Maybe your thoughts on some of that and the, the private sector's attitude or approach. I think you're, you're correct that we view risk perhaps differently as a private uh, industry and more importantly look at the valuation of it differently and how that incentivizes us both in our own work, I'm thinking agriculture, on how we create products that perhaps would benefit producers benefit farmers and solve some of those problems and de-risk the whole equation as a business model, but also just as a corporation and, and as far as the, uh, the assurance of safety and, and well-being and employment of our people, when we think of health risks for people, there's certainly a, an incentive to do that. Um, question for Monsanto. I don't think this question has been asked yet. Um, what about the um, vulnerability of your crops to diseases that could wipe out vast quantities of, of, of those crops? What you're describing is something that farmers, not only in the U.S., but around the world face every year, which is the, the environment that they are subject to that they cannot control, and it, be it rain, too much rain, or drought, be it sunshine, too much or too little, or be it diseases or pests, insect pests that they cannot control. And so similar to um, 
other entities that are out there, both federal, our, our government entities, as well as a lot of research that's done in the private area, those are the types of solutions that we look for. Can we predict all the pests and, and issues that farmers are going to face? No, but we try to. So we're trying to look 10 years, 15 years in advance and saying, what are those issues that growers are going to have at that point? What kind of disease epidemics are they going to be facing? Is it going to be fall armyworm in Africa? Is it going to be Goss's wilt in the U.S.? Is it going to be some bacterial blight in Asia that we need to prepare for and have products that will allow farmers to be able to produce food and fuel and fiber for all of us? That's what we're working on. Now, how can we, again, de-risk all of that and make it totally robust so that there's never any drops, that's pretty much impossible. But that's where we look for partnerships with like the USDA, Animal and Plant Health investing in Investigative Service to be kind of some of those forewarners for what pests and pathogens may be on the horizon that we do need to be facing. Thank you. And, and I will use the prerogative of the, of the chair to make a commercial, which is as gene editing continues to enhance our ability to do those things, we're going to need a regulatory system that keeps up with it. Thank you, gentlemen, for, uh, for being with us today and for the work you're doing. And let me then um, ask our next panel to come forward. We have uh, Dr. Henrik Burke, who is the COO of Bavarian Nordic. Jason Blumenauer of Cardinal Health, Sarah Roshak, Senior Director of Research Programs at the National Association of Tr Chain Drugstores, and Aaron Horvath, Senior VP for Distribution Services at Amerisource Bergen. Thank you all for joining us today. And let me begin by uh, asking you for your comments, Dr. Burke. Thank you. And first of all, thank you very much for the invitation and thank you for the panel's uh, continued effort in, in, in bringing this very important topic. So I represent Bavarian Nordic, uh, a company in the completely different uh, range uh, compared to the companies that we just had on, on the panel, uh, being a relatively small company, uh, completely built around biodefense initially, uh, and a company that uh, I think I can talk about uh, a lot of the stuff that we, we also heard this morning about the partnerships between the private sector uh, and the government as actually being an example of how that works, uh, because that's how we view it uh, today. Doctor, for my benefit, you get the microphone a little bit closer to you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, so in 2004, um, the, 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 the Department of Homeland Security saw smallpox as a, a huge threat uh, to, the, to the American people. Uh, as many of you know, there is a vaccine stockpile today. This vaccine, however, has the difficulty in that it doesn't protect everyone. It doesn't protect people who are immune compromised, uh, ongoing uh, different cancer treatments, uh, has been infected by HIV, pregnant women, people dealing with, uh, with other diseases. Uh, and together with BADA, uh, Bavarian Nordic actually at that point in 2006 started a partnership for the development of a uh, genera third generation vaccine that would help protect the, uh, the people of the U.S. Um, we moved into a, a, a situation where we developed uh, this vaccine completely through the clinical trials and all the way to the market uh, together with the U.S. government uh, in, in, a, in a joint effort. 
And this vaccine is now in, in the late stage on phase three uh, and is, is approved in, in the EU and Canada as a result of this partnership uh, and is today stockpiled uh, in, in, uh, in the strategic national stockpile. And the reason I bring this forward is that I've been with Bavarian Nordic for 10 years, and in those 10 years, it has been a true partnership together with Barter to get this, uh, this product to the market or to the, uh, to the US citizens. Um, and also to what the, the panel has brought, what brought up earlier was to a large extent that this requires a lot of efforts from both sides. It requires the multi-year funding because investing in capacity to have the capacity in place to make sure that we can deliver and respond to any outbreak at the speed that is needed. And, and I think the panel members have rightly, rightfully pointed that out several times. You need, before something is detected, you need to have the vaccines in place. In order for us to do that, we need multi-year funding. So at the time as this, when this first started, the collaboration with, uh, with BADA and the US government, um, this uh, biodefense, uh, bioshield, uh, had just been appropriated uh, 5.6 or 5.2 billion dollars over 10 years. Uh, this long-term commitment made it possible for us to invest in the capacity, in the clinical trials, everything needed to get this product to the market. For a company like Bavarian Nordic, it would have been, been impossible for us to do that uh, had it not been for the long-term commitment. Uh, in, in, order, in, in order for us to, to make that investment. On our side, the company Bavarian Nordic also ourselves raised more than $300 million uh, that we could invest in this. And I think that's the other leg that several of the panel members have also asked. Industry also needs to invest in this. We also need to bring our uh, part to the table. And, and I believe uh, this uh, example is, uh, is, is a good one in, in the sense of that, uh, that we've brought that. Um, since that, in 2014, um, this appropriation has now been gone down to an annual appropriation, meaning that the funds will only be allocated or appropriated uh, annually. Uh, and uh, that certainty, the long-term certainty of knowing what do we have, makes it very, very difficult for us to operate in that climate. Um, it's something that, that still we are trying to do. Um, Bavarian Nordic has most recently uh, invested uh, together with the U.S. government in developing a freeze-dried vaccine that will not only make it easier to stockpile, uh, but it'll also make it uh, cheaper. It'll make it easier to distribute. Bavarian Nordic ourselves have invested $75 million in a fill-finish line that will also help uh, bringing down the cost to the U.S. citizens. But again, all of that needs to happen in the context of a long-term commitment. Uh, that I think several of you have already brought forward uh, during, these during these discussions. Doctor, if I may, what kind of vaccine was that that you're working on now? That's for the smallpox, against uh -huh. smallpox. So we really appreciate um, the support of this panel. Uh, we appreciate uh, the support that we've received from, uh, from all the supporters that we have out there in, uh, in, in the community. Um, Bringing this product to the market could not have happened without a collaboration between Bayer and Bavarian Nordic. Um, so to a large extent, um, Immune, which is the name of the smallpox vaccine, uh, would never have hit the stockpile uh, had it not been for that collaboration. Uh, but as we've heard from multiple people uh, this morning, the speakers in this panel, 
uh, it requires a long-term view and it requires uh, multi-year funding in order for us to keep that capacity in place. So the commitment from a company uh, as Bavaria Nordic stands. Uh, we're here to not only ensure the development and the production, but also the continued uh, support and, um, uh, and deliver uh, and, and, and meeting any crisis that we have um, for, for, uh, for diseases like the ones we're facing. Thank you, Dr. Burke, and I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you to Bavaria Nordic for being a financial supporter of this, of this panel. Um, it's been very helpful to us. Thank you. Mr. Blumenau. Yes, first I want to say thank you very much. Uh, myself and Cardinal Health, very appreciative of being able to sit here uh, with the panel. Um, I'm the Director of Global Security at Cardinal Health. We're headquartered in Dublin, Ohio. Uh, and basically what Cardinal Health does is it distributes uh, pharmaceuticals and medical supplies to critical patients in hospitals, pharmacies, clinics, and other facilities around the world. Uh, we play an essential role in the healthcare supply chain, servicing more than 24,000 pharmacies, 40,000 uh, physician offices, and providing supplies to 85% of our nation's uh, hospitals. Public-private partnership is really essential to the healthcare supply chain, and in order to ensure the availability of medical products and critical to an emergency, biological attacks, pandemic responses, or following a natural disaster or public health emergency. Medical product distributors play a unique role in emergency preparedness. We work diligently to ensure access to critical healthcare commodities for patients, providing key support to first responders. Uh, in the aftermath of disasters, Cardinal Health works tirelessly to fulfill the needs of hospitals, pharmacies, critical care centers, shelters, so that they can respond and best aid those in need uh, during these incidents. Our employees are extraordinarily uh, resilient, and they take lengths to secure high-water vehicles, planes, helicopters, support for transport of products uh, to critical locations, while our teams on the ground work under some of the most difficult conditions uh, during these emergencies uh, with personal hardships to ensure critical life-saving drugs and medical supplies are delivered to local hospitals. So Cardinal Health does recognize the serious impact uh, that natural disasters, operational incidents, and other unplanned occurrences can have on health and safety of people and businesses and operations. So in the event of an occurrence, it's paramount that Cardinal Health prioritize protecting human health and safety and resuming normal operations as soon as possible to enable uh, essential business functions. So my global security team uh, works with our business segment operations, corporate functions, and critical supply chain partners uh, to create business resiliency plans that will minimize the impact to our customers and the healthcare industry. Uh, these plans include initial actions to protect people, property, and environment, crisis management, business continuity plans, and IT resiliency, which is very important. Uh, Cardinal Health also works closely with our customers in advance of disasters to create specific uh, business continuity plans to ensure supplies are available in the event of a disaster. Increased coordination with federal agencies in advance of disasters would significantly enhance our response capabilities. Uh, miscommunication and confusion that often happens during an emergency uh, prohibits distributors from uh, adequately responding and creates a barrier to patients to access essential care. Advanced notice uh, of what supplies, volume, and clear reentry planning would help 
to ensure products are available where and when needed. For these reasons, we strongly support a process established by the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response to facilitate the transport and distribution of essential health care goods during a presidentially declared emergency or major disaster. This process should allow collaboration and input from both industry stakeholders and other federal agencies to best coordinate an appropriate process to allow these essential businesses and associated personnel to transport and distribute life-sustaining medical products to a disaster area. It should also provide for improved communication on issues related to fuel prioritization, hospital vacancies, law enforcement access, and federal agency coordination. So we strongly support the language uh, in this current House and Senate version of the Pandemic and All-Hazard Preparedness Act that would help accomplish this goal. So Cardinal Health takes, a, takes our role in emergency preparedness extremely seriously and actively seeks to partner with the federal, state, local, tribal, territorial governments to respond to natural and man-made disasters. So again, I appreciate to be able to be here today. Thank you, sir. And Ms. Roshak. Great. Panel members, thank you for the opportunity to speak on behalf of the National Association of Chain Drugstores, NACDS, and our membership this afternoon on the important issues of distribution and surge in emergencies. Chain pharmacies serve as the face of neighborhood health care, and as such, they are willing and ready partners to support local, state, and federal responses during biological events and other emergencies. From the largest pharmacies that operate internationally with thousands of locations to the smallest with four or more stores, chain pharmacies operate every day with efficiency to provide quality patient care and medications to their customers. Pharmacies have a strong history of partnering with our local, state, and federal partners in preparation for and response to emergencies as they can leverage the strength of their supply chain and existing business operations for the benefit of the communities they serve. Not only do pharmacies have expertise in distribution, tracking, monitoring, but pharmacists are among the most highly trusted healthcare professionals, second to I think only nurses, and can identify high-risk patients, administer vaccines, and provide other patient care services. The chain drug industry represents the largest component of pharmacy practice with more than 25,000 traditional chain drug stores and an additional 16,000-plus pharmacies within supermarkets and mass merchants. They are highly accessible healthcare destinations as 89% of Americans live within five miles of a pharmacy, and chain pharmacies represent filling more than three-quarters of all prescriptions dispensed in the United States annually. People trust their pharmacies for answers and quality care in times of need. Pharmacies move swiftly into action when called upon by their public health partners to support an emergency response. An illustrative example that we've spoken about all day is the 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic. By the end of December 2009, most states had opened vaccination to all members of the public and a vaccine surplus was projected. Subsequently, the CDC, in partnership with the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, ASTO, and NACDS, looked for a new pathway to ensure people in need receive the vaccine. 
And so the CDC worked with 10 of the 15 largest U.S. pharmacies to participate in their 2009 H1N1 vaccine pharmacy initiative. From December 2009 to February 2010, the CDC distributed nearly 500,000 doses of H1N1 vaccine to these chain pharmacies. The pharmacies in turn distributed the vaccine to more than 10,700 retail stores nationwide. That amount of vaccine that uh, CDC directly distributed to chain pharmacies comprised approximately 23% of all vaccine distributed during the same time period to the same participating states. And overall, approximately 10% of adults who received the H1N1 influenza vaccine reported getting it at a pharmacy. In debriefs after participating in the CDC's initiative, Pharmacies reported when asked that the majority of their locations had received little or no vaccine from states prior to the beginning of CDC's initiative. It was also reported that insurers like Medicaid in some states denied requests for administration fees for vaccination given in a pharmacy setting. As a result of this experience, ASTO and CDC developed frameworks to formalize partnerships between pharmacies and public health and looked for additional opportunities to collaborate. In many respects, the 2009 pandemic served as a tipping point that expanded public health's understanding and perceptions of pharmacies and their capabilities to offer vaccine and potentially other countermeasures in emergencies. So it's been nearly 10 years since H1N1, and during that time, partnerships have continued to grow across public health and pharmacy. Just last year, pharmacies provided disaster relief in areas impacted by the hurricanes, including Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico, sending truckloads of water and food to disaster areas, donating more than 40 million in cash and in-kind support, opening mobile pharmacies to provide access to medications and patient care services, and facilitating one-time refills of emergency medications. In many ways, last year's hurricane season tested the resiliency of pharmacies as many were heavily, uh, heavily impacted and worked to regain power and reopen as swiftly as possible. While there were many achievements to highlight, there are still a lot of barriers too. Supply chain issues that often arise for pharmacies in disasters, including credentialing of staff to regain entry into affected areas and continuity of operations, um, could be impediments within the supply chain, delaying the flow of product to stores. Yet still other barriers exist to provide critical medication to the patients they serve in emergencies, which can largely be alleviated through partnership and understanding of governors and other state officials. Swift declarations of emergencies state by state can allow pharmacies to pull the various levers needed to fully support their communities. Pharmacies do their best to support everyone who visits their stores and their mobile pharmacies during disasters. And there are some federal programs that exist to make this effort seamless, like EPAP, the Emergency Prescription Assistance Program, which provides prescription drugs and vaccinations, among other benefits to uninsured patients for free in federally identified disaster areas. However, as we saw during last year's hurricanes, the cost-sharing element of EPAP between state government and federal government can be problematic. Several uh, states last year decided not to activate EPAP because of that cost-sharing issue. 
Um, so unfortunately, the program that could have done so much in some areas um, did not. The authority given to pharmacists differs greatly state by state, and during disasters, there can be a lack of clarity around transfers, controls, day supply limits, and emergency fills of medication. For a chain pharmacy that is managing a disaster spanning multiple states, the company likely has the burden of juggling multiple different emergency rules and operations in each of those states. In speaking to one of our members from last hurricane season, he cited having eight different states with eight different emergency pharmacy laws ongoing during the disaster all at once. Um, these unnecessary inconsistencies can create logistical and operational barriers that impede response. Further, the use of standing orders in emergencies can allow pharmacists to more easily provide patient care services like vaccinations and provide emergency medication to those who need it. Breaking down legal and regulatory barriers to support patient care is crucial in emergencies. Pharmacies have the will and capacity to respond, but it truly takes a cross-disciplinary team to make that response most meaningful and most productive. I believe in the 2017 hurricane season, um, in addition to many disasters before it, um, we had a great opportunity to work with federal, state, and local partners and nonprofit partners like Healthcare Ready to address and overcome these barriers, but more change and partnership is needed. So this was a long-winded way of saying that pharmacies augment the reach of public health. Pharmacies are uniquely positioned to move medications and provide patient care services to those who need it, both during biological responses and other types of emergencies. They've de uh, demonstrated their ability to partner across the care continuum and build public-private partnerships. And while some barriers exist, pharmacies are willing partners looking for solutions to move ahead. Thank you very much. I wasn't long-winded at all. Uh, Mr. Blumenauer, I, I would venture to say that <clears throat> most people have no idea that your company or company, the couple of companies like yours exist. The, um, they don't realize that the, the manufacturers ship to the distributors, and then the, dis the demand is created by the pharmacies, by the hospitals, by the uh, healthcare providers, who then contact companies like yours. And there are only, how many, so there's how many companies are in, the, are in the business of significant size? Significant size, we, three, there's three, three, three of you, right. Um, and so, um, I, I wonder what, where the weak link is, what keeps you up at night. Um, I, I imagine something, when I'm thinking about something, in one part of the country, um, there's some kind of an outbreak, and so you start, the demand starts, and now you, you have only so much product on hand at any time, and you have to start to be thinking, well, as this thing spreads, am I going to send more than I should to one area because they're demanding, and then run out you know, later on in the week. So how, how do you, what keeps you up at night? What's a weak link and what can we do about it? Right, no, great question. Thank you very much, sir. Um, actually, um, the weak link is really aligning the business continuity plans together uh, with the manufacturers, with the federal government, with the countries that we're involved with, uh, really being as proactive as possible. So if there is an opportunity to have things in place uh, that can allow us to initiate action sooner than later, that's definitely what we want to do. And then also making sure that we're reaching the right people. If we are 
creating a business continuity plan, is there a specific point of contact? Because a lot of times there's going to be several different points of contact that might not be talking to each other. So being able to allow who those points of contact are in that business continuity plan allows us to activate the crisis management plan quicker and, and then being able to engage and get the product to where it's needed publicly. I'm sorry, but so who are the players that need to talk to each one another? So the, the players would be we would work with the manufacturers and then with uh, the, the federal agencies uh, if it's in the United States or with the government agencies in, in, in the countries that we're involved with. Questions? Senator Lieberman. Jim, oh, go ahead. No, no, no go, go ahead, John. No, no. Okay, I'll follow up on that. So is there that kind of uh, uh, ongoing uh, uh, communication between Cardinal, presumably the other two, companies and the federal government that you just described? We do that several different ways. So we do, as, as mentioned earlier, Healthcare Ready is a great uh, component of that, which aligns the, uh, the private sector with the federal government. Uh, then we also uh, sit on that board. So our senior leadership sits on Healthcare Ready's board to make sure that we have those communications. What are they, what are they called? It's called Healthcare Ready. Oh, yeah, I don't know about it. And What's, great, what is its status? It's a public-private? It's a uh, nonprofit um, that, that works together with both federal and, and the private sector uh -huh. uh, yeah. to engage that communication when needed. Uh, we also work with HDA, so the Healthcare Distribution Alliance, uh, to align with them and the federal agencies. And then, of course, the, the different agencies that get engaged during a crisis. Uh, at the Fusion Center, we try to engage with the different fusion centers across uh, the nation uh, to make sure that we have those, those reactionary opportunities uh, when needed. So um, I want to come back to Dr. Burke in a minute, but... Um, obviously, you, you don't, you, neither you nor the pharmacies develop products, uh, uh, medications, vaccines. You are part of a distribution um, cycle. But if uh, an infectious disease um, epidemic, pandemic occurred, uh, I can hear my mother saying, say, God forbid now, um, the, uh, are, are you ready? Do you, in other words, are you ready for your role Understanding that you, you can't manufacture the vaccine, but do, do, you, do you and your distribution system and the pharmacies have plans on the shelf to, to implement right away? Yes, sir, we do. Um, we do have business continuity plans and crisis management plans where we do have PPE uh, engaged, where we are able to get that out to the associates, making sure that... Uh, we have associates that if, if we can't bring them to the distribution center that might be in an affected location, we have those backup distribution centers that can maintain uh, that process. Yeah. So from your testimony, I assume you've already done that in some cases, uh, Ms. Rojic, as in the hurricanes. Yeah. So, I mean, the role of um, pharmacies during a disaster is simply an augmented, surged version of what they're doing every single day. And yeah. I think it's fair to say that would apply right. to the distributors, too, that, you know, what we're doing every day, you have the plans to do it. They have disaster plans on top of that. And then they're able to um, to surge up from that existing level, whereas, you know, public health agencies, their expertise is in 
epidemiology and science and, and other public health functions, not necessarily logistics, which is where the synergy of the public-private partnership can be exceptionally helpful because this is something that industry does every day. So uh, again, I'll ask you the same question. Do you have the, the, the pharmacies or your association have ongoing communication with the relevant federal agencies so that um, you're not gonna start fresh uh, or spontaneously when the uh, uh, pandem pandemic breaks out? Right, yeah, so all of the companies are thinking about emergency preparedness. Some of the even larger ones have emergency operations um, centers and yeah. full-time staff focused on this issue. Um, they're coordinating with federal entities either directly through us, through Healthcare Ready, as mentioned before as well, to um, stay informed and prepared. And, and the, how about uh, preparatory interaction with the relevant federal or state agencies? Is that ongoing also? Right, so there are ongoing efforts. The um, example that I mentioned during H1N1, that uh, was probably more of a spur of the moment um, effort that went into place because um, the other efforts to get vaccine out were not necessarily moving as quickly as necessary to get such a high volume out so quickly. Right. So what they ended up doing was getting together their distributor that they use for the Vaccines for Children's program and pulling together several large pharmacies very, very quickly to be able to do that on a drop of a dime. But all of that is only possible through having these relationships in yeah. advance and planning. So I appreciate it. I'll um, just say that during um, my time on the uh, Senate Go uh, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, Senator Collins, Susan Collins of Maine and I did a uh, and the committee investigation after the fact of Hurricane Katrina. And we did one hearing, is quite memorable to me, where we had three private sector witnesses. One was Walmart, the other was one of the big utilities in the Gulf Coast region. The third, I think, was a bank. But um, we were struck, the committee was struck by the fact that Walmart and the utility um, actually performed better than the government in uh, their lo those local areas because they were ready. There was a, a man there who said, had, within Walmart he was called um, their, the Walmart Secretary of Homeland Security. In other words, he, he headed the, uh, and it was quite impressive. I'm just saying this to you to say that, again, God forbid we face this moment, which I'm afraid we will, the, the role of your two groups is gonna be critical to um, assuming that uh, uh, Dr. Burke and his sector produce with government partnership uh, the vaccines to getting them out there to save people's lives. Thank you. I suspect that the Walmart Secretary of uh, Homeland Security made more money than the U.S. Secretary of yeah. Homeland yeah. Senator Daschle is next. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to just drill down a little bit, if we could, on, on this whole notion of a public-private partnership that has been the subject of so much of what we've talked about today. In some ways, we, we do the whole concept of disservice in its simplicity as we reference it. Public-private partnership almost sounds like a public entity and a private entity and a partnership between the two. But you are all part of the private sector and have to deal with a myriad of public entities at the federal level, 
the congressional level, the executive level, at the state, the local level, tribal level, foreign government level. What I, as you look at that organizational maze, how, as private sector participants who rely on a public-private partnership to, to do what you need to do, how do you look at that myriad of agencies and come up with an effective way of coordinating with all that, that uh, array of, of, of governmental authority uh, at all levels? So I can begin. Um, so I think from our point of view, we of course needed, even being a small company, to have a government affairs office in, in, in DC to help us uh, sort out who to address in, 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 in which instances. But I think also having a one point of contact uh, with BADA to have someone, I think again it's been addressed again and again today, having one place where the buck stops, someone who's responsible is, is key to have someone within the, within the government who can actually help you try to dissect where you're going. Um, and I think back to the previous topic that we just discussed, even with drug development, even early on doing drug development in a way that will help uh, both the distributors and the pharmacists uh, to make sure they can distribute their products easily, uh, affordable, uh, and maintain uh, the correct cold chain all the way through is essential, and even having that discussion with us, the drug developers, the manufacturers early on is important. So I think, uh, again, one single entity who's responsible is, is crucial in order for us to, uh, to make this a success. But just to clarify, uh, we don't have that single entity today. I know, I know, uh, but so I think- So in its place, what do you, do? that's the ideal. Um, are you able to isolate it down in in case of the federal government to, uh, if not one, a few that give you the kind of confidence you need to to work in a an effective public-private partnership? Yes, and I and I think that's that's I think is the partnership in terms of having someone on the other side within the government who can help you find also the people you need to talk to. So I think you can dissect it down to a few, of course. The federal agency on FDA, uh, you need people there that can help you bring the product to the market. You need to be able to speak to the CDC, the SNS, to understand what's exactly needed in terms of distribution. You need PADA to understand uh, what it is you're responding to, to help you with the development, help you with the funding. Uh, and But it requires a lot of effort, no doubt about it. Mr. Blumenauer? It's a great question and one that uh, we, we tackle every day. Um, <clears throat> I, I would say that you know most of us, we have a great government relations team and, and building those relationships, but it almost goes back to uh, where we were talking about dating earlier uh, in, in the meeting uh, and having that open communication and that trust uh, and being able to communicate sooner than later. Uh, I think is key and, and vital across the globe uh, and allowing that ability to know that you can pick up a phone, reach somebody, they know who you are, you know who they are, uh, and being able to start that dialogue because really it's the dialogue that gets the action started uh, sooner than later. Ms. Rosak? Sure. So um, using last year's hurricane season as an example, we had um, really good dialogue with the federal government to help us with some of the issues in the states. Um, 
allowing pharmacies to have certain authorities like um, you know, filling uh, prescription emergency refills and things like that. Um, and there are some uh, situations that may come up that you don't necessarily um, expect. Like for instance, there was one um, public health meeting in Puerto Rico where a head authority basically said in an open meeting with a lot of people, um, you know, now pharmacies have the authority to do X, Y, Z, and we're working on the paperwork. But our members could not move on that because of the concerns with liability, they needed, you know, the information that was the exact same thing, but on a, you know, piece of paper signed by the appropriate authorities to be able to move ahead. So those are some instances where, you know, we can help working with the federal government to communicate that, um, you know, we need those formal procedures in place um, as soon as possible. Um, but beyond working with the federal government, um, we've had a lot of success working with state and local government too. Um, Washington State is always a very good example of having really sophisticated emergency preparedness plans. Um, but those partnerships and the way that they work with pharmacies there, it did not occur overnight. It's been probably a 10 to 15 year process of the leaders in that state wanting to build partnerships, finding mutual goals, shared interest, and working year after year to kind of make that happen and become an example that other states can look to. Could I just follow up with one other aspect of this? And that is, you've heard us express frustration frequently that with the compelling information that, 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 that exists and with the recommendations that the Blue Ribbon Study Panel have made, sometimes it's frustrating for us not to see more action not to see more traction around the things that we've tried to recommend or that we have recommended. And uh, that's true in both the executive branch and the legislative branch. It doesn't seem to matter whether it's a Republican or a Democratic uh, administration. Let me turn the tables and ask the same question about the health industry as a whole. To what extent do you think these issues have a priority in the industry itself? Are we getting satisfactory traction and, and response and prioritization in your sector? Uh, I don't think we're getting it in the government, but I've never heard anybody comment on whether, you know, where this fits in the overall scheme of things in the industry itself. Could you comment on that? Yes, yeah, so I think within the sector, uh, the situation is more or less similar to what you're describing in, in the sense that in order for, and it's something we meet very often when we talk to our investors, being a publicly traded company, there is a focus on return on investment. Uh, what is it we're getting uh, from, from the shareholders' point of view? Being in biodefense is, is not something that is, is always easy. Uh, so there's, of course, a lot of push, even from shareholders, uh, on saying, what's the long-term commitment on this? Uh, so, of course, we also see that. As we heard earlier today, there are a lot of other pending priorities moving in, uh, and we also feel that. We feel it both from the partnerships with the U.S. government, for example, and we also feel it within the industry uh, that there is also a lot of shift in there and, and a lot of push on maybe moving to something that is more profitable, has a more long-term uh, gain for the company and a different profile for the shareholders. So it takes quite some stamina to stay in biodefense as things are now, no doubt about it. 
It's a great question, sir. I mean, I'm very fortunate to be within global security. So um, when we do talk about a crisis and we do talk about uh, figuring out what a solution is, I, I get to work hand in hand with our competitors. Um, and our job is to essentially figure out how to manage that supply chain in a secure manner uh, to make sure it gets to the people that need it. So. <clears throat> Uh, I'm, you know, I get to see our competitors come together. We get on calls uh, when there is an incident, and we figure out how to align each other's strengths uh, to make sure that we're supporting that crisis as as needed. Um, and from the pharmacy perspective, I think the biggest takeaway for us is that pharmacies truly are. Um, members of their communities and have an affinity to the people that um, frequent their pharmacy every day and a responsibility to support those people and provide medications to them and patient care um, at all times. And so whenever we've engaged in these issues or try to get our members um, supporting that, um, we do find that there's that shared interest which is common across public health agencies as to as well of really wanting to support these efforts um, and be an active participant. Thank you very much. Ridge. Yes, uh, Dr. Burke, if I might, uh, first of all, again, I want to thank you for your appearance and also for the company's support of the panel. When I think of a resilient company or a resilient country, I think in a couple of, uh, around that term of two dimensions. One is for the company or the country to be able to endure uh, a massive hit of some kind, uh, be it a natural disaster, a public health challenge, whatever it might be, quickly recover and move on. Uh, but I think the other uh, element of resilience, at least in my mind, is being able to identify a potential problem and being prepared in advance for that problem and hopefully the preparation is never required. It gets us to the whole point of medical countermeasures, gets us to the importance of giving companies such as yours long-term commitments, because when we ask the private sector to take on research and development efforts targeted toward getting a vaccine or a countermeasure, uh, that we hope we will never use, but we've got to incentivize you to do it because we're gonna put it in the stockpile and never use it. And some people would say, we're just throwing good money after bad. And I say, no, that's part of building a resilient country. Could you emphasize again how important it was for you to have that long-term commitment to develop that smallpox vaccine and how important it is to you and other companies for Congress to understand, but also embed as a matter of public policy, the notion that once they make a commitment, it is not subject to the annual appropriations process because the research you put into play and the work you commence is not conducive to stopping and starting. Please comment. Yes, you're quite right. Um, that is in, indeed the, the situation. So we would not have been able to carry Immune, which is a smallpox vaccine, uh, to the stockpile without a long-term commitment financially. It takes up to a billion dollars uh, to develop a drug, take it all the way through. 
to, 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 to approval. Uh, we're at the stage now where Immune this second half of this year will go into phase three. Uh, the phase three is completed with outstanding results. This could not have happened uh, without the resolve also from the US government and, and the assistance and, and, and the long-term commitment. When we break it down to annual funding, when we go down to that stage, it becomes more and more difficult for us to have a financially viable company that can actually sustain the capacity that's needed to be able to produce in the time, the time frame that's needed, but also within the cost that's reasonable to the US taxpayers. So in order for us to maintain that production equipment and to keep the facility running, we need a long-term commitment. We're willing to make those investments that are needed and also carry our side of the burden, but it needs to come with a long-term commitment. Uh, and I think, again, the relationship we've had with, with the US government in particular, but also the CDC and SNS, has been a, a partnership where they've assisted us also in the early part of drug development We've also taken our responsibility past also just developing, producing, and delivering the drug. I myself have been with Bavarian Nordic for close to 10 years. I've been part of both the early clinical trials, but I've also been part of planning distributions with the SNS, taking our responsibility beyond. And I think this is the partnerships that has also been addressed from the other panelists, that there needs to be a uh, an open and honest dialogue on where we can assist each other to get there. But it all comes from a long-term commitment, otherwise it's not viable. And then at the moment we see more companies leaving biodefense than actually going into biodefense, because it's, it's very difficult for us to defend to the shareholders, uh, just from a, a pure business point of view. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, can I ask a quick follow-on? Sure. Uh, which is this, uh, uh, Dr. Burke. In terms of the long-term commitment, I just want to clarify. Um, I presume you're talking not just about uh, federal government uh, investing in the, the development of the drug, but don't you also need a commitment that the government will purchase product? Because I mean, right? Yes, very much so. So I think it's of course both the the early development. Uh, as, as pointed out here, that you know we need to be able to find those drugs and find those vaccines, the medical countermeasures that are there in place before we need them, uh, but also the purchase uh, of of, uh, of materials and drug product into the national stockpile. So, I mean, to, to the extent that you can uh, talk about it here, I presume you you have that commitment with regard to the smallpox vaccine from the federal government. So right now we have the, the U.S. government have purchased uh, enough material to uh, to protect 14 million people. Uh, the U.S. government themselves have identified up to 66 million Americans who needs this vaccine. Uh -huh. So currently that's what has been appropriated or has been been able to get funding is for 14 million American, whereas we need to protect up to 66 million Americans. So at some point then, I don't know where you are in production meeting that target, you're not going to be able to operate the line because no one else is buying the vaccine than the government, right? That's correct. So right now we're working on a freestyle uh, version of, of, of the vaccine that will allow us to store it for a longer period uh, here. And there has been uh, funding appropriated for, for this. 
uh, and then we're waiting for the orders to build up to potentially up to 66 million Americans. Okay, otherwise your shareholders are going to be unhappy. Shareholders, but also keeping the line and keeping all this development work we've sure. done the line is, is going to stop because okay. of, there comes Thanks. a point where we cannot sustain it. Governor, Governor Rich has another question. Well, I'm just going to add uh, to my friend and colleague's observation that the other, I think, uh, benefit of enhancing those stockpiles to a certain extent is our ability to distribute them globally if it's needed elsewhere, mm. which would prevent the potential of, uh, given the globalization of the disease, uh, to uh, migrate to the United States. So I think you've got a, there's a, a twofold benefit. One, you enhance the resilience of your own country, but from a humanitarian point of view, and you're asking America to provide global leadership in the public health arena, you've got a stockpile. So if smallpox in Asia, Africa, or someplace like that, we had in 14, we are there, like we're there after the tsunami, we're there after the hurricane, we're after there. But now, when it becomes a public health problem, potentially globally, we have an opportunity to extend assistance, which I happen to think is probably as important as any military or diplomatic aid going, but that's just Tom Ridge's opinion. Mr. Weinstein, questions? Thanks, Jim. Yes. Um, thanks for the remarks. Uh, very helpful. Um, Ms. Rozak, I want to follow up on something you said that I found intriguing. You said that um, all the different states have different emergency pharmacy rules um, that apply uh, to distribution in the case of an emergency, and that, that seems pretty, pretty troubling. Um, so I guess my question to you would be, um, assuming that's unacceptable, which it seems like anybody, any observer would say it is, what would be the mechanism for trying to address that? And maybe, maybe there have been mechanisms attempted in the past, but I'm looking at, you know, from the lawyer's perspective in the, in the law field, you know, there are model codes and model rules, and they're created by getting a bunch of lawyers in a room to argue, and being lawyers, they argue and argue and argue, but they end up producing a set of sort of model rules. And is is that the kind of thing that, that is required here? It just seems like the last, I mean, what I just talked about, whether it's a model criminal rule or whatever, that's just to deal with the status quo, regular routine processing of cases. Here we're talking about rules that are designed to address an emergency that the, the time that we most need forethought and harmonized rules across borders. Um, you know, what, what would you suggest as sort of the best way of addressing that situation? So I think part of the conversation could be directed towards governors and then the other part of the conversation about um, having ideal rules maybe towards um, the National Alliance of um, uh, Boards of Pharmacy, so NABP, and they they may have suggestions already as to what um, what is ideal, because I know they do do some work in emergency preparedness, so the framework of what's ideal might be out there, but the actual implementation of um, the suggested routes is not necessarily happening at the state level, and part of the, um, broader overarching issue is that um, rules that govern pharmacies every day differ in every single state. So, um, you know, some states might have a vaccination um, law that you can only vaccinate people over 18, but then in an emergency you find that there's a need to vaccinate much younger people, and then you have to on the spot create a standing order to say, you know, six months and up can be vaccinated by a pharmacy. or um, 
so there, there are situations like that, that if there were um, laws that kind of allowed for pharmacies to do these patient care services every day, it would be better in disaster, so you're not hurrying up and trying to change things. But then, of course, um, there are some rules that go into effect upon declaration of an emergency, depending state by state. So the sooner that the declaration can go into effect, the quicker some of those other mechanisms can happen. So you're not aware of any effort to date to try to harmonize all these rules? So there might be an effort to date mm -hmm. to try and do that. I'm not particularly familiar with it. I'm sure our legal department is, mm -hmm. but um, the actual implementation of watching how it unfolded in the last few mm -hmm. hurricane seasons, I would say it's not uniform in the implementation of how we do it. I'd love to drill down on that. Thank you. Questions from the ex officio, Dr. Post. It's been, again, another fascinating day. I think it's important, although we're focusing appropriately on uh, new capacities to deal with new threats, I think we also need to remind ourselves that that also will be imposed on a healthcare system which is already saturated. And so we're having to deal with hospitals which are at limit, supply chains which are at limit. And so as Peter Daszak elegantly described it, it but it goes well beyond tourism and airline travel and the energy supply sector. We need to remind ourselves that 85% of the medicines dispensed in the United States are generics, and a large number of those are sourced out of China and India. So even with no malevolence involved, simply a disruption of supply chain in the generics, and bear in mind that the average 65-year-old is taking three drugs, and the average 75-year-old is taking seven drugs, the potential dislocation here, and if you look at modeling, one of the biggest possible factors beyond the obvious issue of breakdown of social order as a consequence of panic, the quickest way that erosion of trust will occur is when people can't get access to even the most routine of medicines. I thought the social order was already broken, but apparently. Question. Only, only in Washington. <laughs> Any other questions from the ex officio panel? Uh, Dr. Alexander. I wanted to go back to what the governor uh, tried to communicate about uh, the nature of the threat. And the question to, to the panel is, do you see any obligation um, from the point of view of business national security concerns in terms of assessing the nature uh, and intensity and potential of the threats um, in terms of uh, various uh, possible scenarios that we see are developing almost on a daily basis such as uh, poisoning of uh, food and uh, uh, drinks and milk and so on and so forth. So my question basically is, whose responsibility is it to assess the priorities of the nature of the threat? Is it the private sector or government or some sort of coordination. 
Thank you for the question. Um, I would believe um, that that will need to happen in a collaboration. Uh, so of course there would need to be from the government sector a, a, a pushback and an identification of a threat um, and a prioritization uh, of that threat. And it's, it's our industry's uh, responsibility to come up with a solution that's viable uh, in, in terms of both distribution, but also in terms of uh, financially for the U.S. taxpayers. Any other questions from anyone at all? Dr. Yeah, Parker? just really a comment to follow up um, that if an investment in vaccines, diagnostics, countermeasures for biodefense are really critical for our resilience, yet um, we find ourselves at a time when more companies are leaving biodefense than coming into biodefense, I think it's a, a big issue. Indeed. All right, we are. We thank you, the panel, very much for your for your presence and all the work that you do. Um, we are remarkably seven minutes ahead of schedule, thanks to the lack of filibustering from my fellow panelists here. And um, so we will take a uh, a sixteen minute break and return here at uh, at um, two forty.
check, check.
All right, let's get our panel reassembled up here. Just goes to show you, you give some people 16 minutes and they take 18. All right, now am I ready here? So thank you. We've talked about distribution. We're now going to um, go into the subject of critical infrastructure. And for this panel, we have uh, two guests. The first is Mr. Terrell Harris, who's the corporate VP and head of worldwide security at FedEx Corporation and Ms. Ann Bouchain, who is the CEO of some company called Ridge Cybersecurity Institute. And she's a former senior VP of National Security and Emergency Preparedness here at the U.S. Chamber of Congress. Commerce, thank you very much for being here. And uh, we'll start uh, with Mr. Harris. Good afternoon. Sorry, microphone. <laughs> Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Terry Harris. I'm the uh, Chief Security Officer. Fairly directional, so just turn the mic towards yourself. Okay. There you go. All right. Again, I'm Terry Harris. I'm, I'm the Chief Security Officer for FedEx Corporation. I appreciate very much the opportunity to be here and participate in this discussion today and, uh, and thank this panel for, for all the work on this critical issue to, uh, uh, to our country. Uh, in, in my capacity as a Chief Security Officer, I'm responsible for uh, leading our security teams across the globe and across all of our operating companies uh, whose mission is to protect our people, our assets, and our customers' property. We're a $60 billion company with 425,000 employees serving roughly 220 companies, I mean countries, excuse me. I think we have 660 aircraft. There's not a day that goes by or an hour really that there's not an aircraft of ours in the air somewhere along with 170,000 trucks and 5,000 facilities. I mean, we have a huge global uh, footprint. Biohazards uh, are, are clearly uh, one, of the, you know, one of the major threats uh, that, we, that we face uh, or manage daily or, or constantly at, at FedEx, both the, in, uh, both the intentional and malicious type, uh, as well as, uh, you know, I guess the unintentional uh, types of biohazards and, and, of course, those that arise from infectious diseases, uh, epidemics and pandemics and so forth. Uh, we strive to be as proactively prepared as we possibly can to the best of our ability, uh, while at the same time maintaining a, as, uh, you know, our reactive abilities, which, uh, uh, which we are very strong in terms of being able to react in crisis time. Uh, as we are, we are part of critical infrastructure uh, in multiple ways. I mean, the movement of goods across the globe, we're a key, certainly a key part of our international, uh, our world economy as well as the U.S. economy. Uh, but we're also critical infrastructure in that we provide services to the, uh, to the government and other agencies in times of crisis. Uh, if we had biological events, we're a key partner uh, for our governmental entities and we provide and have a long history of providing services uh, uh, in that regard. So I think you know de our designation as, as critical infrastructure is certainly uh, clear. We have uh, we certainly do not want to be the victim of a biological attack. Uh, we don't want to be used as a as a transporter or a facilitator uh, of harm harmful materials. Uh, 
both in terms of those that expose our employees or expose the general public, and we want to be in a position always to, to assist the government or any governmental agencies in, in times of, of crisis related to, uh, to biological attacks. Uh, we support the work of this, uh, of, of this panel and, and, and the numerous uh, uh, recommendations. It is our, uh, certainly our recommendation or our, our that, uh, uh, that, there, that there is centralized coordination, uh, regardless of which agency it may be, uh, along with a, a, a strong uh, role of the private sector. Uh, stakeholders uh, like FedEx and other companies like ours, we should be involved uh, in the process. We need the advice and uh, guidance of our of our governmental entities uh, to help us uh, in preparation and response. We don't rely on governmental entities alone uh, for that, but we do need the expertise of, uh, of the United States government and other um, entities to help us in, in, in preparing our plans and, of course, in responding uh, to, uh, to any types of, of events. Uh, I guess the last point I would make on that is we also need, as we do with all threats that are out there, like the types that are in the terrorist uh, world, we need great, in we need intel. We need intelligence sharing with our governmental uh, partners, law enforcement and intelligence agencies. Uh, we need that, we need that timely, so when we, when we do get that information, we are able to prepare ourselves and, and prevent uh, attacks against, uh, against our company. Again, we are uh, uh, pleased to be part of, uh, part of the conversation today, and I look forward to uh, answering your questions. Thank you. Ms. Bouchain. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Um, as was said, I'm Ann Bouchain, and I have the pleasure of working with Governor Tom Ridge at Ridge Global. Previously, I was here at the U.S. Chamber and ran their National Security Department, and so we covered everything from supply chain issues to pandemics uh, to cybersecurity and emergency preparedness. So I thought I'd just start out talking a little bit about critical infrastructure and what exactly we mean by that term. Um, it is the essential services that support our society and serve as the backbone of our nation's economy, security, and health. We know it as the power we use in our homes, the water we drink, the transportation that moves us, the stores we shop in, and the communication systems we rely on to stay in touch with our friends and family. But the risk environment surrounding critical infrastructure is very complex and uncertain as threats, vulnerabilities, and consequences continue to evolve. As we know, much of the critical infrastructure is owned and operated by the private sector in this country. And to ensure the security and resilience of the nation, it is really essential that the federal government partners with the private sector. When the tragedies of 9-11 and the subsequent anthrax attacks occurred, we collectively realized that as a country, we were underprepared to respond to events of that magnitude. Many lives were lost, but what happened next was that we saw first responders, citizens, and the private sector doing their best to prevent even further harm. And the government stepped up then too, investing in critical infrastructure, seeking innovative ways to prepare the country against future emergencies. You saw the stand up of ISACs, Information Sharing Analysis Center, Sector Coordinating uh, Councils, et cetera. Today's threats to critical infrastructure range from incidents that are highly likely to occur, such as natural disasters and other weather-related incidents, to incidents less likely to occur, but that would have severe consequences, such as nuclear, chemical, biological, or radiological attacks. We know that biological incidents have the potential to cause catastrophic loss. 
And these biological threats, whether as the result of a deliberate attack, an accident, or a natural outbreak, are growing and require our attention. Naturally emerging outbreaks of viruses, such as Ebola and SARS, as well as the deliberate 2001 anthrax attacks, demonstrated the impact that biological threats can have on our national security by taking lives, generating economic losses, and contributing to a loss of confidence in both our government and our critical infrastructure. As was said this morning, advancements in life sciences that benefit our health and economy and society also open us up to new avenues to actors who want to cause harm. Just about anyone can be a biohacker nowadays. Gene editing technology is cheaper and simpler than ever. Scientists have already used the technology to build a strain of horsepox, a virus not too genetically distant from smallpox, just for the fun of it. It may only be a matter of time before synthetic biology, such as weaponized pathogens, find its way into military or terrorist arsenal. And that's one reason that biological threats must remain at the top of our national security agenda. Earlier this year, the Dutch defense minister warned that the world could face a large-scale bioweapon attack within the next 10 to 15 years. The defense minister went on to say that technology for creating biological weapons had advanced dramatically in recent years while at the same time, the international community continues to underestimate the risk. As Congress and the Trump administration mull a new biodefense strategy, they should use this time in between biological crises to get ahead of the curve before the next major biological event inevitably comes our way. It took Congress seven months to fund the Zika response, and the next pandemic could move much faster than that. The risk of a biological catastrophe is set to increase further in the years to come because of the increase in global travel, our trade, and development, all of which depend on our critical infrastructure. America's critical infrastructure, with the help of ISACs and now ISAOs, like the Healthcare Ready that was mentioned earlier, our coordinating councils and our international partnerships are preparing our critical infrastructure for biological threats, but more can be done. Frankly, a biological attack is just one of the risks that critical infrastructure has to prepare for. In April 2013, two bio-threats were developed that proved vital for shaping our biodefense and global health strategy security policy over the next four years. First, the deadly toxin ricin that was found in the letters that were mailed to President Obama, a U.S. Senator, and a Mississippi judge, and second was the worrisome new strain of avian influenza that was discovered in China. These events occurred during the same week as the devastating Boston Marathon bombings. And all of these events were happening at the same time that Baghdadi announced that Al-Qaeda in Iraq had renamed themselves to ISIS, Islamic State of Iraq in Syria, because they had expanded into Syria. Those frantic weeks in 2013 led to the launch of the Global Health Security Agenda, an international partnership to build capacity and to prepare for biological threats. They led to the development of step-by-step -step playbooks for managing defense and crisis. And that led to owners of critical infrastructure and owners and operators developing their own step-by-step -step playbooks on how to manage a large-scale biological event. So with that, I'll stop. I have some specific examples for sectors, but I'll let you ask questions first. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Mr. Harris, what's, what's the worst case scenario that you have considered um, that could interrupt 
uh, shipping in a biological event and what would happen in the worst case scenario? Sorry. The worst case scenario would be uh, would be a situation where we had you know serious uh, bodily injury or or, or fatal uh, uh, you know infection of one of our employees or multiple employees. That would be the worst case scenario uh, uh, for FedEx. In terms of uh, uh, scenarios that would impact our business, it depends on it really depends on the size and, and the scope. We've been very fortunate up to up to the present. That uh, that the biological events that we have faced have been have been containable and have not uh, have not resulted in in, uh, in in disrupting our operations. We we do tend to be very flexible in terms of being able to adjust when uh, when there are areas of the world that you cannot directly serve, uh, and then we switch to the to the mode of uh, uh, of assistance uh, uh, for the government and that. Uh, in that regard, but it is really hard to come up with a worst case scenario, but it would be if we're not able to if we're not able to fly and move our move the goods around the world, uh, you know there's a, obviously there's the business impact, but then there's also the impact to uh, to our customers and, and, and the public and the businesses that depend on our movement of goods you know for their livelihoods. What kind of a situation? could actually impede your ability to move materials from point A to point B, either by land or by air? Well, there would be, I mean, I guess first off would be whether, you know, certain countries or certain parts of the world are, you know, become off limits because of the, uh, uh, because of the conditions on the ground. That would, that would be one. Uh, certainly uh, a second would be where we have uh, a, a large number of employees who are who are exposed to to uh, you know to a biohazard, and then so then we do not you know we don't have the personnel to be able to to operate uh, in a particular place. Uh, Senator Dash. Thank you both for your your remarks and your 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 comments. They've been very enlightening. I, Terry, I just ask you uh, about the. The degree to which FedEx has put a response plan in place, to what extent do you have a prospective uh, plan to address a crisis of, of this kind? Well, we have response plans in place uh, and for, for a variety uh, of, of threats, I mean, including, of course, biohazard uh, plans. Uh, the, we, we partner with our, our counterparts in our health and safety um, areas of the company, as well as our, uh, you know, flight operations and 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 ground operations, to to develop these plans uh, and ensure that our that our employees are are, are trained. Um, and of course, the ne necessary part of that is to have the latest and and best uh, information. Uh, we rely on medical and and scientific uh, uh, consultants. Outside uh, that we that we hire externally as well as uh, you know within our own company in the development of these plans, um, and we're constantly reviewing those plans on, uh, periodically you know, to make sure that we are as up to date as possible. You've heard us talk today and 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 maybe in previous settings about the lack of coordination within the government itself and the multi-agency challenges we face in, in ensuring greater coordinated and collaboration uh, efforts. 
Could you talk a little bit, either of you or both of you, about the degree to which there is sufficient collaboration in the private sector to address one of these challenges, uh, a pandemic, an epidemic, a crisis of some kind? How much thought has already gone into how we would look at infrastructure needs to address a crisis should it occur? So going back to when George Bush, Bush was president, we had a pandemic plan as a nation. Um, and that when I started working at the chamber then, and we worked with CDC, DHS, FEMA, you name it, partnered with a state or local chamber, and we did roundtables around the country on pandemic planning. And Senator Lieberman, you mentioned Walmart. Walmart actually brought in their suppliers and shared their pandemic plan with them and said, here's our plan, we want you to have one too. So we saw that partnership growing. And I, I was thinking about this. I don't know, sir, if it's whether the people aren't there, is it a people problem, or is it we don't have the, the, the pandemic bearing down on people and there's no sense of urgency? How do we get that back? Um, I think there, the vehicles exist for the public-private partnerships. We have them. We have sector coordinating councils. We have an ISAC for each sector. I think, you know, if we don't already have a coordinating council for biodefense, maybe that's something that we should have, and then we could have a coordinating one on the, on the government side. But I think what's missing is that in between these events, we need to sustain that campaign. And how do we do that without something like a pandemic bearing down on us or a bio attack? You know, we, we joke about it in the cybersecurity world too. How do we keep, keep people paying attention? And perhaps we need someone like Beyonce out there, you know, focusing on this so the general public will pay attention. But it's something We're, to we're going to have her as the next panelist. <laughs> <laughs> So it, it's a constant challenge, you know. I, I think it's a combination of the people, the timing, um, but I think we have the structure in place. So if, if just to drill down just one more level, what would be, how would you describe the confidence level you both have with regard to the capacity for coordinating uh, in the private sector in the case of a disaster today? What's your confidence level? Confidence level in collaborating with with governmental. Uh, no, primarily, well, government, but but government and the private sector. Well, I, I I would say the confidence level is high that we can do it. I'm not sure that uh, I think, uh, as as my colleague just mentioned, the you know the the intensity of those efforts does tend to ebb and flow, you know, around when we have incidents and is not necessarily consistent. Uh, at all times. I mean, when we have incidents, there's a lot, there, there's a big learning curve that occurs when there is an incident or, uh, or, or an attack somewhere in the world, and then there is a lot of intensity about uh, collaboration, but those things do tend to, do, I mean, they do tend to level off uh, in between incidents. I would agree with that. I would just add that I think my confidence in 2009, 2011 was a lot higher than it is now. I think we as a country focused more on this issue. We trained, we planned, we exercised. Since 2011, I'd say, it's kind of gone like this. We haven't seen as much money going into this. We haven't seen the training, the planning. Even if you do a Google search and look at reports that are written, they've kind of dropped off after 2013. Very helpful. Thank you both. Yeah, thanks uh, to you both is right. Um, Mr. Harris, the first thing I want to do is uh, quote Fred Smith. It's always a good idea. Yes, sir. Yeah. A 
Agreed. And uh, I, I guess I, I could be parochial and say, do I remember correctly that the whole company was based on a paper uh, he did at Yale? I have heard that. Yes, <laughs> and, uh, spread the rumor. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, that's yes, a little parochial Connecticut correct. pride. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, actually, somebody sent me a quote that Fred, from a speech Fred gave to the employees at FedEx. This is years ago. I'm not going to get it correct, but the basic idea was here at FedEx, I'm going to give you a promotional now, <laughs> the journey to better service has no final destination point. I thought that's a gr I use that a lot because uh, it basically says, yeah, we're good, but we, we got to keep getting better. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that's what motivates you as you do your work. So let me ask you this aspect of a, um, of the impact of a possible uh, bioterrorist attack or uh, infectious disease pandemic, H how do you keep the operation going? In other words, uh, uh, let's just say that th there's a, well, the, mo the most dramatic case is uh, obviously a pandemic where your own employees uh, are falling, you know? And yet the nation, um, to, to maintain some kind of stability and economic uh, viability, needs companies like FedEx to keep operating. So that, now in the case of a bioterrorist bio attack, people are going to begin to get really frightened and avoid coming out and all that stuff. And that may also impact. But I, I guess the, the, really the question, but this is an unusual, maybe, question is, if, if your employees, for good reason, stop coming to work in good numbers, how do you keep FedEx going for the rest of the country? Well, I think first off, uh, uh, it's, it's critically important that we communicate well with our employees when we do have uh, a biological event or any other type of event similar to that that could uh, disrupt our operations. And we do spend uh, a, a lot of effort and, and resources on developing uh, uh, communications for our employees in the in the event. Uh, in the last uh, Ebola crisis, uh, we did. Uh, <clears throat> I think we communicated with our employees uh, very effectively at the time, and, and and so we did have very little of that of that impact uh, that you describe. But that is certainly uh, a risk anytime right. uh, that we have a have an event. Uh, we also maintain contingency plans to, uh, to uh, you know, change our, uh, change our flight and ground networks depending on, you know, the, the ability or inability to go into certain places so that we're not just reliable on uh, or relying on just, you know, one, uh, you know, one particular location or one route. Uh, there may be times that we are limited, though, in, in certain parts of the world or maybe it could even be certain parts of uh, of the United States, but we try to be as flexible as possible so that we can adjust, and we spend a lot of time uh, in, in the company working on those type of contingencies. Okay, good enough. I appreciate that. Ms. Boshin, let me ask you this, going back to your time at the chamber. Um, do you, uh, do you th think that the membership, the member companies of the chamber generally are I understand what we said before about between crises, but uh, are, now we've had some examples. Here's one. Uh, we had ExxonMobil before. Um, are they are they thinking about this among their priorities? That, that this being, how do I deal with a, a bio uh, uh, 
uh, attack of t from terrorists or nature? Yeah, I would say definitely it makes the, the list of the threats. Um, but I think that a, a pandemic or a bio attack is different in that you would, you as a company would be looking at it differently. You'd be cross-training, right? Because it's not necessarily who's going to get sick. You don't know. So you're cross-training. You may be looking to see who has a commercial driver's license. Can, you know, can, can other people drive if our drivers right. are out? Those kinds of things. So I think planning for a pandemic or a bioattack is a little different than planning for and having your general business continuity plan. Does it, does it make the list the top five? Absolutely. Okay, well, that's, that's important, certainly among the big companies, I assume. Yes. Because it's a reality of our, uh, of our lives. Okay, thank you both very much. Governor? Well, I'll just join the Fred Smith fan club as well. To my friend, Senator Levin, please give my regards. Uh, you know, one of the previous uh, uh, participants in the panel talked about hot spots where the scientific and medical community is reasonably assured that uh, if there were to be a, a virus, it, it might, uh, the etiology might point to that part of the world. It's, I think it was Southeast Asia, it was Western South Africa. You're everywhere. You're there in every one of those countries and every one of those potential hotspots. Does that kind of just general information from the scientific community particularly uh, influence you or your colleagues, your competitors in terms of how you deal with protecting the health of your employees, not only those who are flying the aircraft, but also who are working logistics on the ground in those parts of the world? Absolutely. Uh, we, we, I mean, we, we try to keep up with uh, the, the latest information from our scientific and medical community on, on the hotspots and, and make sure that, our, that our, the, our, the employees that we have that operate in those areas or, or have the potential to operate in those areas or travel to them are, are fully are fully informed uh, of of the risks and uh, and then I, and then if need be uh, you know we don't allow uh, travel or operations in those hot spots when when they, when it is particularly uh, when the risks are particularly high and so we have to shut off service at times to uh, to certain countries and certain areas during during hot spots and. And then, uh, you know, as, as conditions change, then, you know, we can return uh, to service. But we try to keep up with that uh, and the latest, inf the latest information regarding those hotspots, you know, from our medical uh, and scientific expert consultants that we have. When it was identified, I think, in 2002, SARS in this country or elsewhere, 2014, I think it was Ebola, uh, it was obviously known, um, they were combating that in certain parts of the world. Did you change your protocol flying in and out of the countries once a major public health problem has been identified and associated with that particular venue? I don't recall the specifics but I, 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 of each of those particular venues and the actions that we took, but I know we did adjust our uh, service to to those locations and the and and restrict the ability of our employees to travel there uh, during that time. Good. Thank you. Yes. And just a quick question to follow up on uh, Senator Lieberman's note. Uh, I think you oversaw that Homeland Security group for over ten years. You interacted uh, with major companies, Fortune 100, Fortune 500, Fortune 100, whatever. You also said that the, the interest in, in, in terms of dealing with the reality of the potential impact of a, 
uh, bi biological, not necessarily attack, just a major public health problem has diminished in uh, focus and in, in how they approach it. Um, you also seen, I think I heard you recommend maybe a biodefense, uh, not ISAC, but some kind of biodefense uh, coordinating coordinate council. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Uh, I'd be very interested in you exploring for the benefit of uh, for the panel and for those in attendance uh, what you would hope to achieve if the broader business community would uh, take on that as they've done with cyber and physical attacks and the like. Well, you know, as you know, with each sector, we have a sector coordinating council. Some are better than others. Um, I think the FSISAC and the financial sector coordinating councils are certainly worthy of gold stars. I think that that cross-pollination that would need to happen with a bio-defense attack or even a pandemic, we don't necessarily have that. And I think with creating a, a bio-defense council, we could generate that so that each sector is talking to each other. They're not just talking to their sector-specific agency. I think that would help a long way in the planning. Um, to the point about sustaining it you know, during the duration, during the events, perhaps that would help. I know that the companies I dealt with that were members of ISACs and sector coordinating councils found it very beneficial. I think that might kind of keep their eye on the ball as far as planning for a biodefense attack. Well, we found out that uh, in a, more often than not, there's elevated interest in cybersecurity once there's a public report of a major incursion or exfiltration, then it wanes and it goes back up again. I guess. The challenge is, is not only democracy writ large, but our mindset is we'll get to it when we get to it, and we'll respond to uh, the incident when it happens. I, I, I just like, I like to think in the 21st century when we're far more interdependent and interconnected with the rest of the globe, that we started thinking more in preemptive terms, because this panel talks about the cost of resilience. Well, the cost of preparing sometimes doesn't look really good on the balance sheet. Uh, but it also reminds me that commercial pay me now or pay me later. And you know, obviously, if you're prepared to pay in advance, you reduce your, you mitigate your costs on the end. I know uh, that's what uh, you strongly believe. And Mr. Harris, thank you and Ann for your testimony. Uh, one follow-up question, uh, Mr. Harris. Uh, when I think about what FedEx brings on a given day, all kinds of consumer goods and so forth, but do you have any information to the extent to which FedEx delivers things that are vitally important to people's uh, health and lives. I mean, do they, medicines, um, I think of uh, oxygen tanks, that kind of thing. I don't, I don't have the specific volume statistics, but we, but we do, we do deliver and, and transport those necessary goods uh, to, uh, to the public, uh, whether it's pharmaceuticals or medicines or things that hospitals need. Uh, all, you know, the, runs the gamut of, of time-sensitive uh, uh, needed needed goods, and we do transport. Yeah, I was just wondering if if a very significant portion of your driver fleet, your fleet drivers drivers were out of commission because of the, being having a virus, whether there would be some way to prioritize. Okay, maybe we don't have to deliver all of the shoes this week, but we do have to deliver all the medicine, et cetera. I believe we would be able to prioritize uh, if, if, if we had a, a smaller workforce for a temporary period of time, we would be able to prioritize, uh, uh, you know, for the needed, the needed goods and particularly things, you know, related to emergencies for sure. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Questions from uh, Dr. Koresh? Thank you, both of you. Um, just out of curiosity, so you have the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, 
I know there's the private sector roundtable for global health security agenda, and that's another group of corporations. You have the U.S. the Business Council. Um, are you duplicating activity? Are you overwhelmed with going to too many meetings? Is it diluting? You know what you do. You're getting pulled all over the place. Or is that a good system? Or should it be more coordinated or less? And who interfaces with government and how many times? Uh, just kind of your sense from that the private sector about uh, your time spent on these things. So when I, when I was at the chamber, we did a study with, I think it's called America's Trust, um, we, in, on pandemic planning. We worked with them very carefully. Um, and then I came from the National Governors Association, so I was familiar with Nash, Nacho, 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 and um, So when I came to the chamber, we made a big effort to work at the state level as well. Um, you will hear some companies complain about, oh, every, you know, there's too many government agencies wanting to talk to us, or too many private sector organizations wanting to talk to us. Um, I don't think too much information is a bad thing myself. I think it's up to them to be able to sift out, you know, who they listen to or who their partners. I think the more the better. Ms. Levinson. Thank you both for your very thoughtful comments. And I wanted to follow up on our chair's comment about um, delivering certain kinds of materials. I know, I mean, everybody is dependent to some extent on FedEx, and that applies also to research laboratories. Um, for collaborations, there's trading of information and materials and various things um, amongst collaborators. And, and I understand that uh, your point about not wanting to put any of your employees in any particular danger or risk from their position in particular, um, and that, that as a result of that concern, you are not carrying select agents anymore. Um, I, and, and I appreciate that. I wanted to find out if, um, uh, if it applies simply to, strictly to select agents, or uh, is it broader than that? And also, um, do you have, a, you may not know the extent to which you carried select agents, how, how many in a year or so that, that would apply to. Um, and on the first question, uh, would biological materials where, like specimens that need to be transported to CDC or to a state laboratory uh, for confirmation of a diagnosis, w would, you, would your concerns apply to that as well? Yeah. Well, that, that's a lot of question in one. <laughs> I mean, first of all, the, uh, uh, the, the matter going back to 2015 where they're, they're with the suspension of, of carrying certain types of select agents does does remain uh, today. Uh, the uh, the key to us being able to transport uh, dangerous and hazardous materials uh, is, is the ability to be able to to provide the adequate precautions for our employees, for the shippers uh, and the laboratories to follow their protocols uh, that ensure the safe handling of, of of these items, and so our ability to do so. Uh, is very much dependent on that. Um, I don't have the statistics as to what we carry and, and what we don't. I know we do carry a lot of sensitive materials uh, uh, today uh, and historically uh, have done so. Uh, and when there are emergency situations or where we are needed uh, in, order, in times of crisis, uh, we have a long history of stepping up and uh, and, and doing so and carrying hazardous materials or and also going into hazardous locations. 
uh, uh, when need be, but we have we do have to protect our employees, and it's very it's critical that the that the shippers comply with all of the protocols that are necessary to keep our people safe when we do so. Dr. Parker, yeah, more of a comment than a question, but Ann, you said something I think that really struck a chord. And go back, you know, over a decade, probably beginning in the '06 time frame. With yes, pandemic preparedness and the scare of um, or th threat of H5N1 at the time, um, there was a unified budget. There was an emergency supplemental of $6 billion plus, and there was a strategic plan. There was a deep, very detailed implementation plan that identified accountable um, and supporting agencies and, and included um, the private sector, NGOs, and there was a lot of effort um, in coordination and planning between the um, public and the private sectors. Um, and there was not an outbreak or pandemic, and so there was a lot of work in this kind of inter-epidemic period. Um, and so there was leadership, there was, in, there was innovation with that, there was coordination um, and, and a strategy. Um, so I wonder why, you know, since that 210, 2011 time frame, we can't seem to regain that, that, that sense of urgency and that, that sense of what we accomplished during that period. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, I don't want to get into politics, but I, I just think it's a different time and place. Um, I do think it, a lot of it had to do with people then. that The people that, and I was a part of that here at the chamber, the people that we worked with at the CDC and the Homeland Security and HHS and the group that we had here and at the White House, I just think that there was a, this is the mission, this is what we're gonna do, and you're right, it was a very detailed plan. Um, you know, I still think it could be effective today, dust it off and look at it today. I, I don't think I'll go further than that other than I would say that, you know, we just had the right team at the right place. All right, Mr. Harris, Ms. Bouchane, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate that. And I'll now introduce our fourth and final panel, that's, uh, the topic of which is mass gatherings. So we're pleased to have with us Dr. Lou Marciani. He is the director of the National Center for Spectator Sports Safety and Security at the University of Southern Mississippi. And I imagine a lot of people would not have envisioned that there exists such a center, but that's great. And also uh, Mr. Joe Coomer, who's the VP of Security at AMB. And Mr. Marciano, Dr. Marciano, thank you very much for being with us, and uh, the floor is yours. Uh, distinguished panel, uh, I would like to thank you for the opportunity for us, both of us, to be here to talk to you about biological events at mass gatherings. Uh, I direct the National Center for Spectator Sports Safety and Security, established in 2006, uh, you know, based on the response for the nation's uh, emergency needs for safety and security for professional sports, collegiate, marathons, and high schools. Uh, we're very much associated with the critical infrastructure and also uh, FEMA's uh, training directorate. So those are two areas that we work with. The economic impact of sports is $80 billion. $80 billion. And what, is, what makes up this uh, mass gathering of people coming to events? Well, you think of Super Bowls, you're going to think of college football playoffs, Olympics, World Cup. You're going to think of all the college games coming up this fall and all the pro, pro sports, uh, all the football games this fall, plus the NBA and NHL, et cetera. And we can't forget political conventions, and we can't forget the air shows and the races, the music concerts, the marathons, and the triathlons. 
So what keeps us up at night, uh, Joe and I? Unfortunately, in today's uh, environment, mass gathering events attended by large numbers of people may be considered a terrorist target due to large concentration of people, symbolic nature of the event, high-profile attendees, and increased media attention. So terrorists and other, viol other violent criminals are placing significant emphasis on attacking soft targets. We have seen this with such uh, recent events in Nevada, New York, and Texas. So the big challenge is to ensure public safety, public health, I should say, safety and security of the public at these mass gatherings. Now, these areas are interrelated and do not fall within the exclusive domain of the private sector. The challenge is, on the contrary, mass gatherings require the public and private sectors to interact with and support one another in a complex way. That's the, that's the challenge. So I'll address some issues and challenges facing countering uh, biological threats, planning, and partnerships. My observations uh, are based on examining several venues throughout the last 12 years, ministering myself, uh, also the opportunities to be involved with the profession and gaining best practices, lessons learned. Uh, I'll conclude with some uh, recommendations on, for the private sector, the federal, uh, federal and congressional uh, assistance. So looking at countering uh, biological uh, threats, uh, the word intelligence comes, comes fast as we look at best practices. So we got to ensure intelligence regarding the intent to use biologically agents is combined with public health data. And that's a significant importance to us on the field. Improve domestic medical intelligence efforts. Continue to advance the, the national biosurveillance. And many of, many of our events below Sears 1 and 2 really lack uh, public health infrastructure. So when you get, really get down to it, we'll need help uh, in, in support of building uh, uh, public health infrastructure. It's also important to our field that we look at medical, national medical intelligence program be developed as, as, as it's, it's going on now. But a big concern to our profession is an aerial attack. It's very significant. And I say, and we've heard it today already, presently we lack the authorities needed to counter threats from unmanned aircraft systems. We need Congress assistance in providing additional counter UAS authorities to DHS and other federal departments and agencies to legally engage and mitigate UAS threats in the national airspace system. And that's what we are worried about every day. As far as... Uh, Could you I'm sorry. specify a little bit what you mean by that before you go on to the next one? Because that's that, so critical. Yeah, no, that our local agents, local law enforcement in particular, have the authority uh, to uh, detect and to deter uh, an incident that would occur at their venue. Right now, we're, we're, we're restricted, and Joe will probably get into that a little bit in his presentation. So our hands are tied in a way. We like to have some authority to do our job in, in, uh, in that process. So the other area on planning, and uh, since 9-11, I, I have to, I'm very complimentary here. Our, our venue owners, our sporting organizations, 
our event promoters have worked together with federal, state, and local law enforcement and emergency managers to develop, implement, and exercise plans to counter evolving threats posed upon us. This planning and training today is a credit to over the decades worth of building preparedness and response capabilities at the local and state level with Homeland Security grant investment. So with this investment, we were able to create some best practices that I'd like to bring forward that, that have been in the process working. The continuing effort of sharing information, multi-agency discipline training, and drills, functional operational plans as a united front will strengthen the security efforts of large-scale events anywhere across the country. Ensuring safe and successful outcomes of such huge undertakings requires a significant advanced preparation and cooperation between the number of stakeholders, include federal, state, and local agencies, as well as other public and private interests. And combining with a comprehensive biosurveillance, enhanced biological detectors, and domestic medical intelligence could help protect uh, the public population. So some recommendations for, the, for planning, it, it, as we found, it's mandatory that mass gatherings venues utilize collaborative planning processes to, to develop emergency operation plans for each venue. And the process should include high-level decision makers and ensure that planning, training, exercises, standards, and lessons learned are connected. So on the federal side, the National Center is part of our center is part of the uh, DHS's National Domestic Preparedness Consortium. The consortium is charged with, with training the nation's first responders. So presently, two million U.S. emergency responders have attended 176 courses offered by the NDPC. At the center, we have trained over 11,000 first responders since 2008. So I'm recommending that our center due to lack of training in the biological uh, defense, that we'll add additional courses to develop uh, and, and increase awareness in biological measures for mass gatherings. The audience that we'll, we will attack uh, in the sense of um, bringing into the course emergency management, emergency medical services, fire services, government administrative, hazardous materials, healthcare, law enforcement, and public health uh, safety uh, communications. So with this training, we'll be able to build capacity to, to enhance uh, training for biodefense. I also want to uh, indicate to everybody to, for your continued support for the mission of the civil support teams. They've been very much important to us in helping us uh, identify agents and substances assessing current and projected consequences, advancing, uh, advising on response measures, and assisting with requests for additional military support. In the area of partnerships, the private sector, particularly organizations such as which, who Joe represents, AMB Sports and Entertainment, and the Elitch Holdings in Detroit that host mass gatherings, may succeed more effic efficiently implementing measures in the short term. 
so we can serve, they can serve as models on how to safeguard spectators from biological threats and by, by extension that the public. At this time, coordinated response and countermeasures for biological threats in the setting of mass gathering planning still has far to go. In order to expedite and enhance this efforts, we recommend that we establish a sports and entertainment biodefense task force made up of private and public sectors entities coordinated by the National Center and respond back to this Blue Ribbon Committee with the focus being to study private sector capabilities, develop models for co contributing to the biodefense bio pre-federal assistance and resiliency planning. It is, it is not possible to protect people in large gathering places from all hazards. However, with appropriate research, with true partnerships among government, private sector, event management, and those of us in academia, risk can be hopefully be reduced. Thank you, and I'm gonna to apologize to Mr. Coomer because I failed to turn the page when introducing you and your introduction was rather short, so let me do it again. Mr. Coomer is the VP of Security at AMB Sports and Entertainment. He's the former director of security at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia, the University of Phoenix Stadium in Arizona, and the Indiana Convention Center and RCA Dome in Indianapolis, Indiana. The floor is yours, sir. Thank you, and uh, just a little more about AMB Sports Entertainment. We own the Atlanta Falcons, the Atlanta United, <clears throat> and we're the operator of Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, so we have a um, very aggressive event schedule, and we enjoy our fans um, more than anyone else when it comes to Georgia. But I do wanna thank the committee for having Dr. Marciani and I here to provide greater awareness about biodefense and bioterrorism at mass gatherings. Um, this conversation does not happen very often. Um, if it does happen, it's between small groups and it's not in the, the public light. But we as the building operators of these venues, of these stadiums, we are, we are having them. Um, when Dr. Marciano approached me about briefing this group, um, this is probably one of the first times that we're talking about it at a national level how it will impact all of our venues as we try to work together to create safety and security at them. Short of large-scale natural disaster, a biological event is one of the great unknowns for a lot of our venues and our stadiums that we don't necessarily face on a daily basis. We don't test, we don't train. Um, we have plans that review what to do, when to do it, but it's so broad in scale of what a biological event could be. Over the past 20 years, I've watched our industry trends, um, I've watched our industry adjust the trends and build partnerships with the public sector and the private sector to ensure safety and security. Significant number of these efforts have been mitigating conventional low cost, no cost attacks, mostly against lone wolf and vehicle borne attacks. A lot of those trends that we see, um, we react to and we harden up against. But again, the, the bio is the one that, um, that's still out there that, we're, that we are all, we're all talking about. Regarding biodefense and biotax, some of the resources have been made available to us. Dr. Marciano talked about the National Guard Civil Support Team. That's kind of our first available resource that has been made available to the private sector at these venues to do air quality testing and sampling um, and pro provide game day monitoring of air quality at the stadium. With that comes products with Seaburn monitoring deployed to first response first responders, so we have an, availabil an availability to detect on an event-wide basis and when the resources are available. 
I am confident working with our emergency managers on a forensic level, if a, an event does happen, the back end of it, the investigation piece of it, will be pretty swift and we'll be able to identify who, what, when, and where, and why. But when it comes to the immediate mitigation of a guest in the hot zone, we're now talking about a wild card that a lot of us can prep and plan for on paper, but till it's actually exercised, uh, we don't know the implications of it. The mass, event of, the mass event environment is a highly dynamic, and if we have a release through an explosion, is it through an aerosol, is it through a food contamination, what is the correct response? Again, plans on paper do work for us, um, except when, that, when, these, when these acts actually do happen, is how do we respond strategically and surgically? Is it, are we talking about a handful of people? Or are we talking about tens of thousands of folks? When these events do happen, us as the building operators, the majority of us are, are private entities. We work at the behalf of the incident commanders, either through law enforcement or through the fire department. And we now are the gap between the first responders coming on the scene and the workforce that will help gap that or can, whatever that containment is going to be. But helping us identify who is, who is part of that containment, who is actually affected, and who do we need to work with. Um, a majority of game day staff that support these large events, some of it's volunteers, a lot of it's hourly employees. It's a very transient workforce. They might work at other venues. A lot of them do receive the basic emergency evacuation training, but when we start dialing down to a, a biocontamination or bio-release, um, a lot of our a lot of our beliefs that we'll have a 70% workforce reduction in supporting operations as they will, they will self-evacuate with everyone else because their commitment is at that level, that volunteer level or that hourly level. Long-term impacts of the BioVet happening at one of our venues range from us having to build back public confidence to come back to our venues. We already see it nowadays after 9-11 of how we've had to harden our facilities to make them feel safe and ensure that they are safe. The other part of that is finding a workforce that wants to work in those environments if these attacks happen. And then what we saw just with the World Cup recently in France, they did not have mass gathering watch parties to view the World Cup when you saw the other countries in Mexico, 50, 100, 60,000 people in Times Square is watching these events. France has decided not to, and that's um, one of the most significant sporting events attacks we've seen in the last five years. And at the end of the, the financial complications is the loss of revenues that come with having our sporting events, and then the insurance carriers providing services or coverage for those events. Uh, after 9-11, uh, we saw coverages you know, three to four times fold, a number of security providers that work at these venues went out of business because they could not meet those demands. Now, as a venue operator, how can I bridge the gap and how can I be a resource? This is one of the biggest questions that we have is how can we be a partner in this? It's not a matter of does the government need to carry the water to help us out? How can we meet halfway and how can we carry the water back? How can we be a partnership in it? What is, the, what is the group that we need to work with at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level? What can I do to provide training? Can I, how can I be a resource? Is the venue a place for them to exercise? We've opened our doors at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. We've told our, 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 public our, our 
public safety folks, make this your training ground, whatever we can do to provide. We have opportunities with the SWAT team that comes in. They bring the robots in for EOD training. And then when we approach the conversation of large scale functional exercises, we hit that roadblock of funding and who needs to participate and how they need to participate. Um, prior to opening the stadium, we were part of uh, a $50,000 investment to help pay for that training, just so our public safety responders had an opportunity to exercise one at the stadium and to exercise their plans. We're confident in a lot of their plans. Um, they just don't have the opportunity, mostly due to funding, to come out and roll everything out, get all of their devices out, get everything that they need to do to set up a, a decon station, who's actually doing it, where are those resources coming from, how far away are they gonna get there. It's very limited opportunities that we have those. Fortunately, with larger events, such as the Super Bowl or the Final Fours, funding is made available for those. But we're just talking about a half dozen events versus the thousand events that happen across the country that have that opportunity to train and roll out those roll out those initiatives. With that, um, I'd like to open up to questions. I think Dr. Marciano and I have a lot to provide, and um, I think that's why we're here today. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So Super Bowl 53 is going to be in Atlanta next year, right? And um, since I fully expect the defending Super Bowl world champion Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles to um, <laughs> defeat the Falcons at some point in the way, along the way, and arrive to the, at the stadium. I'm, uh, first off, I'd, I'd like to volunteer to oversee some of your security measures from the 50-yard line if you need, you need that. Um, but um, seriously, um, tell us a little bit about how you prepare for such an event, and particularly how you coordinate um, what would seem to me to be obviously the city of Atlanta security PD, the, the state of Georgia police, the federal officials, and then I would imagine you probably also have to throw in private security forces and maybe the Secret Service if there are uh, certain dignitaries uh, present. So give us a little sense of how that, that coordination occurs, please. Yeah, with, with Super Bowl, that is a SEER 1 event, and the Secret Service is the lead agency in charge when it comes to Super Bowl. Um, and a lot of federal funding and assets come into play, Department of Energy, the Secret Service, the FBI Special Events Department, uh, the NFL plays a significant role in, in setting up and liaisoning with the local public safety, the Atlanta Police Department, which will be the lead agency for the game on game day itself. Um, we've been in prep and plan um, since the announcement over a year and a half ago. Um, if the Eagles are in it, I could see additional training needed for <laughs> crowd management. <laughs> Your time is up, Mr. Coomer. Very well said. But touche, well played. <laughs> Mr. Would you uh, Senator Daschle. Let me just uh, ask you about the nightmare that, uh, that I keep thinking about, and that is a drone with an aerosolable bi uh, biological weapon. Um, over 70,000 people. How, today, as you think about that nightmare, what is, ha, have we come up with a protocol to address it? How do we, if you had every tool available to you today to address that scenario, what would it look like? 
So UAVs and drones, that is our boogeyman right now on how to deal with them. You can see them. Um, I've got vendors on a daily basis when they want to sell me products on tracking them. Um, we just were just not in a place to mitigate them legally. Um, some of the products, we, we, our country probably developed some of the best products out there to mitigate drones and UAVs, and we cannot deploy them. So that, that, that scenario of a drone in an aerosol, or, or just short of the aerosol, happened uh, back in October in San Francisco and Oakland when they had a drone flying overhead, dropping leaflets over the stadium itself. So what, what can we do? There is protocols in place. Identify the, the driver of, of the UAV. Um, find out who he is, run, run his information down, get him to land it. There is, um, there is a cap over the, over the NFL stadiums, the three-mile, 3,000-foot uh, 3, rule. So those are some of the things that we can put on them, but at best, it's a written warning. So there's no, there's no teeth to any, anything that we can do to these folks. And it's getting to the point a lot of the sports industries are willing to take on what is, well, if, if, if knocking one of those things out of the sky is something we need to do to find out what the courts are going to do to us, can we live with that if we know that it's going to save lives? So, I, I mean, you've, you've done a very good job of, of just kind of laying out the, the, the challenges you're facing. But if somebody were to go to you and say, okay, um, we want to fix it, what would you suggest? What are the two or three thing, most important things? I mean, licensing of a drone would be meaningless. I mean, we're, we're talking about a terrorist who doesn't care about licensing, doesn't care about whatever rules or regulations there are on drones, is going to have but the potential to, to affect 70 or 80,000 people with no forewarning. So is there the equivalent of an of a anti-missile device or something that that, that, uh, that be able to uh, actually target a, a drone to knock it out? Or how do, how do you, I mean, just not even looking at the current set of, of, of regulatory restrictions, um, which I think would be meaningless in a case like that, what, what, what technologically can we do to address that scenario? There is a number of, of programs and products out there ranging from electronic countermeasures. If you set a geofence around your stadium and anything penetrates that, given a certain frequency or good, certain code, we've seen uh, drone hunter killers that are other drones that you fly around and it drops down a drone to capture your bad drone. And I know it sounds very Hollywood, but we've seen these things demoed at certain test sites. Um, there's other drones that fire netting that they'll capture that drone and drag it off to other places. And then over in Europe right now, we're seeing advancements using falcons and eagles knocking drones out of the sky as well. Yeah. So electronic fences, that makes... Uh... Like I said, the falcons and the eagles. Are... Yeah. But there's solutions, uh, Senator, just uh, would not be able to uh, utilize that uh, capability. May just briefly reiterate the point I made earlier because simulations have been done that even if you knock it out, if you're dealing with anthrax yeah. spores as the primary contaminant, yeah. that won't save anything. You've got to bring the drone down intact so the payload is not dispersed. Senator Lieberman. Uh, thanks, uh, Congressman Greenwood. Uh, maybe start with a question with Dr. Post. Uh, follow up. Are there um, are there uh, products on the market that can do that? In other words, bring the drone down without exploding it? I, I think 
as was just mentioned, that there are a variety of vehicles for doing that, but I think the one no-no in all of this is the fact that if there's any presumption that anthrax is going to be the primary payload, the last thing that you want to do is to basically blow it right. to pieces over the stadium. There, um, are vehicle, uh, there are methods for bringing drones down intact. Understood. Thanks. Uh, thanks to both of you. So uh, this morning, perhaps I know I know I think you were here. Yeah. Uh, Senator Johnson, Chairman Johnson, was on, and he has legislation to authorize action to bring drones down. I'm, I'm just uh, uh, curious whether either of you has had a chance to look at it, and whether whether you think it does the job you would like to have it done. In other words, it presumably exactly fills the, the gap in law that you've been talking about. Yeah, I had a chance to look at it, and I think that's what we need. Okay, so you think it's, yeah. uh, Mr. Coomer, you want to add anything to that? I, uh, not specifically to him this morning, but we have, we work closely with DHS, with our local PSAs, right. and the DHS undersecretary was out in March at our stadium, and we made it abundantly clear that this was one of our top concerns. Yeah. Good. Um, what about the, uh, the, the state of the technology of detection devices? Is it fair to say that uh, in, in your stadium, for instance, you have devices that uh, are there to detect um, a, a not so visibly obvious uh, biological attack? In other words, you wouldn't see it, but somebody set something off that's in the air. We do have some capabilities at the stadium, either through pre-testing of our air quality and then our game day air quality, if that changes. So right. we, we do have some of those systems in place. Uh, Dr. Marciani, do you, do you know uh, at all about this, about the state of technology? No, I'm not uh, familiar with exactly. Uh, uh, this, this is uh, relevant to us because of another topic to me that uh, we talked about earlier which um, is this uh, BioWatch program, Governor Rich talked about it. Um, we, uh, you know, we spent a lot of money uh, in the last several years, and uh, general consensus is that it's, it's really not working. Now, we assume, I, I'm, I wonder whether there's a, uh, this is an old system. Now, I just have to believe that something better has come along, but um, I just was curious if you had, Run into I that. just know that from the field, you know, uh, biosurveillance is a big issue and we need help. Yeah. And uh, as soon as we can get it, that's going to, yeah. you know, hopefully save lives. So uh, just two quick personal comments. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Coomer, I want to congratulate you because during uh, Congressman Greenwood's attempt at humor about the Philadelphia Atlanta teams, you kept a straight face. And uh, I actually thought you might get up and do physical damage to our <laughs> colleague. But then, but, uh, then uh, you loosened up a little bit after you had your opportunity for revenge. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, my compliments. Uh, Dr. Marciani, uh, had you been active in this field or have you been uh, academic? In other words, had you been involved in uh, a massive insecurity yourself before you assumed this position? Yes. Uh, uh my career has been both uh, academic in a sense and, and in the field. Had the opportunity to uh, be an athletic director at the five universities, as well as work for the United States Olympic Committee, uh, managing two national governing bodies. So I had opportunities there for obviously many major events. And then um, uh, returned to the University of Southern Mississippi to be in the, on the academic side. And then right after 9-11, uh, 
you know, uh, several faculty, uh, we began research on stadium security, caught the attention of DHS, and uh, uh, have evolved since then, since 2006, to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, serve in the capacity of uh, directing the, uh, the center. That's great. So I, am I, would I be correct to assume this is a unique center in the country? Are there others like this? I have to say we're, we're, we're probably unique. Yeah. Um, it was important to us uh, back in uh, 2004 to, uh, uh, was, uh, to get involved in the research end of it, particularly on risk modeling right. for stadium security. That was the first uh, attempt. And then uh, from there, we advanced into uh, doing some work on evacuations. So the research uh, kept coming forward. And then at that point, um, uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, the center being named a, a center in 2006, and, and for the last 12 years or so, have been engaged with the profession very closely, engaged in research. We have a, uh, an academic degree, an MBA, with an emphasis in sports uh, security management, so we're training tomorrow's leaders. We have certifications, assessments, et cetera. So it's a pretty comprehensive center. Uh, also involved internationally with Interpol, so right. we are a, a global perspective on looking at advancing safety and security. That's great. Thank yeah. you. Congratulations. Yeah. Governor? Yeah, listen, I, I can't imagine a more difficult or complex risk than trying to identify, prevent, or detect, or respond and recover from a clandestine biological attack at a mass gathering. Your testimony highlights the complexity. Dr. Marciani, you talked about probably the most important ingredient would be to identify the actor or the potential perpetrator, uh, whether they are coming in unknowingly from a country where they've potentially contacted a contagion. Chances that are slim and none. But an actor who, uh, through the intelligence sources, either national or local, is uh, has leaked. It's going to be the, either the aerosol incident or some other measure of distributing uh, a bio agent. I mean, I just can't imagine yeah. how difficult it would be to plan for this. So, to that end, have either of you, given the complexity of this, ever tried to tabletop? what you do once, once you've identified a perpetrator, he never gets in the stadium. Once it's inside or once the, uh, the drone is over you, or I remember thinking about this in terms of a crop duster. Now we've become a lot more sophisticated now that you've got drones. So is your emphasis on prevention or response and recovery as you tabletop? I mean, how can you actually prevent? I mean, so I'm trying to figure out as you determine your role, is it prevention? Is it response and recovery? It's both? It's both. Talk to me. It's, I'll start, it's both. Um, we know something's going to happen. I think our job is to mitigate the risk and improve and, and enhance response. That's what, that's what it comes down to. So we're very fortunate uh, through DHS with the grants to, to get the industry engaged in training and exercises. If it comes down to it, uh, in the beginning, after 9-11, you know better than anybody that training and exercise were our biggest gap, and still is, actually. And I think that's what we work on uh, 
pretty much regularly with the with the industry, and uh, we think tabletops is about realistic as we can get and, and practice those scenarios that, that uh, uh, can get them engaged in understanding and uh, and being ready for uh, that to occur. And, and that's all we can do, that's the best we can do. Go. Uh, you know, I think it's all those ingredients combined and that we're all trying to mitigate them at the same time. The tabletops is what prepares us um, and in those tabletops is a lot of the partnership building and having, and, and there was a time in, in Indianapolis during one of our events where we had over 100 folks become sick at an event and we were running down the scenarios of where did it start from, who was the first person, who did they make contact with, where do we isolate them at, do we still have the event going on. Um, and in about two and a half hours, working with our, our, our health officials and our public safety folks, it was, we will identify that they all ate dinner at the same restaurant two nights before. But we had to go through that exercise um, um, and learn the hard way of how do we do that. And we wouldn't have been able to, to know the steps unless we had the right relationships and the right folks in the room that we already had been working with to get there. So Tabletop is another example of building that partnership and identifying who's running lead and how and who can support those. Well, you know, again, again, I don't want to underestimate. I want to elevate it. It's probably one of the most complex tasks yeah. anybody in the world of risk management is confronted with, because by nature the attack is probably going to be silent, clandestine. You may not even know it's happening, yeah. and yet you have to deal with the consequences. I mean, not the least of which is someone who may be unintentionally affected. Uh, goes and watch the Steelers beat the hell out of the Eagles. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, you know, but, but you don't know that until after the fact it's happened, and somehow your communication system and every other system you're going to identify where we were sitting, who was around. I mean, it's a really complex task, and I just commend both of you for thinking, trying to think your way through it, uh, because I think in terms of risk management, it's one of the more challenging domains in that field that you encounter. So thank you for spending so much time on it. Ken? Thanks, Jim. And thank you for your remarks. They've been very helpful. Um, I guess my question would be as the preventive, the, in, the intelligence aspect of, of the operation. Obviously, if you're going to try to head off an attack, the best way is to know it is coming. And to the extent that it's the federal intelligence community that might have that information, um, how do you find the sort of the handoff, the exchange of intelligence from the federal government at, at this time? I mean, we've seen since 9-11, I mean, it's always been an issue, right? Um, but we've seen you know, constant attention being paid to whether we can regularize the process of getting intelligence from the collectors. And in the case of international terrorism, those are largely going to be federal, but obviously with state and locals through the JTTFs and the like and get that to the people in state and local government, but also in organizations like yours who can use it to anticipate the next attack. Do yeah. you find that we've made strides over the last 15, 20 years? You want to go first? Yeah. No, I think um, some terms that don't get used together very much, FBI, DHS, and customer service. Um, the last 15 years, 
the customer service has gone up exponentially. Um, from my time in Indianapolis and in Phoenix and now in Atlanta, um, those different agencies coming to the table, wanting to be a part of it, providing information, um, being, able to being able to put certain status um, or clearances on myself or a couple other folks in our organization to have that information, to be able to pull us aside or take us up to headquarters to say this is what's coming down. Um, and then it's given us an ability to say, these are the things that we're seeing that are anomalies around our venues. Um, this is a letter we received in the mail. This is a person we observed. Um, that, that connection is becoming a lot more quicker and then the familiarity is there. So we, we do have, um, it feels right now, almost weekly intel briefings at our, at our venue, just the nature of the events in the stadium and international events um, with all those folks and individuals in the room providing intelligence. Um, you know, at times, do we get the company line? Yes, there's nothing to report. There's no significant attacks. Um, but we do know once we provide information or if we do have something going on, if a Guardian report's generated, um, that we can rely on them and that they want to push that information as well because they don't want that incident happening in their backyard. Also want to compliment fusion centers. State fusion centers have been have really uh, yeah. matured over the last ten years. So we were very confident uh, with the uh, those who are in the uh, state uh, fusion centers and the information that they're sharing uh, with us. The other the other group is PSAs. Each state having a PSA uh, has really been important for uh, that conduit for information. We've come a long way in a, in a very positive way. It's great. Okay. Appreciate your comments. Um, I would imagine that, that one of the problems you face is crank calls even right before the event or during the event, uh, and you, you must have this horrible dilemma where you can't react unless you've got something to go on, and yet, you know, how do you deal with that? Yeah, actually just recently dealing with one, um, someone wanted to had, had bad intentions towards our stadium but made the phone call to our football office, which was in another county, and working through the crime is actually being committed somewhere else, um, but the threat is at the stadium. Uh, so it's dual coordination of running down the the call itself. Where did it come from? Do we have the ability to work with the, the phone company? Does the law enforcement agency um, have that ability? And then on the backside, all right, what's actually going on in the stadium today? What is the legitimacy of the, the threat? What is going on in the building? Um, okay, there, there is a certain population, there's 20,000, 30,000, 40,000. Um, what steps are, are we already doing and what do we need to ramp up for that event? So that, that takes place uh, a lot more often than people think. Um, and, and you do have to be careful of, of crying wolf. You gotta treat it um, as it's real end to end. Um, and sometimes those calls, they don't, they don't come from places that you can track down very easily. Um, they have to be triangulated to other states at times, um, and, and you have to stand up your, your presence and posture and, and follow it through. And, that, and that's another, um, spreading out that cost can become cumbersome as well. Thank you. Well, the hour of four o'clock having arrived, we thank you for your, your uh, testimony today and, and all the work that you do. We appreciate that. Uh, thank you to uh, all of the panelists and the ex officio panels and the staff. Any further business to do before we adjourn? In that case, we are adjourned. Thank you.